get away from me Why don't you choke on a fashion accessory? So what's replaced cray cray? What's the new term? Oh, um, I don't know. I keep so, so it went from that shit is whack to that. There's, there's one, and I, I can't, I can't figure out how to use it properly. He keeps telling me I'm using it wrong. <laughs> That's whack. No, it's cray cray. And then you're like, no, it's something else entirely. And I'm like, no, it's something else entirely. And but you got to say it a certain way, and I can't, I can't figure it out. Yeah, well, that's because we're old, man. It's true. The fact that you still watch shitty B movies makes you young. <laughs> exactly. It's all how you, all, not, all how you not, feel. You're not watching Tom Hanks piloting a, a submarine. So you're okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. I uh, guess. Yeah. I guess, <laughs> yeah. It's like I all of a sudden I started reading like like books by authors who I know are old people, but authors. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, why do I want to read a, a Harlan Coben book? Like, oh, so you like, go and grab a Jack Ketchum book afterwards. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, Preston, uh, Lee, uh, Douglas Preston and Lee child or not Ch uh, child's book, you know, like that <laughs> series where there's archeologists. I'm like, pretty soon I'll be reading Clive Cussler and I'm going to be in trouble once that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if you ever see me, if you ever have any uh, notion that I'm watch reading a Clive Cussler book, you got to like, just be like, dude, <laughs> no, just, just, just don't like, or, or just tell me, yeah, just tell me to like read a Jack Ketchum book or something. Be like, yeah. go read some poppies, poppies, E bright and you'll be okay. So, yeah. All right. Anyway. Hello everybody. 168 of GBW podcast, the legit GBW podcast is on the air. My name is Chris. With me is Josh. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We haven't seen each other for two to three weeks because I was away living the life of doing nothing except for yeah. watching tons of movies that we're going to talk about tonight. But why don't we start, unless you have any orders of business, let's start with the movie that we uh, both watched. That sounds good. Okay, so it's a TV movie, which, because, you know, I know there's some of you out there who love it when we talk about TV movies. It's a 1974 I, TV movie. I don't know if they're referring to these kind of TV movies. Maybe they're referring to an other kind of TV movie. What, the ones I'm going to talk about later? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, yeah, I was on vacation? Because I was on vacation? That's, I think, what, what the, yes, I think that's what the gripe was. Well, <laughs> be, be prepared to gripe later because there is one of them on here. <laughs> I know that for a fact because I was on two weeks vacation with no internet and a stack of shitty DVDs. So it's going to happen. Um, but first, let's talk about Killdozer from 1974 which was just released in an actually quite nice looking blu-ray by kino lorber um yep. so this is one where have you ever seen this before no okay see i had seen this like back in the day like uh, around the same time we were watching i was watching like the deadly bees on tv and um you know you remember the deadly bees where the kids get stuck in the school bus and I haven't seen that one, but you've talked about it before. It, it's rad. But, yeah. you know, and, and like ants and yeah. stuff like that. This one was one that was in that grouping where I was like, oh, this is going to be great. It's called fucking Killdozer. It's about a bulldozer killing people 
it's going to be rad. I'm here to report all these years later. It's not really that rad. <laughs> but, but, okay, it's one, of, it's one of those ones where, like, I, like, you know, the title's pretty rad. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, it's going to be rad. There's a, a fucking kill. It's called Killdozer. There's a bulldozer on a rampage. But, you know, had I really thought about that concept, I probably would have been, like, it probably would have been more of what it is. Like, have I had I thought a kill? How fast can a fucking bulldozer go? Yeah, like those. Like, it's pretty. It's not that hard to get away from. You know, like, no, like the only exception would be like that that Paul Salet documentary tread about the guy who actually went on a rampage with a bulldozer, but he souped that motherfucker up so it could appall ass. In this one, it's going bulldozer speed, and it's like when we were kind of chatting briefly about this, you were like, "I don't understand how they." couldn't get away from the from the bulldozer i'm like well he's like can you imagine the stage direction on this and i'm like okay okay clint now it's going to be coming at you really slow just <laughs> don't worry you, you're gonna have time to jump out of the way you're just gonna have time you know uh, so basic basics of this a very basic story is that you know um it opens with this blue meteor crashing on this island and this really goofy visual effect of this blue meteor crashing on an island and it possesses a bulldozer because this island it's a, it's an island off the african coast which i thought uh, like from uh, near africa which i thought was weird like a yeah. weird setting and um it's basically the only people on this island are the employees of warburton oil who are like there just to you know basically plant, rape and pillage the island to, for want of another way to say it. They're just there to steal all the resources, basically. Um, so Kelly, played by Clint Walker, is the foreman. Lloyd. Lloyd played. Lloyd Kelly. Yeah, Kelly. I, yeah. Lloyd yeah. Kelly. Um, and he's just like kind of that hard-ass foreman, like, get back to work, everybody. We can't do this or whatever. And he's the guy who's kind of put to the, put to the task of stopping this rampaging bulldozer, which has been taken over by an alien force and is, decides to start picking them off one by one for no real reason, apart from the fact that it's a fucking killdozer. Um, and yeah, that's the basics of the story. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I was really thinking like, apart from maximum overdrive though, is there really any other instances of a possessed construction vehicle out there? I don't think there are, no. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing. Like it's a meteor. And they explained in maximum overdrive that it was a meteor that caused it. So, right. Did Stephen King rip off Killdozer? He very well might have. Like, <laughs> did, did he rip it off? And but the thing is, even the the bulldozer in fucking Maximum Overdrive is more threatening than this one. Because there, is there a bulldozer in Maximum yeah, Overdrive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's okay. So there's a scene early on with that steamroller in Maximum Overdrive, yeah, which is the, the best best scene yeah. in the movie. But um, w- when they're destroying the Dixie Boy. One of them is a is an actual bulldozer because it uses its shovel to like destroy the Dixie Boy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was like, and there's a scene like that in here too, where the killdozer goes on a rampage through their camp and just destroys everything. So I'm like, <laughs> Stephen King fucking ripped off Killdozer. <laughs> he totally did. <laughs> but but as much as I dislike Maximum Overdrive for the most part, I think it's a more exciting movie than Killdozer. I was like right off the bat i was kind of disappointed like <laughs> like with it not being a urban setting 
Yeah. Like that was my first, I was like, oh, really? Like it's just <laughs> these guys on this, these five dudes on a camp, like with like very little structures even around, like immediately I was like, well, how much can fucking happen in this 75 minutes? Like not much, like well, and, not much to kill. There's not yeah. much to destroy. Like, and I, so I was disappointed immediately. <laughs> I'm disappointed that you didn't say there wasn't much to kill. There wasn't much to doze. <laughs> well, there was a lot to doze, believe me. As I, as I texted you, the dozer part is the only part of the title that's accurate. <laughs> I, there is some stuff I kind of liked about this, to be honest. Like yeah. one, or, one or two things. Um, so basically what the thing is, is that this is like an overlong Twilight Zone episode. Yes. Very, but like, very, like, that's eight, accurate. like poor Twilight Zone episode though, like kind of poor. No, um, 20 minutes or th- 25 minutes would have been great. Yeah. I like the fact that they made the, the headlamps of the Killdozer glow blue so that you knew that the alien had taken possession again. Because every time they glowed blue, I'm like, oh, someone's dying or something's happening. Like blue equal death in this movie. Yeah. So it's like, okay, this guy, someone's going to get run over or he's going to go into, oh, look at that foreshadowing. Their only way to communicate with the mainland, the shortwave radio, Killdozer saw it, bam, ran it over. You know, like it was all foreshadowed big time. Um, I thought Walker was kind of not that great. (laughs) But is he ever, I mean, he was a big name act, like a big name TV actor, at least. Been in a lot of TV. Well, I guess he'd been in some theatrical stuff as well, like Night of the Grizzly. But I mean, the guy was, I don't know. I I felt like he was kind of like a low rent leading man that wouldn't, that never really quite made it properly. People knew who he was, but he was just kind of that typical stoic 70s stud, right? Like a Robert Logan that wasn't nearly as cool. Oh, don't even compare <laughs> Walker to fucking Logan, man. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like fighting that words. Of, that kind of man's man <laughs> yeah. thing going on, but uh, but he just didn't have a lot of personality. I mean, there was that. There was that. Remember that scene where he like he's like, "Oh, you guys are all crazy. I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna go check this out." And then it like takes off. He's trying to drive it, and it <laughs> takes controls from him. And he's like, "Oh, oh, oh and he's like jumping <laughs> off of it. I'm like, "Is this your excitement? You're just gonna show these levers." going around exactly. and then and then when the one guy's getting chased through the brush in, at nighttime and he's hiding behind the brush to look at the the killdozer's doing his own thing he's just off in the fucking sand somewhere just digging for no reason <laughs> like he's woken up and he goes and sees the killdozer digging and all of a sudden the killdozer's like someone's here and the headlights are like illuminating him behind the bushes he's like oh and he starts running away i'm like how could you not get away like <laughs> Like that's the problem. People wait to let it kill them. Well, this. yeah, there's one scene specifically near the end where someone is waiting in a jeep for it to kill them. <laughs> that guy had ample time to escape. <laughs> <laughs> he totally did. Um, but but for that for that guy also had the inexplicable repressed homosexuality going on, mm. and I'm not quite sure what that was all about. That was a like Dutch character, right? Yeah. Played yeah. by James Wainwright, where the first guy who gets killed, this Dutch guy is just so obsessed with the fact that his best friend died yeah. and tells stories about him for the rest of the fucking movie 
until he's just sitting in a Jeep waiting to get run over. That's his only purpose in this movie is just to sit there and say, remember me and Bob went down to the Creek and we swam naked, you know, like <laughs> stories like he that. wanted and he wanted to swim naked through the whole movie. <laughs> he kept bringing it up. Like, let's go night swimming. And it's like, what <laughs> night swimming is an REM song. It shouldn't belong in Killdozer. <laughs> like, like seriously. So there was him. There was Neville brand from eating, eating alive among other things. Toby, I gotta say, I'm really starting to like Neville Brand. I, I liked him in this though. Yeah, he's he's good at this. And like I, I've only known him from Eaten Alive up until recently. You know, I mean he was great in the police connection, which I talked about. Yeah. Um, but I really started to like this guy. Like, yeah. and so if you've only seen him in Eaten Alive, he's uh he's he's a lot cooler than I had I had imagined. Yeah, because in this he's just like the grumpy mechanic. Yeah. Who's kind of like saying, Oh fucking Kelly, you're full of shit. There's no such thing as this killdozer. Like he's just the guy and he's always like taking, isn't he always like taking swigs from his bottle, his flask or something through this yeah. whole thing too. So I liked him. Um, I I, I kind of, I liked the headlamp eyes and the high pitched I'm possessed noises that always happened. Every time the killers are possessed, you'd be like, bruh, bruh, or something like that. <laughs> I, I kind of like that, but it's really hard to wring suspense out of something that goes so fucking slow. Like, let's be yeah. honest here. Like, I mean, they, the director fucking tried. I'll give him credit for trying, like doing weird angles on the on the, you know, the big shovel at the front of the of the bulldozer and stuff, and doing all that. But I'm like, it's a TV movie. It's not like it can show these guys being like run over gorily. It can't show like the tire tread squishing a guy or whatever. So so they tried, but yeah, it's it's pulp sci-fi and nothing else. Yeah, like I didn't hate it. But I don't think I'll ever watch it again, <laughs> even though it's 74 minutes. I didn't hate it. I mean, I think I'll hold on to it, actually. Like, I don't think I'm going to dump it or anything. But, um, but I, yeah, it was just, like I said at the beginning, had I kind of thought about this, it, it kind of played out like, like I expected. So yeah. now that, you know, you know, listeners, what this is, um, maybe if you have that mindset, it might be a, a little more entertaining. I mean, that the guy, the director, Jerry London, um, directed Shogun, the Richard Chamberlain miniseries. And he was like a very prolific TV mm-hmm. movie, TV director. So he, the guy knows what he's doing. So it wasn't badly made. It was just, I just think it was just like kind of one of these concepts that they kind of maybe realized after the fact that maybe maybe it wasn't the best idea. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, I saw, I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but I saw a Jerry London TV movie recently called victim of love with Joe okay. Williams and, and Pierce Brosnan, and Virginia Madsen. I think I did talk about it actually. I think you did too. And, and that wasn't bad either. He's like a very workmanlike TV director. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a workmanlike TV movie from the mid seventies where they needed to fill programming. Cause there was a movie of the week on every network. Yeah. Like the big three networks had a movie of the week every week. So that's why you get killdozer. That's why you get skyway to death. You know, and I totally want to watch if I saw like back in those days before the days of video and everything. Yeah. And I mean, I remember those days. Right. Yeah. And if I knew that fucking killdozer was playing on Tuesday, you're damn right. I would have watched it. Well, they would have so, had like a 10 second stinger. Yeah. And then when you're flipping through TV guides, you would have seen the artwork and be like, fucking killdozer. I'm in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like seriously. So, I mean, it was okay. I guess like, 
I thought Carl Betts, who played the asshole character Dennis, was pretty good at being a jerk. Um, I, I, I I had fun with the it, the fact that there's an instant truck explosion in this movie <laughs> because I love movies that have instant truck explosions because it's so fucking unrealistic but rad. Yeah. And you know, and any movie that ends with like a dozer versus a crane fight, yeah, can't be that bad. Like a digger, it was like a digger. Yeah, yeah, like. It, it, it was what it was. It is what it is. Let's put it that way. Don't forget the fact that Robert Urich was in this briefly. Yeah. And he was obviously a big TV star. He was in Vegas, a show I really like. Spencer. Spencer for Hire, SWAT. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was a big TV star at the time. Or this is right before. This is, I think this is pre-Vegas. This is before. I think, it might, I don't know if it was pre-SWAT or not, but... Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, he was just kind of starting out as an actor, but he didn't last very long in this movie. Um, but it was kind of, kind of nice to see him pop up. Um, one thing I will say also is, you know, just reading some reviews on this. Um, I don't get why anytime there's a fucking vehicle that's on a rampage, people automatically compare that movie to duel or the car. Yeah. And I will assure you right now, this is not in the league of either of those movies. Not even and close. Not, and it's not even similar. Like, I don't, but it's like people, like, it's like they need to compare it to something. So that's what they're doing. But it is not like Duel or the car. I think my comparison's closer. I think Maximum yeah. Overdrive is a closer comparison than both of those movies. I agree. But even, like you said, I think Maximum Overdrive is way more exciting but it is what it is like i i really just wish they had done this in an urban setting at a construction site in like the city and then it went on a rampage but i guess they just didn't have the budget like they shot this in one location at a kind of a sand dune um kind of like uh recreational park outside of la and i guess they just had the location they had the bulldozer and I almost guessed that they maybe made it up as they went along. Dude, it, dude, it's Africa. It's not LA. <laughs> it's Africa. I know. But uh, yeah, they were shot in LA. This, uh, this old, uh, I can't remember, what it was, I think it was called the Dunes or something, but it used to be a place where you could rent dune buggies and things like that. So it's kind of a neat, neat terrain, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's what happened. They had this location, they had the cast, they had the dozer, and they probably just went out there and went, hmm, okay, well, tonight, guys, we're going well, to drive the bulldozer over this, this area, and you guys could be scared. And and hey, uh, token black guy that dies first, um, why don't you you know run away and uh, hide in that... Uh, <laughs> hide in that like metal cylinder and <laughs> hope that the bulldozer doesn't run over it i thought that was a pretty hilarious scene as well <laughs> but um yeah uh overall i don't know i mean you can get it from kino probably on sale for 10 bucks so yeah um i'd say it's kind of worth a look just for the cool title and if you're a fan of any of these actors um or like tv movies in general i think it's kind of a must-see as if you like 70s tv movies but yeah just don't go in with high expectations like i kind of (laughs) did yeah i i'm curious i haven't dived into the special features i mean there is a uh interview like an audio interview with the director yeah i i listened to that and i listened to the commentary track i think the commentary is just one of those historian tracks again isn't it yeah it was okay um it was a couple of British guys. I liked the inner, the audio interview actually was really interesting. Um, so uh, that would be my, that was my preferred um, uh, extra, 
Um, he does plug his book quite a bit, but I'm actually, because of that, probably going to buy his book. Oh, I didn't know he wrote on, it. Yeah, all his time. You can get it on even in Amazon Canada. So um, it sounds pretty interesting going through all his time uh, directing TV through the 70s and 80s. So I think I think there'd probably be a lot of fun stories in there. I'll have to look into that too then. But yeah, I, I would give Killdozer a, a soft recommend if you can get it like we did in the Kino sales. Which, yeah, are constant, sure. which are constantly happening. You yeah. can get it for like 10 bucks. I'd say exactly. for ten, I'd say for 10 bucks, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I spent 10 bucks on worse than this. Totally. I I've agree. spent more than 10 bucks on worse than this. Yeah. So that's Killdozer, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I, oh, and, oh, sorry. Side note. I really used to like the band Killdozer mm. who named themselves after this movie. And, uh, they, had, they did some pretty good, they have a pretty good covers album called For Ladies Only, where they do like American Pie and One Tin Soldier. And oh, really? it's, uh, it's a pretty fun, uh, pretty fun record if you uh, like kind of heavy sludgy covers of classic uh, 70s songs. Were they like uh, industrial? Uh, they're just, they're kind of like just loud, like kind of like a, like, like Jesus Lizard or something like that. Oh, so like kind of ja- noise jangle kind of yeah just noisy but but they do actually pretty good covers i've heard they do a one of um disco inferno that's pretty good as well is that on the same thing for ladies only uh disco inferno is not but uh for ladies only is pretty fun they they do um take the money and run by steve miller and uh burn in love by Elvis. so yeah it's, it's a pretty good pretty fun record oh man i'm gonna have to like see if that's on spotify now yeah yeah it's pretty fun because I'm down with that. Yeah. Uh, it's not on Spotify. No, it might be under like EPs or something. I don't know. Oh, well, anyway, enough <laughs> of that. Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, might as well do this one since it's new and everybody seems to be watching it on in the horror community. And I returned to the movie theaters for this. Let's talk about 2021's Candyman, directed by Nia DaCosta. Um Produced by Jordan Peele and co-written by Jordan Peele of Get Out and Us fame. Um, Not a remake, as I originally believed it to be when I saw the initial trailer, Mm -hmm. but a actual sequel to the original film. So this is another one of those horror sequels. It's like, hey, remember what happened in the other ones? Forget all that. This is just a sequel to part one. There's there's, There's at least two or three other horror series that have done that in the past. Where they're like, forget the other ones. This one, they don't exist. Yeah. Um, which is, I don't mind. They, uh, Farewell to the, the Flesh. Is that the second one? Candyman yeah. 2? I don't mind that one. But I mean, I'm fine with them pretending it doesn't exist. So this, yeah. this, the main story behind this is that it takes us back to Cabrini Towers in Chicago. So Cabrini Towers was the location in the original film that Virginia Madsen's reporter went to. It was kind of like, you know, slum housing in a way where all the African-American community lived and where Candyman, the legend of Candyman was birthed and, you know, kind of was set off from that area. It was just like a rundown kind of poverty housing units and stuff. And now we're, we're looking at like, you know, 20 years later and it's now being gentrified by the city. So it's all like fancy apartments that, you know, artist types live in and it's not at all, like what it used to be. I mean, there's one or two areas of the Cabrini Towers location where they still have the old housing units, but they're basically abandoned and 
waiting to be torn down so that they could put up another fancy high rise. Um, the legend of Candyman still lingers in this area, though, because, you know, it's obviously a big deal. It's like it's about a guy who went around killing children and stuff. But it's also about how and I like this is that like early on, we have our main character, Anthony, who's an artist played by Yaha Abdul Marti, Mar- Martin II and his wife, Brianna, played by Tiana Paris. They have company over and they're talking about the Candyman legend and saying how mostly the legend was a, it's been twisted in a way that now Candyman is the Virginia Madsen character from the original. Like Candyman didn't really exist. It was this Virginia Madsen character who did all this stuff mm-hmm. and was out to like get the African American community and stuff. So I kind of liked that stuff. And the way that was delivered was in like kind of puppetry, like paper cut out puppetry. I really liked how they did that. Like, like the was, trailer, the second trailer was like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I really liked those moments. Cause I was like, that's a cool way of telling a backstory, but not like using flashbacks or like, just having the reaction shots, it's actually having something interesting to look at. So if you're kind of aware of the original urban myth of the, of the movie, the first movie, it's something where you could be like, Oh, that's cool that they did that. And they brought that back. in. so I really like that stuff. But then it turns out that Anthony kind of gets obsessed with this Candyman legend and starts kind of looking into it. And from there it becomes, you know, Candyman is a real thing and starts to come back out into the real world and anthony's trying to get getting more and more obsessed and possessed by this Candyman legend while his wife is trying to kind of stop him and also stop this candy man because there's all these deaths that stop start occurring around the area and that's basically all i'm going to say about the plot um so like i said i like the urban legend angle i liked how uh DaCosta used a lot of reflections to her advantage in the direction like there's a lot of good use of that like there's a scene where anthony's at the library researching the Candyman legend and he gets into an elevator and it's a completely glass elevator and he's just like oh of course and then you know it gives opportunity for Candyman because the main story of Candyman is you look into a mirror and you say his name five times and he'll appear mm-hmm. like the bloody mary thing right so i liked how they did that but I just thought that like there were certain things I didn't like about this at the same time. Um, so well-made cast was good. Um, but there's certain things in here that I didn't really like that much. Um, fairly low body count, which is fine. I don't have an issue with that because I don't believe the original Candyman had a huge body count. If no. I can recall correctly. Um, but, uh, and a lot of them off screen. I'm fine with that. But when it was on screen, it was fucking CG blood. Mm-hmm. I'm so tired of CG blood, dude. Mm-hmm. How hard is it to whip up some fucking corn syrup and coloring? <laughs> like, come on. Like, I'm so sick of it. It looks fake. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they do. It's always going to look fake. So I yeah. don't like that. Um, I didn't really like how far this movie leaned into the uh, evil white oppressor angle. I mean... I get it. It happens and it has happened in history, but it leaned a little bit too far into it. Like every single character of authority in this, like that were a police officer or whatever, were an evil white person. So, Doesn't get out kind of like that too, though. Sort of, but it has some 
you know, it, it's, it's a little, it's a lot more subtle about it. This one just slaps you in the face with it. Okay. Get out was more subtle. This was just slap. Here's another cop. He must be evil. Slap, slap. Here's another one. Slap. And I also thought that this movie was trying to cram way too much plot into 90, 90 minutes. Like yeah. it got really messy and really like hard to understand by the end. Like I was like, you're cramming too much into these last 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You, you shouldn't be doing that. Like keep it simple or make your movie another 10 to 15 minutes longer. Right. You know, I'm usually a big proponent of 90 minute horror movies, but I feel like they're, when you have a story that is a little bit more complex, like this one's trying to be, you need a little bit more room for it to breathe. Mm-hmm. And that's what this needed. So, um, I also found a lot of the horror stuff to be iffy at times. Like there's a scene in this, which is kind of a, a recreation of the bathroom scene in the original, but it's done where it's like a bunch of white girls in the bathroom at high school who are, who right before they're killed by Candyman are picking on a black girl and then Uh, get killed. So like I said, it's very heavy handed in leading into that kind of stuff. I'm not discounting that, you know, the experiences of African-American people. And I'm not discounting that there's a lot of fucking white racists in America, but I mean, it's a little bit too much when you're making a, a, a horror movie, you know, like I agree with the message. I just think it was a little bit heavy handed on delivery. So I kind of didn't like that stuff, but overall I didn't come out of this going like, yeah, that sucked. I think I liked it about on par with part two, to be I- honest. But this is in no way going to replace the original Bernard Rose original as like my preferred Candyman movie. Like I really still like the original Candyman, but I like the ideas brought to the table in 2021 Candyman. I just wish they would have been able to cash it out, cash it in much better than they actually did. There's people out there who are loving this, Mm. but then there's a lot of people who are like me who are like, there's certain things missing that if they would have been in there, this could have really hummed. But yeah, just too much plot in too little time, a little bit too heavy, heavy handed. And the horror stuff was a little bit too CG assisted for my liking. So probably a three out of five. Right. Really? But yeah, I mean, it's the only horror movie playing right now in theaters until Halloween Kills comes out. So if you're yeah. curious, I'm not going to say don't go see it. If you're curious, it's worth seeing at least once. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You said you're not really interested. No, no. You know, like this is Candyman's one of those ones where I just kind of really, honestly, like I just think of that original movie. Like I just kind of wish that that was all that there was. Yeah. To be honest, like it was one of those ones that I think it could have been just a really great cult movie. If it was just Candyman, this movie that came out in the nineties and that was it. That was it. No sequels, no remakes, just one of those cool movies that was, you know, I, I really, you know, I've talked with the re- the sequels and they were decent, but I'm I'm fine without them and I'm fine without this. I, I to be honest, I'm not that. I've heard the same thing you've been saying about the heavy-handed stuff. Yeah, and it's hard for me to comment on whether it's too heavy-handed because I'm not Afri- African American. Um, I don't know who the market for this was, but um, but yeah, I just it's not something I'm going to be in a hurry to see. I'll, I'll see it when it shows up on Netflix one day, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, but it's like I said, I mean, 
you have a, you're right. There's a similar message in Get Out. Yeah. But it was handled a lot more subtly. And it, and it made its point a lot more succinctly than what Candyman did. Like Candyman slapped you in the face with it. Right. Where Get Out, you're like, by the end of Get Out, you're like, yeah, white people are fucking terrible at times. You know, like it's, I get it, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like, oh, here we go again. Like in Candyman, I was like, here we go again. Every time any cop or anything showed up on screen. Because like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that went on with that in the last year and a half. But it was just, it wasn't delivered properly, is what I'm saying. The other thing I've noticed about this movie, and maybe you can answer this, is I, I, know, I know the name Mia DaCosta because it keeps coming up. Mm. Like I'm supposed to care. Like, what has she done? Like, why, why is her name so synonymous with this movie? Like, like they've been saying, you know, like it's, I've heard her name is almost always associated with this type, the title. So like, whenever I hear that the new Candyman, it's always Nia DaCosta's Candyman. And I, I don't understand why. Well, she's only made one other movie. Yeah. Like, is it cause she's a, a black female director? I believe so. I'd hate like, to it's say, very I, strange. Like, I, it's like I'm supposed to know who she is, but I don't. I hate, all. I hate to say it, but I think that's a good chunk of it is that she's a, uh, a black female filmmaker. I mean, that's great, but I mean, she's just not established. Like I just, it's, it's anyway, it's been a strange way of kind of promoting the film. I found like, like if they went out and they were like, Karen Kusama's Candyman, I'd be like, fuck yeah. You know? Cause I yeah. like, I love Karen Kusama for the most part, but like someone who I've not seen their original movie and has no real cred in the horror movie circles. Yeah. So she you don't know either. Like, yeah, yeah it's, she hasn't directed a horror movie before. Yeah, it's very strange because it's really pushed like I'm supposed to be like that's supposed to be a selling point for me. And I'm just yeah. like, I don't know who this person is. Yeah, so I, I would give again, like Killdozer, a mild recommend on Candyman. Yeah. If if you're wanting to see a horror movie in the in the theaters, you could do worse. But if you really are just interested in the Candyman, you know, the whole mythos around it or whatever watch the original if you've never seen it. And that's probably good enough. Like you said, that's probably yeah. good enough. So yeah. yeah. Candyman 2021. All right. Well, I'm going to um, kind of go backwards to Killdozer territory again. Oh, um, because I did decide to watch uh, Paul Solid's uh, trend. Oh, okay. Which is a uh, documentary. I'm uh, curious uh, about this one. Yeah. Yeah. Documentary from 2020. Um, about this dude who named Marvin Hemeyer. And I remember when this happened. Um, I remember like seeing footage of it, but this dude in uh, in a place called Granby, Colorado, a very small town in Granby, kind of was pushed over the edge by the people in the town um, through like kind of like land disputes and town like a property dispute and this small town that was run by kind of this one family. And he felt like he was kind of wronged by them when he was trying to like operate his muffler business on this piece of property. And he just kind of was kind of felt like he kept getting fucked over, fucked over, fucked over. And eventually this kind of boiled over and he built this giant armored uh, bulldozer that he bought a bulldozer and then armored it with like steel and concrete and outfitted it with like rifles 
and then just went on a fucking rampage and drove through the small town like running over like running through buildings and destroying all this property and and then he ended up shooting himself in the head um so it's this pretty crazy story and um this that's what this documentary is about um so paul solid in case you don't know uh did a really great movie called grace from god it's probably been 20 years by now um i can't remember when grace came out but it's 2005 or six yeah yeah so it's getting there but uh it's a pretty fun little horror movie he's still making movies like fictional movies now he did another one called dark summer which was okay and he's done a few other movies so i was kind of surprised to see his name attached to a documentary but still i mean i kind of think like you know people like that are into the genre if you're gonna make a documentary you're probably gonna make it about something some crazy incident and that's what this is so I, it makes sense that a horror director or a genre director would take this on and i thought he did an awesome job so it opens up with some um um audio um audio tapes uh, uh that he meyer himself recorded before he went on the rampage um so i guess he had recorded these tapes sent them to his brother and then went on the rampage and then the brother ended up turning them into the uh authorities so it's actually the the guy that did the rampage on these audio tapes so i thought that was pretty good and then they um you know it then opens up with kind of a bit of backstory on him and then it kind of goes into this whole land dispute and kind of like the different characters in the town and how this guy felt he was getting fucked over and talks to his friends talks to his um um the enemy like the the enemies in his brain he talks to the like this family that supposedly ran the town it talks to talks about to the council members who kind of kept shooting him down it talks to his girlfriend who like left him um so i thought it was pretty com- pretty complete in that way he talks to his friends as well so it gave a really good um a picture of this guy and a picture of the situation and but you know what's coming right so you're you it is kind of building up and you can really kind of feel it building up as all this stuff's going on so i thought it was really well put together actually because um you're just you're kind of waiting for it but i still it was kind of nice to really really understand why this guy went went in the direction he did and then yeah and then at the finale is of course the rampage and there was all kinds of news footage that was taken at the time so um solid does a really good job of kind of combining news footage with actual recreation um and i thought it was pretty seamless and um i wasn't expecting the recreation so i wasn't expecting to see a giant fucking bulldozer tank driving around and it was pretty pretty cool um much more impressive than i remembered because you know back then it was like i just remember seeing it on like cnn briefly like you'd see like a shot of the but you didn't really get the full effect but in this like it goes on for like half an hour right and you say you really understand like just how impressive this machine was that he built and uh, how much destruction it could do so it did definitely pay off at the end um funnily enough it is it was actually called the killdozer by the news media so it was a pretty perfect uh compliment to to um to killdozer um but yeah i i i I enjoyed this quite a bit i thought it was really good really easy to see it's a netflix original so um you can see it whenever you want if you have netflix and uh yeah i would totally recommend uh recommend checking it out and um I know Solid's, um, yeah, he's 
been doing everything he's done is pretty good and uh, looks like he's going to continue to make narrative movies but i i would certainly welcome another documentary from him as well so that's tread from 2020 so if you're like like Chris said earlier, if you're looking for a compliment to Killdozer, this is a much better compliment than the car or duel. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm super curious about this documentary, actually. I mean, I was already curious be- just because Salette was involved. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's a freaking insane story. Like, I just couldn't imagine someone doing it. I really couldn't. No, and it's so it's such an impressive like when you see this thing go off, you're just like like they they cannot touch it. Like the nothing will stop it. It's pretty crazy. And like I'm not gonna what it's I'm not gonna reveal what does stop it, but it's it's like you know, it was luck that this thing stopped. <laughs> but yeah, pretty cool trend. All right. Well, since you're talking about um you know, you were mentioning something about um, a, a documentary, you know, like this, I, I'm, I'm losing my, how, where I wanted to go with this segue. Um, the next movie I'm going to talk about is actually based on another urban legend, much like Candyman, and also was spun off into a documentary afterwards. Oh. So I guess that's where I'm trying to go with this. Uh, and that's a movie from 1981 called The Burning, directed by Tony Malum. Now, this is based on the urban legend of Cropsy, which was made into a documentary in, I believe, 2010 or 11. Um, A very fucking effective and creepy as shit documentary, I might add. Um, So basically what this is, is um, the story of Cropsy is that it's about this kind of like this creepy you know, caretaker, camp caretaker type guy who would start like molesting and murdering children. So it's this big urban legend in like the New Jersey area. And that's kind of what the basis of the burning is as well. In the fact that the killer is called Cropsy and the killer is a caretaker at a camp. So the movie opens at Camp Blackfoot and it opens in your typical early 80s slasher movie style where it's a bunch of the guy campers playing a trick on the caretaker. So the caretakers in his, you know, they sneak up to his cabin in the middle of the night and he's sleeping and they're like, okay, we're going to get Cropsy this time. Fuck that guy. We're totally going to get him. So they go in and they set up this elaborate prank. And when Cropsy is woken up, they like set up the prank They go outside the window and they're banging on the window to wake him up. Like, Hey, wake up, wake up. And he wakes up and he's totally freaked out by what they've done. And it goes, the prank goes wrong and he ends up setting himself on fire. So there's, he's on fire, he busts out of his cabin, there's this really impressive burn, you know, this burn effect, like the stuntman who did that burn walk did a pretty good job, like he was on fire for quite a little bit. Um, so Cropsy gets like sent to the hospital, burnt up to a crisp, five years later he gets released from hospital, and his first order of business is to go into the downtown area, pick up a prostitute, and murder her. So we know that Cropsy's a little bit unhinged. Luckily for him, but unlucky for everyone else, there's now that camp that's adjacent to the original camp where there's a whole group of campers, counselors, and everything there. And Cropsy's decided to come home and start murdering everybody in the best kind of summer camp slasher way that you possibly can with a preferred implement of hedge clippers. So basically... um, 
You know, this is a camp slasher movie from the early 80s. It's one that's got held in very high reverence by a lot of people. Um, I wouldn't say it's top 10 for me, to be mm-hmm. honest, but I do quite enjoy this. But on this rewatch, which has been a while I hadn't seen, um, I think that I like it more because of a specific scene, which I will get to. Um, so, you know, Cropsy gets out of the hospital and then we're introduced to all the campers and it's the usual batch of campers. You know, there's a baseball game going on right after that. And, you know, it's got slow motion boobs bouncing and ass close-ups and all that kind of stuff that you expect from an eighties slasher movie, um, which also could kind of trigger people who uh, might realize that this movie was produced and co-written by Harvey Weinstein as the first Miramax production. So if you want to read into it, that way read into it that way but it's an 80s slasher movie um and then we're introduced to the counselors and campers which include jason alexander from seinfeld with hair uh brian backer from fast times at ridgemont high he was the nerdy kind of ticket taker at the movie theater in that lee aries who uh she was on a couple of tv shows back in the day i can't quite remember what they were but you'd know her she's uh kind of a blonde statuesque kind of girl uh holly hunter in her first film appearance is one of the campers and then we also have um you know todd played by brian matthews who's kind of like almost the put upon hero in this piece because he's like the main counselor who is always counted on to keep everyone else safe so it's got all these characters and they're doing all the same things you know like the the goofy like splashing each other on the beach and pushing each other in the water and the bully guy like pushing one of the guys around in that and then you've got all the slasher movie tropes of you know the pov shots of cropsy watching people and people going off into the woods to have sex and cropsy being like i'm gonna get you you know so it's got everything you expect from these slasher movies and you know there's a there's a, a banjo fueled canoeing moment where they're like canoeing along and there's banjo music playing. And I'm like, this is this deliverance is like Cropsy going to show up and like tell someone to squeal like a pig, like what, what's going on. Uh, and you know, and just like the campfire tale about Cropsy that's halfway through this movie. So when they're doing this campfire tale, I'm like, did I stumble onto like Friday the 13th part two or three where they always recap the story of Jason at the beginning. Um, so, you know, this just cribs together all this stuff that's going on in other slasher movies at the time, especially like Friday the 13th. Um, but the thing is, I remember way more kills in this movie. I really do. And I think that's because there's one kill scene specifically that's later in the movie that's so fucking impressive and so built up towards that I was like, I tricked myself into thinking there was more deaths before that happened. I really did. So I was kind of disappointed in that. Um, I was kind of disappointed that it's kind of slow going at the beginning, but then once Cropsy shows up, starts killing everybody, there's a finale set in an abandoned mine, which I thought was, which I thought (laughs) was pretty cool. Um, And there's the makeup effects are done by Tom Savini. So, I mean, you can't really go wrong with an early 80s slasher with Tom Savini effects. I mean, look at the Prowler, look at Friday four, look at the original Friday, the 13th, this guy made impressive effects. Look at maniac even for not quite a slasher movie, but like slasher movie kind of scenes in it. 
So, I mean, you've got that going for you. You've got a uh, musical score by Rick Wakeman, who played keyboards in the band Progressive Rock Band. Yes. You've got Jack Shoulder, who directed Alone in the Dark and the Hidden, editing this thing. Like, there's so many people involved in this, including Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter and all them, that this is like a must for like slasher movie completists. It's a must. It's not the best. Like I, like I said, I'd probably put it at the bottom of my top 10 of 80 slashers, but this is still a fun to watch. It's still got that camp setting, which I'm a sucker for any, any slasher movie set at a summer camp. That's why I like the original sleepaway camp so much, even though I know it's technically not the best made movie in the world because it's mm-hmm. set at a, at a summer camp. So you've got all that stuff going on. You can forget that Weinstein was involved in this in any way, weight, shape or form. If that's something that's going to bother you and just go for a ride of a fucking burnt up guy with hedge clippers, killing promiscuous 20 somethings. It delivers enough of that, that I recommend that you buy the show factory Blu-ray at the burning if you've never seen it, because it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. And that's all I got to say. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about it because I know we had planned for you to watch this as well for the first time and it didn't pan out. So I, I, I still want you to, uh, you know, experience the burning for that first time. I'll, I'll be, watch it one of these days. I'll be curious because like I said, it, it wasn't quite as good as I remembered but it's still a solid 80 slasher movie and it's set at a summer camp. So you can't really go wrong. So the burning everybody. Nice. I mean, it's one of those ones that's like one of the few kind of big slashers I've never seen. So yeah. I'm kind of like almost saving it. <laughs> yeah. and, and as a companion piece, I do recommend you watch the uh, documentary Cropsy because it's pretty insane. Yeah. So, you know, I don't remember that documentary. I watched it. I don't, it didn't make any impression on me. Really? Yeah. Like I think zero. It, wow. I thought it was pretty insane when I watched it. So yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Interesting. Maybe it was just, uh, it's always about mood. Remember? Yeah. We yeah. just weren't into it at the time. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So I'm going to go back to a classic, um, uh, a 1950s vampire movie that I actually was unfamiliar with. And that's uh, The Return of Dracula from 1958, directed by Paul Landris, who um, also did a movie called The Vampire. And how did I see this? Well, there's a double feature MGM disc that when they did those midnight movies and the two of them are paired together. So I decided to give it a, give it a whirl. And um, this was actually really good. <laughs> I had no expectations going in. And um, I was pretty impressed. So it's um, it opens with a team of um, vampire hunters going into this um, kind of crypt to kill a kill a vampire, and uh, it turns out that the um, coffin's empty. And, um, and then we um, fast forward to like a new location in a place called Carlsbad or Carlton, California, and there's a um, family that lives there and their long lost cousin named they're they're wanting to see their long lost i think he's a cousin or uncle or something named belloc what they don't know is is that the vampire that they were trying to kill at the beginning actually ended up traveling to america killing their relative and has, has now taken 
the personality. And because they haven't seen him in so long, they don't know that it's an imposter. So this vampire named Belak shows up and um, played by Francis Lederay, um, who's been in a few things, um, but I mainly know him. Well, he's been around for a long time. He was in Pandora's Box with Louise Brooks, which is super old, but iconic. And he was also in Terror as a Man, which is the the first of the Blood Island movies, mm-hmm. not the one that wasn't in the box set that I watched. So um, kind of curious about this actor, but I thought he did a pretty pretty good job as this vampire guy. So he moves into this, um, in the house of this family. It's like, um, I think it's only, there's only a mom there. And then there's a uh, brother and sister. And then there's like this kind of boyfriend of the sister that keeps popping by. Uh, so the sister is a um, named uh, Rachel, uh, played by Nora Eberhardt, uh, who was in a couple of like um, of like youth gone wild delinquent movies, including Live Fast Die Young. Uh, pretty good uh, kind of lead actress. Um, kind of not too wild, but kind of a plain, kind of plain looking blonde, but. I could see the attraction there and um, I thought she did a pretty good job because she kind of carries this movie for the most part. So it's her, the, the um, uncle's kind of got like, you know, they're supposed to be like family, but he's actually got other, other things in mind. He actually wants to uh, turn her into a vampire and marry her. So that's, that's not good. So um, a lot of, a lot of that's going on. Um, the boyfriend is played by a guy named Ray Strickland, who was in uh the Lost World, which is uh, um, Irwin Allen movie with effects by Willis O'Brien, so I, I know him from that. Um, and then the um, the little brother is just kind of there, and the mom's just kind of there. But it's mainly about this Rachel woman and her relationship with this vampire guy. Um, she also works at this neighboring um, um, kind of like um it's like a a church hospital almost like a hospice where like um i it's kind of hard to explain what it is but she volunteers there there's this blind girl that lives there who um she's kind of befriended um anyway the blind girl ends up being turned into a vampire by the by by our buddy blet belloc and um and then things just kind of build up towards um the final confrontation with Rachel and Belloc. Um, not explaining this too well, but it's um, it's it's a pretty low key entry. Like there's not a lot. It's not a big movie. There's not a lot of cast. It's basically about this dude who comes into this town. He's, he's an imposter. He's into this supposed relative, and it's about him basically trying to get with her for the movie. <laughs> Meanwhile, this uh, the vampire hunter from the beginning, Meyerman, also comes to the town and is looking for the vampire. But for what it is, a low-budget, cheap um, um, horror movie from the time, it's actually really good. This is actually one of my favorites from this era um, at this point. And I've seen, you know, starting to see quite a few. I mean, obviously, I went through the Universal set and we're kind of delving into Hammer movies a little bit. But uh, for these low-budget movies, um, I do find, like, there's some that are really starting to pop out as being pretty good. Um, there was another one I watched recently called, I think it was called City of the Dead, um, with the, you know, all the crosses and mm-hmm. the burning vampires. That was really good as well. So I think there's actually quite a bit of gold here. I think there's a lot of boring garbage as well. But um, but this is another one that really kind of stands out for me, especially with such a generic title. 
Um, the blind girl, Jenny, is played by Virginia Vincent, uh, who genre fans will certainly know as the mom in uh, The Hills of Eyes. Um, there's a shot in this movie where uh, someone gets uh, staked and it's a black and white movie, but it actually pops red blood when that one person gets staked. And I thought that was pretty cool. It's one of the things this movie's kind of known for. Um, and overall, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty fun, engaging, atmospheric little gothic horror movie that takes place in contemporary times which is something also that i enjoy i'm not a huge fan of like stuff in castles and stuff even though i, I do like them but i like it more when they're set in like contemporary times and that's what this is um another takeaway from this movie and i have don't remember the last time i've either seen this live or in a, in a movie but man fucking bobbing for apples is disgusting disgusting <laughs> and like i don't know if it, certainly no one's doing it anymore now but wow what a gross concept because people are bobbing for apples in this but yeah sticking your face in like a fucking thing of water that other people have like had their faces in and like trying to bite on an apple is really gross yeah so i did think of that when i was watching this um there's a few things that are a little inconsistent there's some stuff with a cave in this and and, you know, if you start thinking about where, when Belloc's sleeping and where, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But overall, I, I thought this had a lot of really good atmosphere. It was pretty cool. Um, like I said, you can get it on this MGM um, double feature, which is probably out of print now. Um, the only other place to get it, a lot of those movies on those MGM features came out on Screen Factory four packs, mm -hmm. um, kind of mixed up with other stuff. But this one, unfortunately, did not make that journey. Um, however, Olive put it out on Blu-ray. Uh, but the Olive films, are, I don't even know if Olive's still a thing, to be honest. But um, but they're uh, getting harder and harder to find. But you can still find the Blu-ray for like 20 30 bucks if you look for it. So if you're a fan of classic horror, um, I would totally recommend this one because this is probably one you've maybe never heard of. And uh, it's definitely worth seeking out if you if you like draw vampire movies from that era. So that's The Return of Dracula. Boring title, but pretty cool movie. Yeah, I found a lot of the stuff that MGM put on those midnight movie packs were pleasant surprises actually and you're right a lot of them did come out from shout but shout and also shout had a a, a subline called timeless classics right which put some of them out too but it's like a lot of those ones that are didn't make the move over i've been trying to get a hold of like the original mgm midnight movies and they're friggin expensive now some right? are some aren't yeah and it's, it's really annoying that like they would take like the the va the vampire, which is on the other half, the other feature on here, is on one of those Shout Factory ones, and I've noticed it with other ones as well. Like there'd be like, um, there's one where it's like Voodoo Island, and then the Four Skulls of v Jonathan Drake. That one made it onto a uh, one of those four packs, but Voodoo Island yeah. never made it. It's very strange. I don't know yeah. how they made those decisions, but um, but I always it always. You know, I, I hate to diss on a company, but whenever I find out something was probably Olive, I'm annoyed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, know. yeah. Like, I, I, Olive does not good work. <laughs> well, I think the restorations are okay, but they don't do anything in the, no. in the form of extras. No, I, I think Olive actually don't even do restorations. I think those are what MGM gives to them. I think that's their, oh, I think really? that's their HD transfers. Yeah. 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like, I appreciate any company that's putting stuff out, but I just, I don't just do a little bit, you know, like, just do something. And, like, they're expensive. They're hard to come by. Like, I know. I, I, I mean, put Christopher Collette on first, on your firstborn Blu-ray. He's probably not doing much. Well, and Roller Boogie is, like, the one that really bothers yeah. me. Because like, he, like, like, he can tell you. Maybe Christopher Collette can tell you if he came up with that line, hip isn't hip anymore. You don't know. Exactly. So yeah, that's this is that's the only way to see this one. Um, although you know, hot tip, you can probably maybe watch it on YouTube if you look for it. So that's another that's another place you could probably find it. (laughs) My most sought after midnight movie double feature right now is actually the trip and psych out. Yeah, that one's pretty hard to come by. Like that one's pretty pricey. And I think I don't even know if either one of those have made it to another movie. Uh, I'll Maybe put trip. out Psycho, I Did believe. They? And Psycho also might be available on a uh, European release. Oh, okay. Okay. Because that's the movie. One. I'm actually more movie. I'm more interested in that one than the trip, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. And it's it's really good. It's worth checking out. Yeah, even though Roger Corman did do LSD when he before he made the trip. But that's <laughs> yeah. another story. I've never seen the trip because I don't like super drug movies. Yeah, Psycho. It's like a nice. It's a good little story about this woman moving to San Francisco and meet all the people she meets, and it's pretty cool. I like it quite a bit. Yeah, I've been curious about that one. I'll have to see if there's a European release since uh, I'm region free after all. Yeah, Um, yeah. So let's go into (laughs) the crossover event nobody wanted, and this is a movie that you've talked about. I, I I'm pretty sure you've talked about it. It's Lake Placid versus Anaconda. From, oh, from, fuck. From yeah, I've talked about it. All right. So, uh, judging from Letterboxd, I liked this a little bit more than you. <laughs> not much. You think? Not, <laughs> not, not, not much. Just a little bit. I don't know if there's bit. much to like on this one, but. So, this is going to be really fast. I don't want to waste too much time. Um, any movie that opens with a scene of Robert Englund with a fucking hook hand and a fake foot, I'm automatically wary. Like I'm super. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So the opening <laughs> scene is Robert Englund is like the quint of this movie, basically. Yeah. <laughs> who's working with these scientists to get a get a sample from one of the fucking crocodiles from Lake Placid to inject into an anaconda, so that the anaconda can have mutated babies. They never really explain why the scientists want to do this, but it just seems like a terrible idea because they're in like this fenced in area in their like scientist van thing doing the experiments and the scientists are cracking unfunny jokes. And all of a sudden, you know, of course, the creatures get free and there's this really bad CG going on and, you know, Robert Englund gets away, but so do the uh, crocodiles and the anacondas. And then it becomes a mishmash of plots. So from there, we've got, you know, I'm like, this is going to be terrible. This, C- this CG suspect, this opening scene's awful. Then I'm like, okay, you gave me some nudity. So I'm, I'm okay right now. You just gave me a little bit of nudity because you've got girls romping on a beach before they get eaten. I'm like, okay, fine. And then you've got a bunch of attacks going down. And like, yeah, there's CG attacks. They're kind of bad. This is a sci-fi movie, whatever. But then you got Yancey Butler showing up, returning from the other movies. And you know what, dude? She's the sheriff of, of, of the town. I actually liked her in this. 
she's she's what carries these movies like, too. I, that's, I, I don't know what that says about this like, franchise. But. but she was super dry and sarcastic in this. And mm-hmm. I liked that. I was like, yeah, she's okay. Because I remember yeah. not really liking her in like, I think she was in like some of the Anaconda movies. Like this. Yeah like three I, and four no, it was the uh it was the lake plaza movie yeah i'm just like i i don't really like i'm not a big fan of hers but in this i'm like yeah she she seems to just be have that attitude like fuck it i know what i'm in i'm just gonna go for <laughs> exactly. it like that's what it felt like so she's the sheriff and then we've got Corey Corey nemec aka corky nemec from back in the tv days parker lewis can't lose among other yes. things as the fish and wildlife officer who has to team up with yancey butler sheriff to try and stop the rampaging anaconda and crocodiles and then in between there you've got the scientists trying to track them down you've got a bunch of sorority pledges on the beach getting chewed up and then you've got a showdown a horrible cg showdown between anaconda and crocodile and people getting eaten and that's the movie um but i didn't like this um, but the stuff that was outside of the CG and the attack scenes, I kind of did like. Like, I liked the Yancey Butler stuff because she was super sarcastic and dry. I kind of liked the fact that the sorority pledges were there because the chick who's like running the pledges is this bitchy chick called Tiffany, played by Laura Dale. And she's just such a stereotypical sorority girl like that bitchy like my daddy owns takes me to rodeo drive shopping kind of mm-hmm. stuff i actually kind of liked her i actually thought she was kind of funny and i and i actually thought the movie on a whole had a pretty good sense of humor about itself like i think they knew by this point that they couldn't take this shit seriously so they decided to put a little bit of humor into it and i appreciated the humor because it helped make this slightly better than i was expecting and it helped the pain of all that shitty ass cg not be as painful because i was actually like kind of enjoying the interplay between the characters in between you also had this goth girl played by ali eagle who i kind of liked and then the deputy played by oliver walker who was totally inept and yancey butler kept getting mad at him for being inept i liked him too so it's like i like some of the cast and i felt like the cast knew they were in a shitty movie and just decided to have fun with it. And that's why I found this more watchable than Lake Placid 2, which is the last Lake Placid movie I had seen, and more watchable than Anaconda 3 and 4. It's not good. Don't get me wrong. There's not much to like here, particularly, apart from those characters and the fact that they're goofing on each other. If you took out all the monster movie elements in this, are shit. Like, the CG is garbage. Robert Englund is garbage. Like, it's just, it's not good in that sense. But I liked all the interplay between the characters. And I liked that you could tell the cast knew what they were in and just had fun with it. So I'm not recommending Lake Placid versus Anaconda. But I am going to tell you I was slightly surprised to enjoy it more than I was expecting to. But by enjoying, I mean, I didn't want to pull my, bash my head against the wall like most of these sci-fi creature features. Yeah. But it's not good. <laughs> I let that one go long ago, my friend. <laughs> to say that Yancey Butler is the best thing in this is something. It really <laughs> she, is. She does an okay job. Yeah. And, like, what the fuck is with Robert Englund? Don't, don't, don't I don't want to talk about Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, dude, he's going to show up again later. But yeah. Robert Englund is my number one person on my letterbox and as my most, most watched actor. And it drives me crazy. Yeah, but mine's Lynn Shea. 
I gotta watch another Danny Trejo movie. Just mine's Lynn Shay, dude. I know, dude. <laughs> mine's no better. Uh, Lynn Shay's a little better. I I don't know, man. <laughs> I was thinking about. I'm like really outside of Freddy, and like the guy from the character he played on V. Does anyone really like Robert Englund's performances? <laughs> And he wasn't very nice to me when I met him at a con, too. Like, like seriously, like, do people like Robert Englund, like, for his acting? Yeah, they like, this is my favorite actor. He's pretty good on V, actually. Or did, like, well, I said V. I said yeah, yeah. Elm Street and V. Like, did people actually be like, I can't wait to see this movie. Robert Englund's in it. I don't think so. Like, Has he ever been in, like, an actual movie? He was like in a, this- a non-horror movie? A non-horror movie, Jesus! I don't think so. Has yeah, he? Oh, Fort Fairlane. But he's not lead. Like he wasn't. Well, like he's a... he's the he's the he's the secondary villain in it, though. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, like the main villain was like. Uh, who's the main villain? Like, has he ever been in like a drama? <laughs> That's what I'd like to. I don't know. Like in Fort Fairlane, Wade Newton was the main villain. Oh yeah, and he was like the the henchman, like the main henchman with the bad Australian accent. Hello, hello, hello! Like he was okay in that, but really, when I see his name in a credit, I'm kind of like, uh oh. <laughs> Although he That's was okay, he was okay in that that movie that he was in with Casper Van Dien that I watched not long ago, that Windfall. Oh yeah, that friggin' we're gonna rob a casino while there's a while there's a, a hurricane going on. Oh yeah, that's a good reminder not to watch that, so I don't want to. So I don't boost up his. Uh, <laughs> Did I give you that? Yet? I have my own copy. <laughs> oh Jesus! Sorry, dude. All right. So so anyway, I can't recommend Lake Placid versus Anaconda, but I can tell you that it was better than I was expecting. But I also had the lowest fucking expectations humanly possible. Well, that reminds me. I'll have to dig up Lake Placid Legacy so I can finish the series. Because I've been, I went through all those in past episodes somewhere. Yeah, didn't they make another one after that too? Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. I hope. I not. think. I think that was the last one. For your sake, I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> the Lake Placid movies are almost as bad as the Children of the Corn movies. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'd say. What that. about Hellraiser? Oh no, the Hellraiser uh, and Children of the Corn are they're on par with each other. Well, there's also there's also like a hell of a lot more fucking movies to slog through. At least with Lake, at least with Lake Placid, there's only like five or six, I think. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Well, bring me something better. What do you got? Oh no! Don't say bring me something <laughs> okay, better. Bring me something different without Robert Englund in it. <laughs> bring me some uh, Danny Trejo. Is there any Danny Trejo? I don't have any. No, I'm uh, trying to avoid Danny Trejo right now. Too. <laughs> okay, let's go completely away from the country and let's go to china okay. or hong kong and we'll uh, watch a we'll watch a, a asian action movie okay um so this is one from 2017 i just kind of threw it on it was on tubi uh, it's called the brink um directed by jonathan lee um hasn't directed a ton of stuff i think he ad'd a bunch of stuff but not a lot as a director was this a tubi roulette i uh, know well oh. I, it was not not real no this was more of a 
I want to watch an Asian action movie. What's uh, what's between ninety minutes and one hundred and twenty minutes? <laughs> and it was in it was in my watch list. So. That's usually my my uh, my agenda is I want to watch a horror movie. It's got to be between eighty five and ninety five minutes. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so this one, um, this one actually really, I was, I'm really kind of glad I want, I've watched all the Yip Man movies now because, um, it's, this actually has really just researching this one really made me realize just how, um, how the, how big the Yip Man movies were and how many kind of, it's one of those series where there's so many actors that have kind of popped in and out of that series. So in this one, there's like three actors from three separate Yip Man movies show up in this, um, so I, it was kind of nice to be able to recognize a number of the actors. Um, so this uh, opens up with a pretty stylish uh, opening fight sequence in this um, kind of like high rise. This, this cop goes in, um, starts kicking ass of everyone. And uh, there's all this like kind of almost like um, almost like an Ar- Argento kind of color scheme as he's doing these fights. And then he ends up throwing someone out a window Um and that guy ends up dying. And then this is to all to establish that this, this character, this cop um, played by uh, Jin Zhang um, is a bad guy. Or it's like a kind of a reckless cop, like rigs and in, in lethal weapon or something. Right. Um, Jin Zhang is, or Jin Zhang is um, I've talked about him quite a bit when I was talking about him Man three, he's the guy that um, I really th- thought kind of stole the show in Ip Man three. And he also ended up getting the um, um, offshoot movie from Ip Man that he's got his own series now from the Ip Man movies that his character from Ip Man 3. So really impressed me in that movie. Obviously really impressed a lot of people seeing as he got his own movie series out of it. But he was he's the main guy in this. So I was like pretty happy to see him. Um, we then are, are introduced to this this bad guy named Guy Guy Cheng, played by Sean Yu, who was in. Um, he's been around quite a bit. He was in like Dragon Tiger Gate with uh, Donnie Yen and uh, Legend of the uh, Fist. Uh, but he's a really bad guy, and he's this. Um, he's he's working on this kind of fisher fishing boat uh, smuggling operation. And he's kind of not treated well by his boss and his boss's son. So he just kind of snaps and decides to go rogue and like ends up killing the boss's son um, and kind of threatening the boss and um, decides he's going to go rogue and go after this stash of gold that's um, buried under the, under the ocean. So our lead guy is kind of after him pretty much right off the bat. And uh, it's pretty rad. So there's a whole bunch of it's this is one of the it's kind of a set piece movie. Like the plot's good, but it's basically this bad, this kind of rogue cop after this really fucking bad dude. And it's just them going through different set pieces to get to the finale. And that's okay. I don't mind that sometimes. I mean, uh, particularly when I'm going to, going to watch a nice uh, tight Asian action movie, I'm kind of that's kind of what I'm looking for. And this certainly delivered. It was a little over the top though. Um, so where the Ip Man movies, you know, had a nice plot and were really building characters and stuff like that. This is just like action scene after action scene. And it was there by really good action. Um, there's like, uh, there's a pretty great fight under a, under a freeway overpass where our hero is trying to like, uh, find his partner who's been kidnapped and is 
um, apparently uh, attached to a bomb that's going to go off within a certain time period. But while he's searching for his partner in this kind of car junkyard, he's handcuffed to another guy and there's assassins coming in to take him out. So he actually has to like fight handcuffed to another dude, which I've never seen before. So that was pretty rad. He's like, like doing flips and stuff while handcuffed to this other guy. And pretty awesome. So I see you guys in handcuffs, but never handcuffed to someone else. So that was pretty cool. Then they end up going, trying to find the gold. They, um, there's a big underwater fight scene like Thunderball, but actually pretty, pretty exciting. Um, <laughs> and then the whole thing um, culminates in this um, sequence where they're on a boat in the middle of a fucking typhoon and they're having a fight on the deck of the boat. And it's pretty rad as well. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about with a lot of action movies, they always seem to end up in warehouses or on boats, and this is no exception. <laughs> but again, haven't seen a big fight in the middle of a fucking typhoon. Kind of reminded me of the end of, it was either Street Fighter 1 or Street Fighter 2, where there was all this rain and Sunny Chiba was like fighting. Kind of reminded me of that a bit, except the boat's kind of going back and forth and, and shit's falling everywhere. It was pretty good. Also, the villain has this dart gun, kind of like a very small version of the thing that... Uh, Javier Bardem uses in No Country for Old Men. Um, so that's kind of his uh, weapon of his killing weapon of choice, which was pretty great. Um, the villains also got this sidekick who um, her thing is, and I, I couldn't quite figure out what it was, but I remember seeing a YouTube video where if you put Mentos in Pepsi, it like causes an explosion. Mm-hmm. So she's got these bottles that kind of look like that. So she's like, putting something in this bottle and then throwing it and the bottle explodes and she's using that as her weapon. And there's, there's a pretty cool scene in a um, kind of a mall slash uh, fish market where she's throwing those bombs everywhere. That's pretty cool. Um, Back to Ip Man for a minute. Um, Our lead guy, um, Jin Jang's partner is played by an actor named Yu Wu, who was in Ip Man 4. And, um, uh, as one of the main the main kind of good guys in that one who ends up fighting Scott Atkins. And he also fights Donnie Yen in that. And then another character is um, the police chief is uh, played by Gordon Lamb, who was uh, a cop character in the first Ip Man movie. Uh, so all these Ip Man connections. So I'm again, it was kind of cool seeing all these guys pop up. But yeah, I, I didn't have high hopes for this one. I didn't really know what to expect, but um um, this was a pretty cool little find on Tubi. Um, so very easy to see. But like, you know, if you if you like the new Asian action movies, um, this one's, like I said, a little more over the top, but it has some pretty great, um, great action sequences in it. And uh, it's well worth a look for sure. So that's nice. the brink from 2017. I don't understand the warehouse boat thing, but hey, it wouldn't be an action movie without it. Yeah, um, and a boat and a typhoon is a nice twist. <laughs> that's, that's true, and at least there wasn't hallway fights. <laughs> uh, there was some. There was. A, there was actually a really good hallway fight in this. Really, as well. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think that. hallway fights were possible to be good, but okay. oh no, this was a good. This was a good hallway. He's a good hallway fight in Old Boy as well. Uh, I guess so. I guess so. Okay. And uh, what I saw with a girl recently. Fuck, what was that one? Um, villainous the first person one villainous yeah that had a really good hallway fight oh okay okay yeah. so so i guess hallway fights can be done well by the asian 
community. That's but, true. Uh, but not by anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so before I go on to my next movie, I'd just like to apologize to everybody that uh, I was looking at what's coming up and I don't really have much good coming up. So I just want people to not get their hopes up that there's going to be this un- this hidden gem amongst my movies because there isn't. Because you have to remember, I was on holidays. And usually when I'm on holidays, I don't watch the best things in the world. So let's segue into a movie from 2020 called Fatal. So Fatal, <laughs> this is another throwback. African-American centered thriller from the directing writing team of Dion Taylor and David Lowry. They previously made a movie uh, last year called The Intruder, which I talked about on the show starring Dennis Quaid as a creepy guy who sells his house and gets obsessed with the, with the wife of the black couple who bought it. Um, so this is basically another one of those pretty people, R&B tunes on the soundtrack kind of thrillers. So we're introduced to this guy, Derek, played by Michael Ely and his wife. Mm-hmm. And they're super successful. You know, they're, they're good at their jobs. They have a fancy place to live. And, you know, they're like, you know, but they have a little bit of like, you know, animosity with each other because things are not going quite the way they want them at the time. So they have a fight right before he's set to go off to Las Vegas for a bachelor party. So I'm like, here we fucking go. Typical setup, right? They had a fight. He's going somewhere where, you know, abundance and bad behavior is pretty much a normal thing if you look at all the ads and movies and stuff so and the movie's also playing on the whole we've been married for seven years let's have a seven-year itch kind of cliche so all that's going on so while he's in vegas he's at a he's at a club uh after hanging out with his buddies and he meets this girl val played by hillary swank and you know they kind of they kind of get along with each other really fast and yes they go and they fuck each other So basically he's in Vegas and he's had this affair with Hillary Swank's character. And I'm sorry, dude, but I really do not buy Hillary Swank as a sexy psycho chick. I really don't. I can't stand her. I just can't see this. I can't see this. So anyway, he's, he's, he has an affair basically with this Val chick and he goes home And, you know, he's at home. He's trying to keep this whole thing a secret from his wife or whatever. In the middle of the night, somebody breaks into his house. There's an attempted robbery. They call the cops. The detective arrives on scene to, you know, investigate. And guess who, Josh? Who do you think the detective is? It's Val. Because she was in Vegas for the weekend as well. And the reason she was in in Vegas for the weekend is because, oh, look, everybody, Val's coming from a broken marriage and she has a daughter in a wheelchair who's in the wheelchair because one night she left her service revolver out and the girl shot herself and now she doesn't have access to her daughter so now she's a little bit on edge and she needed to go to vegas to have sex with some stranger to unwind so from there it becomes this whole thing of that's how i unwind actually going to vegas no, I had to have sex with strangers all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I need to unwind, yeah. Like when I need to unwind, I just go to Hastings and have sex with strangers. In <laughs> Vancouver area, you'll get that joke. Um, so anyway, so you know, he's trying to get her valves. He's like, she's like the verbal barbs begin where she's like, "Oh, you're married, huh? You never told me you were married. What would happen if I told your wife what we did?" kind of thing so all these verbal 
barbs are going on and it's like totally formula and goofy and fairly competently made but then they decide that let's throw in another twist and this is a spoiler and i don't care because i don't really think anyone should watch this they throw in another twist where it finds out that val points out to to uh derek that his wife is having an affair with his best friend oh so then she starts using that as manipulation on Derek to try and get him to do things for her. And it becomes this whole bogged down and all these twists and everything. And I'm like, why didn't you just leave this as a fucking crazy girl movie? Yeah. Why didn't you have Swank's character kind of being like, I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to ruin your life. And then setting it up to ruin his life. Instead of being like, look, you look, your wife's just as much of a fucking scumbag as you are by having an affair. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to manipulate you both now and use you both to my advantage so I could try and see my daughter again, even though I left my fucking gun out. It's my fault that she's crippled. Here you go. So, you know, it's really like it's trying to be different than a crazy girl movie, but its delivery is so typical that I'm just like sitting there going, what the sounds terrible. It's not good. It's not good. And like I said, I can't handle Swank in this role. Right. Like, why is she here? She won a fucking Oscar. Yeah. Like, she won for Boys Don't Cry. Why is she in a fucking 2020 movie that feels like it belongs in the early 90s, but doesn't do anything? Wasn't wasn't she in the... um, She was in The Hunt. The Hunt. I think she's... I I don't know if she's got a... I think she's got a bit of a reputation for not being easy to work with. Hmm. I think she's one of the, I don't know if that's for sure, but I think that might be why. Cause I remember she was also in that horror movie, the reaping not right. long after she was in boys don't cry. And I was like, why is she in this? I mean, she well, was she in a million dollar baby. Exactly. She yeah. was a million dollar baby too. I'm like, why are you in this fucking not? That, that's probably why I think she's probably not able to get jobs. Cause she's it, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? But this is just a lame wannabe nineties thriller. And we've been talking a lot about 90s thrillers lately on the show because we've been like kind of going back and watching some of them. And some of them have been turning out okay. This one, it's like it's like the low end of those kind of movies. So this would be like, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. No, fuck, Poison Ivy's better than this. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm just trying to think of like one of those crazy girl mani- manipulative kind of movies with affairs and like double crosses like like obsessed yeah this is probably on the level of obsessed for me and i don't like obsessed i know you do yeah i don't really i haven't seen it so long so i like michael ely quite a bit how is he in this he's terrible really he's terrible that's too bad like all he on this movie literally dude this is his acting in this movie he walks through the whole movie with this pained i'm gonna be sick look on his face Basically, that was the only expression he had for almost this entire movie. My life's gonna be ruined. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's kind of what he was doing. Too bad. And and like Swank, she really wasn't. She wasn't that bad. I'm gonna be honest. She wasn't that bad in this. But again, why is she in this? Yeah, I really don't get this new revitalization of like bad 90s thrillers that's going on lately like this and the intruder from the same team who made this and then that 
unforget what's it called? Unforgettable, the one with Katherine Heigl as the crazy girl. <laughs> it's all these actors who are known to be difficult. Yeah, and they're they're all just <laughs> popping up in these like crazy girl movies that belonged in the nineties and shouldn't be getting made these days. Like, because if you pump them out onto Netflix as like a new release, it would probably get watched all the time. Yeah. Because of name recognition, right? Yeah, this is it's 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 not terrible, but it's not good. And I mean, honestly, the only reason I watched this was because I was like, oh, it's a crazy girl movie with Hillary Swank. And then also I was like, but why do I want to see a crazy girl movie with Hillary Swank? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, I was like, oh, it's those guys who made that movie, The Intruder. That was okay, I guess, because Dennis Quaid was in it being a nut, nutty fucking guy. I'm like, what's Dennis Quaid doing in The Intruder now that I think about it? <laughs> it's it's a really weird, weird, weird thing. Uh, Fatalis, not great. It's not awful, but I mean, like if, if you're curious and it pops up on Netflix, yeah, sure. Whatever. But yeah, yeah it, it's, it's not that great. It's not that great. So fatal, everybody. All right. Well, seeing as you have a lot of stuff you didn't really like, I'm going to get my one that I <laughs> thought was mediocre. Josh is propping you up this episode, people. I am not. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So I will talk about this one. It's <laughs> And this is one of those $5 Walmart dump bin jobs. Mm. And I was like, I've had it forever. And I'm like, why do I own this? And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And that way I can decide if I really need to keep it. So, so we have like, we have like $5 Walmart dump bin movies and we have Dollarama movies. <laughs> well, the Dollarama days are over, which is really sad. And these are and, all ones that just sit on the shelf for like four or five years. And I remember we're so excited to get them in those dump bins when we saw them. Remember we used to go to the Dollaramas at Halloween. We'd be like, oh yeah, look at all these 250 these two dollar fifty cent horror movies, and we'd like walk to the counter with like stacks of like twelve of yeah, them. I remember having like a fucking basketful. And you know, if they had like, um, if you could buy these online somewhere with free shipping, I would have so many. Like if I if there was a website where you could just buy all these like, you know, three dollar titles and mm. have them and order as many as you want, I'd be buying them by the hundreds. So 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 what's what's this what's this one? This is called Grace the Possession from 2014. I have no idea what this is. All right. Directed by Jeff Chan. So, you know, Hardcore Henry? Yes. You know how it's first person? Yes. Well, picture a horror movie, possession movie, where the possessed person is the first person. So this is, movie it's entirely (laughs) shot. Well, Aside from a couple of scenes, it's in pretty much entirely shot from the perspective of this woman named Grace, who's possessed by the devil. This, this sounds stupid. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, the whole movie is just it's first person. It's like, a priest running at her with a cross. The power of Christ compels you. <laughs> there, That happens. Oh, um, no. So, it's, I guess you could say this is from the devil's point of view, but it's through the eyes of this girl, Grace. Okay. Played by Alexia Fast, who, um, what was she in? I seen her in something recently. Oh, Triple Dog. She was in that Triple Dog movie. Um, so it's her, and you don't really see her very much because it's all through her eyes. So you see, you know, people interacting with her, but it's totally first person. And um, yeah, it was kind of weird because I'm like, you know, she's like kind of a, not, not a name actress, but she's 
you know, I knew who she was, but you don't actually see her except if she like happens to walk by a mirror or something. Now I will say the mirror sequences in this were kind of cool. Like they were sequences where I, I'm like, you know, cause you're in this first person thing. And then when she goes to a mirror, like you can't see a camera. So I thought that was a pretty cool trick. I'm actually still not quite sure how they did it. So that was kind of neat, but I think Alexia fast actually, held the camera for most of the so she was basically the cinematographer mm-hmm. um so it opens with her getting possessed um she is in she's um got a very you know heavy-handed religious upbringing um she lives with her grandma played by your favorite lynn Shay, <laughs> and uh she ends up the beginning of the movie has her going to college so She's at college. She meets her roommate, Jessica, played by Alexis Knapp. And uh, she's interacting with different people there. She has you know, this guy that's interested in her. She goes to a party and gets drunk. And again, this is all first person. And I was kind of with it through all this stuff. Um, I mean, there's a few things that happen where it's like fake outs where like she thinks she saw something or she thinks something happened. And then, you know, it'll like, go backwards and it's like oh that's not what really happened what some of those things that go on and i'm not a fan of that stuff but for the most part the college stuff i was actually kind of kind of into i'm like okay i can i can kind of go with this conceit it's not found footage but it it is like hardcore henry which is not something i enjoyed for an entire movie now what happens is after a certain point in the college time so i'd say probably a third of the movie she ends up getting picked up by her crazy grandma played by Lynn Shay and brought back to her Lynn Shay's house and taken away from the college. And this is when I was kind of like bummed out. Cause I'm like, Oh, you know, I was kind of, kind of into this, but ne- then it just became like this woman in this house uh, with the crazy grandma movie. And the crazy grandma was like trying to take her to the church to get like mm-hmm. the priest to talk to her and all that. And we're seeing it all through her eyes, but like all that kind of fun and excitement of being on a college campus was gone. It was just like walking around the house and, you know, quote unquote, seeing things when you go into different rooms. And then there's these two priests and then it tries to put some backstory with the priests. One of the priests is played by Alan Dale, TV character actor that you'd know. And the other one was played by Joel David Moore. If you're a fan of the movie Dodgeball, you know him. And um, um, he's been in, he's been in quite a few things actually. Uh, Avatar being one of them. He's gonna, actually going to be in all the Avatar sequels. Side note: Who fucking cares? Nobody. About, why are they? James doing Cameron stuff? cares. He's the only one. No, like, are these going to do like legit? Like, are these going to do well? Like, I think they will. But like, I, I'm blown away that they're doing four sequels to avatar is it four now i thought it was only four four can can james cameron at least fucking release the abyss and true lies on fucking blu-ray before (laughs) he does more avatar shit they at least put up movies that were good that he made i refuse to watch avatar i've never seen i didn't like the first one i thought it was lame i refuse and they're making four more like this this far this long after wasn't the second one supposed to come out like five years ago I don't know. I think it's coming out next year. Oh, fuck these movies. So basically the rest of the 2021s, there's an avatar coming out in oh, two years. Oh, fuck or the that. 2020s, sorry. Does Disney own this property? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, it. I just don't know. Like it, it just seems so ballsy to make four sequels when you don't know if the first one's going to do well. 
why did anyway. James? Why has James Cameron become such a fucking like egomaniac ever since Titanic? I think he's just obsessed with technology. But I mean, like he he made so many good movies early in his career, and then since Titanic, it's just like he's just got this like big ego on him now, and that's just like. Well, Titanic was really good, but like I didn't really like Titanic, but that's me. Oh, I thought I thought it was good for what it like for what it is. I thought it was pretty good, but I mean, I don't know what he's done. So, is it just Avatar? Is that all he's done? Av- yeah, I I think so, but I mean, like, look at his early filmography. The guy made Terminator One and Two. He made yeah. Aliens. He made True Lies. Yeah. He made The Abyss. Yeah, these are all good fucking movies. Mm-hmm. And then. I just don't know what happened to him. It's kind of curious. Like, why is he so obsessed with Avatar? I know. I just wish he wasn't like pissing away the rest of his career doing Avatar. Like, that's all that. That'll be it. Like, when he's done these Avatar movies, that'll be the end of. Like the first like, one. Came, retired. The first one came out in what? Fifteen years ago now, already. Yeah. Like, who's gonna give a fuck? Like, I just I never meet anyone that says Avatar is my favorite movie either. No. Like, it's just it's weird. No. Like, I never hear people talk about Avatar. Oh, I really loved Avatar. Like, I just never hear that. Anyway, it's very strange. Well, obviously, anyway. it did. It's the most <laughs> highest grossing movie of all time. So someone had to have loved it. Well, I think people watched it because it was that was when 3D was first starting, remember? And yeah, like, I get I kind of get why it did well. I mean, I went to it, but I just wonder um, how many people saw it multiple times like Titanic. Yeah, I wonder. Anyway, back anyway, to Grace. The sorry, fashion. people. <laughs> um, um, okay, so we've got, she's back in the small town trying to connect with these different priests. And then, you know, there's the inevitable big showdown at the end. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot going on here. Uh, you know, I was kind of, imp- I was kind of impressed at the beginning with just it being a diff- different, like I wasn't expecting the first, I didn't know that going into this. Because I was just like, why do I keep buying these possession movies? I don't like <laughs> possession movies, but I keep buying them. Um, so when I started it, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of neat, right? Like, this is different. Mm-hmm. And uh, But yeah, as soon as they got off that college campus, I just lost interest completely. And Lin Shay is kind of doing her thing. And um, yeah, I mean, aside from, you know, kind of those cool ca- uh, mirror tricks I talked about. Um, and, you know, it, it did have you know, kind of a, a neat ending, but uh, overall, I mean, this is a total, total skip unless you're burning to see what a first person horror movie would, would look like, then you could check it out. I mean, it's not all completely awful. I believe me, I've seen worse than this, but, um, but uh, definitely could have, I think could have been a lot better. I guess that's what I'll say about this. So I, I wouldn't go out of my way, but I mean, you could probably find it on streaming somewhere if you're kind of curious, but that's all I'm going to say about it. Grace to possession. Uh, so I don't quite get why you would decide to make it first person. Um, like you remember the movie doom. Yeah. With the rock. Yeah. Like it's not a good movie, but that first person sequence in it was rad. And I haven't seen it. Is there a, there's a long is it just it's one like te- yeah and it's like it's maybe 10 minutes long and it's rad so why would you i don't understand why you would think that would be good for 90 minutes mm-hmm. like i don't get it and and i also have a question remember how we were talking about has robert england ever done a normal movie has Lynche ever done a movie where she doesn't play like an eccentric fucking bat 
like a baddie eccentric woman? Like, has she ever done that? Well, I did. I have been watching the Critters movies, as you know, and yeah, the first Critters. I she guess she is kind of normal in those, but you know what I mean. There. I was surprised actually when I watched to see how normal she was. But I think ever since something, there's something about Mary or Kingpin, one of those movies. Mm-hmm. That's all she does now. It's yeah, just it's true. If, if they need a go-to eccentric woman, like old lady or whatever, they that's called Lynn Shea. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of irritating because every time I see her pop up in the movie now, I'm like, oh fuck. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt when she popped up in that. And I don't want to do that, unfortunately, but I have to because I'm just so tired of it. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um so Remember in 1988, there was a really surprise, successful comedy called Married to the Mob, directed by Jonathan Demme with Michelle Pfeiffer. The next movie I'm going to talk about is a movie that followed in the wake of that success, only incredibly less successful. And it's another mafia comedy from 1989 called Cookie. Now, Cookie is directed by Susan Seidelman. Susan Seidelman has made some pretty good movies. She made Smithereens. Mm-hmm. You know, she made uh, Desperately Seeking yeah. Susan. She made uh, Making Mr. Right, which I actually kind of don't mind. I mean, I know there's people out there who don't like that movie because it's John Malkovich as a robot, but I kind of like that movie. So she made this one. This one was also co-written by Nora Ephron. Now, Nora Ephron is responsible for what? Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle. In Seattle. Uh, you've got Mail. Silkwood. She wrote Silkwood, if you can believe it. She also wrote a movie called My Blue Heaven, which came out the year after this, which is also another mob-based comedy because it's Rick Moranis as the FBI guy who has to take Steve Martin's mafia guy into witness protection. So she was making like kind of a living for a couple years on mafia-based comedies, and this was the first one. So Cookie stars Emily Lloyd as the title character, and she's this really eccentric teen who dresses like a reject from Desperately Seeking Susan, I might add, who turns out to be the daughter of a mobster played by Peter Falk. Love Peter Falk, all the marbles, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, So he's about to get out of jail. She hasn't seen him since she was about five years old. And then she ends up having to go and see her dad. Now she's super rebellious. Her best friend's played by Ricky Lake. She's kind of, you know, this rebellious, fun teenager to watch. Falk's just there doing his thing. You know, he's being a kind of a mafia guy, being like that serious, like, look at my crazy daughter kind of thing, right? Diane Weist is playing the mom who's like, you got to really bond with your dad or whatever. So from there, she kind of gets a job being his, like, you know, his driver, his limo driver, while he kind of like gets back into the plot about him taking back the mob from Michael V. Gazzo, who's the rival Don, who took it over while he was in jail, while also trying to bond with his daughter, Cookie. And that's your basic plot of this movie. Um, so I'm just like, okay, fair enough. You want a, a, a mafia bonding kind of teenage daughter movie? I'm okay with that premise. Like, it's okay to me. But they're doing that thing that they do in these mafia comedies where it's like, comic book shenanigans and like polka type mob music going on under every single scene, you know, like where you feel like you've stumbled into a bad Italian restaurant that's playing that like polka type music. That's the Mm -hmm. soundtrack for this fucking movie. And I'm just like, come on, I'm getting irritated by this music. And everyone is such a big spoofy stereotype of 
what Hollywood thinks mafia families are supposed to be. So, you know, Diane Weiss is like over the top and putting wigs on all the time. And, you know, and Falk's wearing his trench coat and smoking the cigars and, you know, and all the bad guys are like, you go get him, you know, like all that kind of thuggish, like pre-Sopranos kind of goofiness going on. And it's purposely garish. And, you know, and I'm just like, and the plot, like the plot, I'm like, the plot is mostly about him taking back the mob. Mm-hmm. I honestly would rather have him bonding with his daughter. That stuff's not in there quite enough. Like Cookie's kind of fun to watch, but she's barely in this because it's mostly about him taking back the mob. Um, you know, so it's just like all these cliches and dumb jokes going on. And they've thrown in Adrian Pazdar as the love interest of Cookie, who's also like from the rival mob. And they've filled the cast with all these familiar faces. And it just doesn't really work that well. Like, it's just kind of 90 minutes of me just going, eh, whatever, here we go. Yeah. I've seen this before. Married to the Mob did this way better. Rinse, repeat. Mob comedies weren't that good in the, no. in the late 80s, early 90s. Like, there was like that one with uh, the crew with, with uh, Burt Reynolds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that great. You know, it got to the point where there was all these mafia comedies to the point that that they made a spoof movie called mafia that was kind of like a naked gun movie based on these kind of things. That's how oversaturated these movies got. And this one's forgotten. And I'm going to tell you, there's a reason this one's forgotten. There's nothing interesting in this. It, It just goes through the motions. It's not funny. It's got a pretty good performance by Falk. And I actually really liked Emily Lloyd in this. She really, she's an inter- one of those interesting actors where her career didn't go nearly as far as it could have due to personal stuff. She had mental health issues. You know, she ended up losing the lead role in Pretty Woman because she decided to do this movie instead. Uh, she, she was cast in the movie Mermaids with Cher and uh, Winona Ryder in that. And she ended up losing it because of her mental health issues. She was cast as the lead in tank girl. And same thing. She lost that role because of all of her personal issues. Um, she did not get along with Peter Falk on the set of this movie. And there was actually a story that Peter Falk slapped her at one time while they were filming this. Cause he was oh, so wow. ir- irritated with her. Um, she also did not get along with her co-star Bruce Willis in the movie in country that they made the year after this. But I'm just like, Bruce Willis doesn't get along with anyone apparently. So I could just imagine these two going tooth and nail mm-hmm. at each other. So it's really unfortunate that all this stuff went down because she's kind of cute in this and she's kind of, ditzy and fun to watch so it's it's really unfortunate that mental health is you know something that would derail someone who probably had potential yeah um but but aside from that this is just like a very forgettable movie from a decent filmmaker like seidelman's a decent filmmaker written by someone who i kind of expect this kind of crap from like, she's just like a schmaltzy Hollywood screenwriter. So I kind of expected that from this, to be honest. Um, I watched it on one of the movie channels. So, I mean, I don't feel like I was ripped off by like paying money for it, but it's pretty forgettable. And if you want to watch a mafia comedy, watch the one that started this brief trend and watch married to the mob. Jonathan Demi is a way better filmmaker than Susan Seidelman is. I mean, Susan Seidelman's a good filmmaker, but when you're given material like this, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. 
So that's Cookie. All right. Well, let's um, go over to Arrow and to H.D. Lewis territory again. Okay. And uh, this is what I have never seen before and was pretty hard to see, actually, called Moonshine Mountain Mm. from 1964. I will say right off the bat that this was a surprisingly rough print um, that they sourced. Um, But I think that it's a miracle that they even sourced anything um, from the disclaimer at the beginning. Um, It sounds like this movie was pretty much going to be a lost movie. So uh, even though it's kind of a rough print, I got to give props to Arrow for putting something together so this movie can live on. Um, So this is the first, um, I mean, we've now seen Blood Feast, uh, which of course is the first gore movie. We've seen um, Scum of the Earth, which is, you know, a pretty standard exploitation movie. And we've seen 2000 Maniacs. And now this one is going into... um, uh, exploitation um, it's kind of a comedy it's got a bit of drama it's got some music going on it's kind of all over the place this is a movie that was strictly made for the southern market and and it shows um, opening credits were pretty funny I've never seen anything like this but every credit had like a little quip about the credit like it'd be like cinematography by so and so and then it would be like bracket like the guy could even see anything, you know, mm. something like that. Like, um, so I thought, I thought it was pretty, pretty funny opening credits. The, the closing credits are similar. So that's kind of neat. I, I haven't seen that before, but it really set the tone for this. Um, we're introduced to this um, guy named Doug played by uh, Chuck Scott, AKA Charles Glore. Um, you might recognize him from 2000 Maniacs. He was one of the, um, the I can't remember what the band was called that play the music in the 2000 Maniacs. He also wrote the music for 2000 Maniacs. So that theme song that you're familiar with, it's the star of uh, Moonshine Mountain that wrote that. Um, so he's um, he's this country star, I think, and he decides he's going to do some research and go to a actual kind of hick town to try and learn more about the lifestyle of people in the south. Uh, so he kind of goes undercover and and tries to get to know the locals. And, you know, he's kind of walking around and he ends up getting his jacket stolen by this guy named Red, um, played by, again, another actor from 2000 Maniacs, uh, whose name I didn't write down, but he was one of the main rednecks in 2000 Maniacs. And then he stumbles across his family. Red's part of the family. We've also got their dad, Jeb, played by Jeffrey Allen, also from 2000 Maniacs. How many times can I say 2000 Maniacs? Um, But he was the mayor in that movie, um, who was quite memorable as well. So he's pretty great as the the kind of patriarch in this. Um, There's also a couple of um, sisters um, in the family. And I think there's, so there's the brother and two sisters. And when he, when, um, uh, Doug comes across them. They're kind of just doing like an outdoor musical jam. And uh, again, a pretty fun scene. I mean, I like kind of like random stuff like this. And, and um, you know, our lead character just comes in and joins them and they start playing songs together. Uh, one of the actresses um, named um, uh, Gretchen Eisner played a character named Mary Lou. And she's like, she plays her like, um, like she's got some sort of, uh, mental health disability and she's like 
um, kind of sucking on her thumb all the time and sucking on different people's fingers. And, but then she, all of a sudden she'll break into song and it's, it's pretty great. Actually. I really like the choices that she made in how to play this character. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, and she's, she's pops in and out throughout the plot, but, uh, is kind of doing the same shtick throughout, but I, I really kind of liked when she was on screen and definitely not playing a role, playing the role as an attractive person at all, but still pretty fun. Uh, we've got a neighbor named Ed um, who shows up and um, pretty much it's, it's, it's Doug getting to know this family. Eventually his New York girlfriend named Della decides to come to town and there's some conflict there. And there's also an evil sheriff, um, played by Gordon Ois Heim, who um, went on to be the lead in Color Me Blood Red. And of the H.G. Lewis movies, that is a performance I definitely remember not liking, but I thought he was decent as the um, kind of bad sheriff in this. Um, but yeah, there's, there's square dancing, there's moonshine, there's the biggest moonshine still I've ever seen. There's a bit of gore. There's uh, a few musical numbers. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of like this. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to, um, but I kind of like this. I, and I don't really like exploitation stuff. It's not a genre I'm drawn to, like even like White Lightning and Gator. Like, I've, it's just not something I really enjoy usually. Right. So I was surprised that I ended up kind of liking this. And I just think it's that tone of, of Lewis. Um, but I would kind of put this, it, it, it's just an entertaining movie that was made. And H.G. Lewis is famous for saying that. Like if a movie, he's, I think one of the first people says that like if a movie bores you, like that's a problem. And uh, he, he understood entertainment and he wasn't so worried about baking art, if you will. And I appreciate filmmakers that do that and are open about it. And that's what this does. I thought it was pretty entertaining for what it is had a kind of a lot of stuff that that checks some boxes for me as far as um, things I like to see. I do like seeing random musical numbers pop up. I do like stupid comedy. I do like seeing a little bit of gore. There's, you know, the, the sheriff guy's really sleazy, which I enjoy. Um, I mean, I wouldn't, this isn't quite on the same level as the other movies I've seen so far, but it's certainly not a slouch. And uh, I don't know, some people might differ on my on opinion on this one. But I, yeah, I thought this was pretty fun for what it is, especially for what I've never heard of and doesn't seem to have really any reputation at all. Hmm. Um, I thought it was a decent inclusion in the set and I, it would certainly be one I would probably revisit in the future. It's not a four out of five or anything, but um, but I'd give it a solid like, like three, probably a three out of five. Um, so yeah, Moonshine Mountain, not, not a bad entry in the good old H.G. Lewis set, which is uh, turning out to be pretty fun so far. I think I like exploitation movies a little bit more than you do. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I like thunder and lightning and stuff like that. But uh, I think, I think that kind of movie is due for a goofy tone. Like I think that would work. So yeah, I have this box set too. So I should, uh, I've heard of it, but I've, I didn't know anyone who had ever seen it. So you're the first person who's ever seen it. That I, know. <laughs> no, I don't think a lot of people have actually seen it. And I think like, and again, the reason I'm kind of going through the set the way I am is because I think it's very, you know, buying a set like this and then immediately just going to the go-tos, Gorgor Girls and Wizard of Gore and all that, and never watching these is pretty likely for a lot of people. So yeah. 
But um, I will say Jeffrey Allen, who played the, the dad and the mayor in uh, the other movie, um, kind of really made both these movies, in my opinion. Um, so he, he didn't make a lot of movies, but he really kind of dominated both of them. Um, and I, I don't know how these would have been without a, a kind of larger than life figure like that in them, because he really does kind of, he's what I think about in both, both movies. So good for him. And I, I think he pops up in a couple more HD Lewis movies. What's the other movie, Josh? 2000 Maniacs. I just wanted to get you to say it one more time, just because. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of Arrow and speaking of rough prints, Let's talk about my Arrow video entry this time. And let's talk about a movie from 1980 directed by Umberto Lenzi called Nightmare City, a.k.a. City of the Walking Dead. Um, so this That's is another one I'm kind of saving. <laughs> yeah, th- this, this is uh, Arrow has a disclaimer at the beginning of this saying, yeah, we've got this print. It's damaged at certain times. Just so you know, it's this is the best we could do because there is damage to the print. There's two versions on here. There's another one that's taken from a different source, but it's like, they say this is, doesn't have the damage on it, but the actual resolution is not as good. Hmm. So it's got two versions, like two different transfers on here, but I watched the one that was the damaged version. And I also watched the dubbed version of this because I, it's just oh, the way it's just actually, the, yeah, it it's the way I'm used to watching these kind of things. Like for something like this, you kind of got to. So anyway, they were this all post sync anyways, right? Like yeah, they weren't even recording sound on set. Yeah. So, th- so this is one that I've never seen before opens up with just like this really great opening music by Stelvio Capriani and like showing all these nuclear power plants and everything until it becomes like Fulci zombie right off the bat because it's like they're at an airport and there's this unknown plane landing and it's flying in and they're like where's this plane coming from what's going on why are they here so they the plane lands and all the you know all the cops and everything go up and and the soldiers go up to this base because it's a military base and they stand outside of the plane waiting and then the door slowly opens and out pops all these guys who proceed to like murder everybody on hand they murder all the soldiers they murder all the cops and they've got like this weird these like grody looking things all over their face and they're just attacking everyone and it's all this chaos going on and meanwhile off to the side there's this reporter dean played by hugo stiglitz a guy you're very familiar with lately from your mm-hmm. cardona junior sets and his cameraman who are just standing there watching all these people being massacred eventually they're like oh fuck we should get we should get out of here um, and then it cuts to the next scene. The next scene is a disco tinged dance number with a bunch of girls in leotards in a mo- in a television studio, just working out. And I'm like, what is this movie doing? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, this is Italian. This makes sense to me. Um, so from there, it kind of is like, just kind of jumps back and forth very randomly because this is kind of what these kind of movies do it's a loose script it's an italian horror movie they've set up their premise of these guys flew in turns out they're radiation poisoned and they're like you know they're scarred and they look like they've got mud splattered all over their faces and they're going around murdering people at random with weapons as well as tearing their throats out so i'm like okay 
you've set it up like that. They're not really zombies. They're just radiation poison guys who, you know, kill people. And, you know, then there's a major, this major Holmes played by Francisco Rabo. His first appearance is betting a naked girl and then having this weird conversation with her about this art sculpture she's made of her head, of his head. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is so <laughs> random shit going on. And then, of course, it just becomes a series of attack scenes, including one where these radiation zombies, I guess you'll call them, show up on the set of this dance show that we were seeing earlier, cuts one girl's boob off, gets TVs tossed at them that sets them on fire and just cause havoc in this TV studio. I'm like, okay, so you're ripping off zombie, you're ripping off Dawn of the Dead, you're doing all this stuff right now. And then they just seem to randomly attack people throughout the movie, but also relatives of all the generals somehow. Like literally every single relative of a general in this movie gets attacked. Like okay. even the ones who live in country houses away from all this stuff going on end up getting attacked. Like these guys have like homing devices to go after these generals relatives or something. I don't know. I didn't know what was going on for most of this because it's the script is just so randomly all over the place. Um, sloppy narrative. Eventually Stiglitz and his wife, Anna played by Laura Trotter flee the city. The military is tracking them down and it, and Again, random attacks leading to this really bad, bad finish. Like the finish is terrible, dude. Like terrible. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I haven't. I know Ed Brisson used to go on and on about how great this movie was. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> the ending is really bad. The ending is really bad. Um, so for what this is, it's okay. Like it's it's a ridiculous, over-the-top Italian not quite zombie movie with a bunch of guys in really poor makeup running around gorily, killing people with hatchets and stuff like that. Um, it's got the goofy kind of dub dialogue you expect. Like it's got these people in this house and they're like, they're like, well, I think I've done everything to, to keep this, keep these guys out of the house. And someone's like, I barricaded the coal hole to the cellar. And someone looks at them and they're like, what did you say? And they're like, oh, shit, I forgot to barricade the coal hole. I'm like, what the fuck is a coal hole? And they go down and they like close this flue in the basement because apparently that's what these guys can get into the house. And I'm like, where'd that come from? So it's like just this sloppy narrative with barely any focus on the leads. And like it has some moments like there's a scene where some guy's eye gets spiked out. It's pretty fucking rad. And the the boob being cut off is pretty great. And all the stuff in the TV studio with them ripping off Dawn of the Dead is pretty great, but it's just like, I was so confused through this whole thing about what was going on. Hmm. So that's why I didn't really think this was amazing. I thought it was okay. Yeah. So like the effects, I didn't note it. Hmm. Um, I just know that like, even like you're, you're, you're setting up this reporter to be the hero of the movie, this Hugo Stiglitz. And he's barely in the movie till the, like the last 20 minutes. Because it's just random people. Dudley with his beard again. He's got his beard. Yeah. (laughs) So, but yeah, I I think I wanted to like this more than I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't dislike it because there is some stuff in here that's good, but it just doesn't hang together. It just doesn't work plot wise. And I I realize that a lot of these Italian movies don't don't, Mm. but I'm kind of a stickler for at least some sense and there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of it going on in nightmare city to be honest with you so if you're into this stuff i'd say watch it for sure but for someone like me who's not really like super super into it i'd say pass 
to right. be honest. I'm glad I, I think s- it, I think it's kind of a must see if you're into the genre, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I saw it, and there yeah. is stuff to like in it, but it just wasn't my jam. I'd rather watch like Fulci Zombie mm. or something like that over this any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, there's some good stuff in here, but just not quite enough for my liking. So I think it's personal taste on this one more than anything. Yeah. So yeah, Nightmare City. All right. Well, uh, um, can you explain to me what why you said you're holding off on this one? Because like I, you know, I've seen all the main movies, so there's like a few that I'm kind of holding off on. Like this one, I haven't seen um, House by the Cemetery yet. Okay. Because I just kind of want. I don't want to watch them all. I want to kind of have ones that I can still like look forward to. So this is supposed to be like one of the main ones then. And certainly in my brain it is. Okay. Cause yeah. it, it's just one I grabbed in an arrow sale and I was like, Ooh, I've got all these movies sitting wrapped on my shelf. I might as well watch this one. Yeah. I'd say of like the, the zombie cycle. It's like zombie, the beyond um, house by the cemetery, nightmare city. And the one I'm going to talk about now. Okay. And what's that? Dr. Butcher, Medical Deviant. My God. <laughs> zombie Holocaust. AKA Zombie Holocaust. So this is not directed by one of the main dudes. This is directed by um, Marino Girolami, um, who the only movie I know of that he's done is Violent Rome with uh, Maurizio Merli. But another thing I did not know is that this director is Enzo Castellari's dad. Hmm. Uh, and Enzo Castellari, of course, went on to do 1990 Bronx Warriors and Inglorious Bastards and and uh, quite a few uh, genre movies that we are familiar with. So interesting that, that his dad later in his career made one of the more infamous entries in the kind of, you know, spaghetti splatter uh, movement of the 70s and 80s. Uh, have you seen Dr. Butcher? I saw it on VHS back in the day. Um, yeah. I remember being so drawn in by that poster yeah. and the fucking title. Yeah. Honestly, all I remember about it is basically the opening scene at the hospital. Right. It, which is actually, I think, add, added on footage, if I'm correct. No, the, the opening. Okay. So there, there's basically two versions of this movie. And <laughs> I will say I watched both. So yeah. So it's, um, it takes, it opens. Okay. I'll go with the Dr. Butcher version first. Um, so the Dr. Butcher version does have this tacked on footage that was um, taken from uh, a movie that was uh, directed actually by um, Roy Frumkus, hmm. um, uh, who made Street Trash and Document of the Dead. And there was this footage from that that um, Aquarius Pictures took and tacked on to the beginning of this, um, featuring this um, really bad zombie footage with a zombie named Snuff Maximus. And I remember that. I always remember that name because my buddy Ryan, Ryan Nicholson had a band and they were named Snuff Maximus. So that's where their band name came from. But anyway, it's this tacked on footage. And the other difference with the Dr. Butcher cut is there's all the score is different. So they go with this really kind of goofy, grating, terrible keyboard score um, as opposed to kind of a more traditional, you know, or like Italian zombie movie score. So those are the big differences. Um, but yeah, the Doctor Butcher cut opens with the Snuff Maximus stuff, which totally didn't need to be there. And um, the other cut just goes straight to the hospital. And there's a hospital where um, 
um, someone is basically stealing body parts and uh, they find out it's this, uh, you know, crazy orderly there. Um, and he ends up like kind of jumping out of a uh, jumping out of the window. But we're also introduced to this uh, nurse named Lori, played by Alexandra Delacali from uh, New York Ripper. And uh, it turns out she's not only a nurse, but she's also an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, she ends up to teaming up with our buddy Ian McCullough from Zombie. And uh, together they decide they're going to go to this island in the Caribbean or wherever to try and like figure out what's going on. I'm not quite sure how that happened. Um, it's one of those where you're just kind of trying to follow the, the logic, but doesn't really matter they're so a hospital she's also an anthropologist they go to a fucking island so she's pulling a lady terminator yeah but lady terminator was she wasn't a lady she was an anthropologist mm. this one is both a nurse and an anthropologist mm. <laughs> i guess so i guess so <laughs> so her and ian mccullough go off to this um island they also um are joined by um, his buddy George, played by Peter O'Neill, and also a intrepid reporter named Susan, played by uh, Sherry Buchanan, who uh, quite a beautiful woman who uh, had a very short run of movies, um, but they did include movies like The Heroin Busters and uh, Tentacles. So they get to the island. They then meet this guy named Dr. Obrero, a.k.a. Dr. Butcher, played by Donald O'Brien, who I've brought up before. He, he was a ghost house. He also was in Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. Um, And they find out that on this island, uh, we've got cannibals, which is great. Mm -hmm. We've also got zombies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we've also got a mad scientist. So it actually Mm -hmm. combines three great genres in one. And um, I actually think it's pretty fun. Like, I think it's more of a cannibal movie than a zombie movie because the zombies don't really do a lot other than stand there and look look scary and the cannibal attacks are pretty brutal but it kind of fails to meet kind of both genres though like this isn't on the level of like cannibal holocaust or cannibal ferox it's also not on the level of zombie or the beyond but it's still kind of neat that it tries to combine the two genres it also has a bunch of like kind of like tribal like sacrifice stuff going on so the best i could come up with is that it's kind of like a cross between zombie and eaten alive the Lindsay movie with a dash of a mad scientist going on so um that that would be a more apt i mean i've seen comparisons to cannibal holocaust and ferox no this is more like eaten alive because eaten alive is the one with uh, Ivan Rasimov as the cult leader and Janet Agran dressed, painted in gold. That's that's more what's going on in this one. And then I think they actually used some of the same sets as Zombie. And it actually had the same makeup artist as Zombie. Uh, well, two of the makeup artists from Zombie. Um, uh, Maurizio uh, Tra- Trono- Trani and uh, Rosario Pristopino. Uh, so that's why the zombies look a little bit like the zombies from Ful- Fulci's movie. Um, there's some pretty pretty gross stuff in this. There's a pretty gnarly cannibal attack where someone's eyes get ripped out. Uh, there's another one where someone gets like impaled on stakes and then their guts get ripped out. Um, there's a fucking boat propeller to the head that that's pretty infamous. Um, we've got um, a, a brain surgery where uh, someone oh, someone's head gets like drilled open and they're 
skull popped off and their brain exposed zombie attacks. The actual IMDb says that the locations are the same as Fulci's movie. Um, certainly the the kind of finale scene in that kind of um, quote unquote makeshift hospital that Dr. Butcher has created looks very much like the makeshift hospital from Zombie. So it's I think it's very likely that it's it's true that they were shot in the same location. I mean, this is just goofy fun, um, but I, I really did kind of appreciate the mix of the two the two genres but uh just not quite on the level of either of them but i'd recommend this now the other thing i'd recommend about this movie this um uh blu-ray from severin is it's got a zombie holocaust on one disc uh dr butcher on the other disc but on the dr butcher disc if you're a fan of like what it was like on 42nd street back in the 70s this disc has you covered. It's got a okay. So first of all, it's got an interview with Terry Levine, who ran Aquarius Pictures. His office was above one of the Grindhouse theaters on Forty Second Street, and it just he's reminiscing about the time period, and I it was fucking great. And then you've got another feature with Ray Frumkus and uh, Chris Chris Poggiali from uh, Temple of Schlock um, doing a walkthrough of Forty Second Street now. And talking about each of the theaters and showing like what they look like now. And then it shows what they looked like back then and how each of the theaters kind of had its own specialty. And I was fascinated. I'm so upset with myself that when I was in New York, I didn't check out the deuce, if you will. Um, but it was really great seeing these guys there and kind of getting a glimpse as to what it was like then and what it's like now. And I didn't realize that the theaters had different things going on like some of them were kung fu theaters some of them were art house theaters some of them were porn theaters and i didn't realize that but uh uh we also have an interview with a guy named rick sullivan who ran a zine called the gore gazette back in the day and he again also talks about running that magazine but also his experiences going into these theaters and watching the movies back in the day and it's pretty awesome as well so it's like super packed disc but with heavy leaning towards 42nd street in the 70s and it was fucking awesome so i would recommend this disc just for that just for the extras on the dr butcher disc on the zombie holocaust side there's a few decent extras on there as well we've got interviews with the makeup artists interviews with uh, an interview with uh sherry buchanan there's an interview with ian mccullough so so this is packed no commentary tracks but totally recommended just for the abundance of extras on this. Um, and yeah, if you've never seen Dr. Butcher, it's not great. Um, it's kind of like Nightmare City in that it's, you know, it doesn't make a ton of sense and it's not on the level of some of the other ones, but it's still, it's still pretty fun. And it's kind of a, another kind of um, a standard of, of that. Like if I had to pick a top 10, Dr. Butcher would be in there nightmare city would be in there for sure and um and there's just not not a i don't know if there's any other movies that mix cannibals and zombies together so um yeah i totally would recommend uh checking out dr butcher if you haven't seen it and definitely pick up that severin disc because it's uh it's it's a good one i was i was surprised at how much i enjoyed the extras i have that severin disc actually yeah i might have the barf bag in it too oh really yeah, I don't know if mine does. I haven't opened it yet. <laughs> oh, there's another feature at where they um, they they I guess they hired a um, 
flatbed truck to drive around New York to promote when the movie was opening. And they had like carnival barkers and like fake nurses on the truck and performing fake brain surgery and stuff. So there's a guy that the the, uh, Rick Sullivan guy talks about that, as does Terry Levine. So pretty cool seeing kind of images from that as well. So I I remember seeing uh, pictures of that somewhere online of the Dr. Mm -hmm. Butcher trucks driving down the street. Yeah. Uh, So did you say what the two differences were apart from that tacked on footage? It was the tax on footage and the score. And that's and, it. Um, there was one scene um, that takes place in a um, um, where Deli Colley fa- falls into this pit of spikes. But from my recollection, it was in both versions on these discs. But I think it was pro- I think it was cut out of maybe the Doctor Butcher cut. Oh, okay. Or you know, maybe no. I think it was the Zombie Holocaust cut. But I think now it's been restored. And the other thing I should note about this movie is it had shocking nudity in it. Like I was Deli Kali in this movie. I couldn't fucking believe like she got fully naked strapped to this wheel. Like it was, I was shocked. Like, and I'm not shocked by nudity very much. I guess I just wasn't expecting it. Cause she's like this beautiful woman. She's playing this anthropologist nurse throughout and then all of a sudden, she's captured, painted, stripped naked, painted with all these flowers, and then is naked for like the last 20 minutes of the movie. But it was more than you normally see in, in a movie. And I totally forgot about that part. But yeah, this is like exploitation to the max, but uh, but pretty enjoyable if you're a fan of, of the uh, Italian horror movies, for sure. So which version's the preferable version then? I probably would go with the Dr. Butcher version just because of the like it's it's just a bit wackier with that crazy um kind it's kind of annoying but it's kind of this crazy score with this like weird like it's almost like fucking casio keyboard stuff going on but it's like so it's totally like out of pulling a dynamite score it kind of makes yeah it just kind of makes it like more surreal or something i don't know they're they're both they're both decent man but if you know but if you're going if you're trying to just embrace the craziness of it all um i'd probably go with the dr butcher cut yeah i haven't seen this since like vhs when i was like 14 years old probably so it's like i've only seen it once on a on a like a like a fifth generation dub like from the tape trading days so yeah so i mean and if you saw a vhs it's probably cut right yeah it was like the paragon video one so it was the one with the added footage and it was probably cut back to i think it was like like i said i think it was like 70 something minutes long the yeah. version i saw so i don't but i mean of course i bought it in the severance sale yeah well this one's worth it for sure because why wouldn't i because i'm crazy like that but uh let's move on from all this all this like gore and people getting their brains ripped out and full-on like exploitive nudity and everything and let's go back to the uh feature films for families jams shall we oh no so so feature films for families so i talked about last time last time we talked about them was a little movie called the buttercream gang uh this time we're going to talk about gunther and the paper brigade from 1996 um thing is this is better made than buttercream gang because this is not an actual in-house production by feature films for families um it also is edited apparently oh 
So the version I watched here is 75 minutes, but it was also apparently released on VHS in a 90 minute form and aired very uh, with, with great steadiness on the Disney Channel back in the day, apparently. Wow. So I don't know what the differences are. I couldn't find out. I tried to find out. There was no real documentation on what was cut. I'm assuming there was probably something that was not Christian enough that got chopped out by feature families, films for families, but who knows? Um, so this one is about a kid named Gunther, played by Kyle Howard, and him and his family are new to town. So they've moved to town. And, you know, while they're there, they he meets the expected bullies and he meets the nerdy paper boys who like are take such pride in delivering the paper efficiently and on time every single day. And then, you know, he's also like you know, really bored with this new town because he's like, oh man, there's nothing to do here. I'm from the big city. This is a small town. He's bored to the point that he's lying on his bed shooting ping pong balls from his mouth into the chandelier above his bed. And I'm like, dude, you shouldn't show me scenes of people shooting ping pong balls out of any orifice because my mind's instantly going to go into the gutter. So, you know, my mind was in the gutter during the scene. So he, he meets this girl that he likes at the mall and he wants to super impress her and he finds out that she likes this band that's coming to town. So he needs cash to get tickets to the concert. So what does he have to do? He has to fill in as a paper boy because one of the regular paper boys has gone away for the summer and it's all about Gunther and his paper brigade delivering papers so he can make money to take a girl to a concert but also having to take on the bullies and goofiness ensues. Um, and you know what, dude, I actually enjoyed this one. I'm not going to lie. This is a pretty charming little family movie. I got to say, um, you know, the director likes to have fun warping everyone's faces during this movie. Cause I guess he thought it was funny. I was like, okay, do, do your thing, man, do your thing. Cause there's scenes, many scenes of people like, being reflected in something like a funhouse mirror. I'm like, do your thing. That's fine. Um, there's a pretty great scene where he's forced to get up at 5.30 in the morning where his little brother comes and like, basically his little brother has to come at 5.30 in the morning every morning to wake him up by like jimmying the lock on his door with a credit card and then dragging him into the shower. So the first scene is he drags him into the shower and he turns on the shower, cue the psycho music. Because he's getting thrown in the shower, Gunther screaming, and a fucking puppet groundhog popping out of the grass in front of the house going, what the fuck's going on, basically? And, really? they, and they use that joke multiple times of the groundhog popping up and being shocked at him being screaming at 5.30 in the morning. And it's a hand puppet, and it's rad. Because <laughs> it's a hand puppet. Um, and then there's, you know, all this other stuff going on. Like, there's the stereotypical Asian milkman. So literally it's an stereotypical Asian milkman. Yeah. So is that a thing? I don't know <laughs> what I mean by stereotypical is. Okay, so, so Gunther meets up with the milkman because, you know, he's go he's ready to go into like the town hermit's house and the milkman's like, Oh, you don't want to go in there. That's crazy. So-and-so. And he's like, but he's like, then what do I do? How do I, how do I not go through there? He's like, Oh, you're going to have to go all the way around. So what I mean by stereotypical is he talks with that accent where he can't right. pronounce L's. Oh, okay. Got you know, it. that's what I mean. Not that he's a, a, mil a all Asians are milkmen. Just that, that's <laughs> just that, just that accent. So he shows up 
And then Gunther's like, forget this. I'm just going through the yard of this crazy guy, the neighborhood kook. The neighborhood kook turns out to be who, Josh? Robert England. Robert England. <laughs> Playing a guy who is has PTSD from the war, has set up his house to be like a fortress, shoots paint guns at Gunther, and also unleashes attack geese on Gunther, and it's fucking awesome. <laughs> okay. It doesn't sound awesome, but dude, when I'm watching <laughs> this, and all of a sudden, friggin' Robert Engel's like, unleash the heavy artillery, and he pulls a lever, and it opens a cage to geese that chase Gunther through his yard. I'm like, <laughs> okay, you got me. You got me on this fucking movie. I don't know why I'm enjoying this so much, but I am. Um, and then it, and then there's just like, uh, there's this scene where Gunther's like, how come you guys got all these monies from tips? I'm not going to be able to pay back the bullies I bought the concert tickets from unless I get all these tips. They're like, well, you got to be on time and you got to be nice to your customers and everything. So Gunther like gets up in the morning and he prepares himself and he sets up, he's like gearing up to go out and deliver papers that day. And it feels like it should be Evil Dead 2 because he's like showing close-ups of him gearing up. And I'm like, if he says fucking groovy at the end of this, I'm going to lose my shit. He doesn't, but I'm still like, this is great. And then he like goes out. There's all these attack dogs who come after him all the time. So he has the sausages in his pocket to throw at the attack dogs. And there's these kids who throw rotten tomatoes at him from their clubhouse. So he gets a shield and a mask and like, ha ha, I beat you. And all this goofy shit goes on. And I'm like sitting there going, you know what? This is pretty fucking charming right now. It had a good sense of fun. And it just like, and just the, 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 it just knew what it was doing. It knew it was a kid's movie and it knew it had all these goofy antics going on. And the kid, the lead kid, Kyle Howard was pretty fun as Gunther. And, you know, it ended with the, all the paper boys having to take revenge on the bullies who have stolen their paper roots because they want all the money. And it's just this goofy, fun 75 minutes that I quite enjoyed. And I actually quite enjoyed Robert Englund in this too. <laughs> I can't believe I said it, but I did. Because he's just this PTSD dude who's like going around saluting all the kids and setting up all these scams to go after everyone who goes through his yard and helps them beat the bullies in the end. Wow. So it's a better made movie than The Buttercream Gang. It's more entertaining than The Buttercream Gang. And it's actually a legitimately decent family movie. The Buttercream Gang is infinitely more entertain, like watchable because of how ridiculous it is. But yeah. this one is actually a pretty well-made pretty fun late nineties family themed comedy. And yes, Josh, it has the four questions on the back to discuss with your family. <laughs> in case you were wondering, what are the questions? Um, I do not know, but let me, let me quickly grab the DVD box because I know where it is. Hang on. There you go, Josh. I will read them to you. First of all, I'll show you the paper, the cover on Zoom. Oh, oh God. It's an awful cover. Um, so the parents guide for family discussion. Question one. Gunther's dad says the reason he pushes him so hard isn't to make him miserable, but to help him develop a sense of responsibility. How do you show your parents you're responsible? Okay. Number two. The other boys looked up to Gunther. So, but he let them down when he didn't stand up to the bullies. How do you stand up for what you believe in? Oh, that's a good question. Question three. Gunther makes his dad proud of him when he does well with the paper route. 
what can you do to make your parents proud of you? This all oh. seems to be going in the same circle, doesn't it? Smart. That's good. That's good. Number four, Gunther takes Miss Hansen to a ball game at the end instead of going to the concert with Allison. Spoiler, um, when you have you sacrificed something you wanted to do to help another person. What a loser. <laughs> you take the girl? No, he Who's goes Mrs. to the Hansen. She's this elderly lady who recently lost her husband and who is very not very mobile and can't go get her uh, papers. Okay, so he that, starts that so sense. he starts bringing her her papers to her door and she gives him cookies and talks about her dead husband how he loved baseball. So instead of going to the concert, she takes him to a baseball game because it was the their anniversary, her and her deceased husband's anniversary. That's a tough he, call. That's a so tough call. I would have probably done the same thing. Yeah, I'm not that I'm that. not that heartless. But yeah, it was it was just a fun, charming, lightweight kind of kids movie. And me and my girlfriend watched this together and we were watching it. We're like, you know what? This is actually pretty good. Like we both were like, this is a pretty like it's got a good message and it's fun and the performances are good and Robert Englund's enjoying himself. So yeah, I kind of liked Gunther in the paper brigade. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Doesn't mean I'm still not going to seek out this uh, feature films for families titles, like uh, No More Bats, which we talked about previously. <laughs> and then they have another one that I have currently on, uh, on my watch list on eBay called In Your Wildest Dreams about a kid who wins a million dollars and goes crazy with the money, not realizing all the problems it would cause him in his life by being greedy. Yeah, you know what? I, I know I said I said we should watch one together, but I, I think you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Let me let me just tell you that this was surprisingly decent and well made. Yeah. Because my expectations right. my expectations were were like another buttercream gang and I got Gunther in the paper brigade instead and I'm actually keeping this movie. So <laughs> wow! So there you go, there you go. But I'm also are keeping. You sell, are you selling the buttercream? Gang? I'm also keeping buttercream gang, but it's for, <laughs> en- but it's for entirely different reasons. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what's next? <laughs> All right. Well, Mill Creek's next. That's what's next. Oh, the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, it sure does, man. It sure does. Is this the same weird set that we don't know what it's called? It's the same. The weird. The weird. Like women-centered movie set. The set that doesn't know what it wants to be. Doesn't know what it wants to was be. It, maybe this wasn't legitimately released as a set. Maybe they just like threw a bunch of movies they had extra in there. Maybe, yeah. So what is yeah. it? It is a movie called Las Vegas Lady from 1975. Ooh, Las Vegas Lady <laughs> sounds sexy. <laughs> Directed by Noel Nosek, who of hey, course... Uh, private school, isn't it? No. 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 What did he make? He did Best Friends, which is a movie I quite liked. He did he did he did something you talked about recently. Deadly Deadly but Lovely or something like that, I think it's called, isn't it? I know I'll, you I'll look it up while you talk about it. Okay. So oh shit, I forgot to research this part. Okay, so it opens in this um it opens in this kind of with this kind of weird scene at this like kind of uh, tourist attraction outside of Las Vegas called Old Nevada. And it's one of those like Wild West attractions, like Knott's Berry Farm used to be before it became more of a theme park where like they have like, you know, gun battles going on in the streets and you go into the saloon and you can go into the different stores in the quote unquote ghost towns. It's one of those attractions. And um, Stella Stevens shows up there. And she's kind of walking around and she ends up going into the, I think the the wax museum. 
and uh, there's a mysterious figure in there. And what what is established in this opening sequence is that um, Stella Stevens is involved, going to be involved in this heist that's taking place at one of the hotels, and she's working with this mysterious figure to um, pull off the heist. And they kind of set the time of the heist and like that they're going to bring the the money or the whatever they're stealing to this old West town to uh, complete the transaction. Did you find them? Did you find the title? I did find the title and it was a movie called the killing secret, which was a TV movie. The one where Selene Mou Fry gets murdered and her friend (laughs) has to figure out who did it that I talked about on uh, recent, like not that long ago, actually. So I guess he went into TV, but he also had a pretty good run. Well, he made that theatrical movies. He made that King of the Mountain movie with Harry yeah. Hamlin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he made that movie Young Blood from 1978, which I'm super curious to see. So yeah, he did have a pretty good run of uh, yeah, yeah. stuff for decent looking movies. Okay. So we've got old Nevada, Stella Stevens. There's going to be a heist. So, um, and of course, Stella Stevens, in case you don't know who she is, she's she was a real sex symbol at the time. Um, she went on to be in like Chain Heat. She was in Poseidon Adventure. Um, and I, I think I've told the story on here before about how when I used to work in film payroll, I remember she called me and I was so excited. <laughs> but then she just started getting annoying because she kept calling me, asking me like payroll questions. And I never thought I would like throw Stella Stevens to voicemail, but I certainly did. But so you um, missed out <laughs> the most important thing, Josh. She's Andrew Stevens' mom. She is Andrew Stevens' mom. So, okay, so she's... Um, okay, and the other thing about Stella Stevens in this movie is this movie is like... One of the stars of this movie is 100% Stella Stevens' cleavage because mm. it is like on display all the time. And I was quite happy with that. Okay, so she's working at, at, at a casino... Um, also working at the casino is Stuart Whitman, um, uh, someone who I'm really warming up to, uh, an actor I didn't really like before, but particularly after seeing Treasure of the Amazon, I really am kind of into Stuart Whitman right now, and I liked him in this quite a bit as well. So he's this uh, security guard named Vic, and they're both kind of being treated crappily by the boss, uh, um, Eversol, played by George DeCenso. Uh, regular TV character or regular TV and movie character actor. Um, so then we learn that, um, you know, Whitman isn't in on the plot at all, but Stella's, um, you know, planning to pull this heist along with her two friends, Carol, a uh, black woman played by Lynn Moody, uh, who was in screen Blackula Scream, and a trapeze artist named Lisa, named uh, played by Linda Scraggs. And uh, they're all working at Circus Circus, which is a famous casino in Vegas that I've been to many times. And if you've never been to Circus Circus, inside Circus Circus, above the um, like the slot machines, there's actually fucking people flying around on trapezes. It's pretty rad. I, I, I really like Circus Circus. It's, it's not in its heyday anymore, but I have very, very vivid memories of being there when I was a child. Um, but so this is, and this was shot in that era, like 1975. So I might've been there like a few years after this. So it's probably closer to, um, what it was like when I was a kid, but I, I still been there recently and it's, I still think it's a pretty neat place, but Do they still have the uh, trapeze. 
they still have the trapeze. It's a little more run. Like it's, it's not, you know, with all the other fancy casinos in Vegas now, it does feel a little ghetto, but I still, I still quite enjoy going to Circus Circus. I, I feel like I'd rather go to something like that just for the ambience of old Vegas though. To well, be honest. It's, yeah, it's kind of old. I mean, real old Vegas is down on Fremont street, but it's yeah. still, it's still like seventies Vegas. Like all the other hotels from that era are pretty much gone. Hmm. The circus circus is still standing. And uh, it's actually where Vince Neal had his, he had a restaurant in there that I went to. Oh, really? Um, that wasn't very good. <laughs> what was, it, what was I, it called? Do you remember? I don't know if it's still there. It's, it was, I don't know, Vince Neal's barbecue or something, but uh, oh, that, how fucking original, something like that. But it wasn't very good. He could have, he could have made it into like a dessert shop and called it piece of your pie. <laughs> <laughs> that's true slice of your pie slice of your pie that's it <laughs> i did go i went there last time i was in vegas which was probably about five years ago so it might may or may not still be there. okay so they're preparing for this heist um with the three women um there's also um the, the black woman uh carol is also being shaken down by this lone shark dude um who's, who's trying to get money so like there's all this tension with that and um you know, eventually they, the, the heist kind of goes into action. And um, I got to say, not not a bad little heist scene. I People were kind of down on it when I looked online, but I actually thought it was actually pretty well edited and kind of stressful. Like, so the, the idea is that um, uh, Carol is going to be posing as a waitress. Um, Stella's going to be like distracting, like kind of a few marks. This waitress is going to bring this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She'll be distracting with her cleavage. <laughs> with her, her cleavage is distracting me. Believe me. Um, so the the waitress is like bringing up this kind of like hot plate thing, and um, it's going to have a, it has a hollowed out bottom, so that the trapeze artist can um, basically steal this money and then hide underneath the barbecue, and then they can smuggle her out. And uh, she has to get in by scaling the side of the building of circus circus so a pretty pretty cool scene where she's like actually climbing up the side of the building in the 70s and i like that quite a bit and then of course once once the heist starts going into action of course shit starts going sideways and they have to figure out how they're gonna like escape and i actually thought it was a pretty good sequence um but i i think i'm in the minority on that another thing that kind of throws things off is that Andrew Stevens in a very early appearance shows up as this guy who starts this fight in the parking lot. And uh, I mean, Andrew Stevens always, I, 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 I think he's kind of cool as a human, but he always plays these kind of like fuck up characters. Right. <laughs> um, so he's like, just, he doesn't, I don't even really know if he really has any lines, but he's just kind of this fuck up in the parking lot. That's actually fucking up the whole ice, but still kind of fun to see a very, very young Andrew Stevens. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I thought this was um, I thought this was better than I expected. Now, I think one of the complaints about this movie is that it's not as it's not it's it's too tame. Like there's really no skin in this. There's a brief hot tub scene where you can kind of see a little nudity, but it's really no one's prancing around with their boobs hanging out. There really isn't a lot of violence in this, um, so it's pretty tame. But I personally like for someone who like likes um, old footage of like kind of classic American cities like New York or LA or Vegas. Um, I thought this was great. Like seeing old Vegas in the seventies, like there's a bunch of stuff on Fremont street and we get to see that stuff. There's all this stuff's going on 
inside and outside of Circus Circus. So that was cool. And then, yeah, there's this weird theme park, this Wild West theme park that I unfortunately forgot to research, but I'm really curious if that was actually a place or not. It certainly looked, it looked like a ghost town. So I, I imagine this was actually a theme park that existed at the time. So I always appreciate that kind of thing. I, I really like Stella Stevens in this. Um, most of the movies I've seen her in, she's a um, co-star, but this is totally her movie. And I thought she was great. I liked Whitman in this quite a bit. And I liked the two other ladies as well. Not so much uh, Lynn Moody, but I really liked uh, uh, Linda Scruggs, who... Um, who the, played the trapeze artist? She was. She's been in a few other things as well that I might seek out. Um, but I, yeah, another one that I thought was pretty decent that I probably wouldn't have checked out otherwise. Actually, it does have a decent poster that <laughs> might have drawn me in had I seen it. But I don't know if I would have like jumped up and bought the Blu-ray. But you know, when it's part of a box set with two hundred other movies, uh, <laughs> I feel like this is another piece of little, little piece of gold in here. <laughs> so yeah, I liked. I, I I enjoyed this quite quite a bit quite a bit more than I was expecting to, especially having kind of heard that it maybe wasn't that great, but I think people were just wanting to see Stella Stevens naked. And when it didn't pan out, they were upset, but that's not why I was watching this. And uh, I, I thought it was pretty good. So that's uh Las Vegas lady from 1975. Man, this is a weird set. This part of your set is super fucking weird. It's my favorite part of the set so far. Really? Hmm. I think I've had the most good movies in this in this part of the set. What number are we up to now? Do you know? I'm around fifty because I've done the each of them were each of them are twelve, right? Yeah. So we I've done three of the twelves, and then this is the next twelve. So okay. I'm somewhere between forty and fifty right now. Oh, uh-huh, already. Jeez. So we're almost I say I'm qu- around forty-four. We're almost a quarter of the way through this journey. We almost are, but that's still like I've got a long way to go. Right? That's still a hundred and uh, somewhat hundred and something more episodes. Hundred and fifty, yeah, <laughs> which is almost the amount of episodes we've had so far. Yeah, so when you put it like that, it's like, oh, I got another four years of this. So <laughs> I might feel like I'm getting through it, but I'm not really. <laughs> but I am. I am really enjoying some of the titles that I'm like discovering through. Yeah, it's that's the thing about those sets though, right? It's like, that's why even the ones that are 12 movie sets, that's why I bought them or I buy those ones that are like 10 movie sets. Cause you're like, you might find something on there that you were like, what is this? Yeah. And then end up liking it. Like I was looking at some of those sets actually today. And there's one I have like, cause another company that did all those sets was that echo bridge. Yeah. And I was looking at a couple of the echo bridge ones and I have one that's like 10 action movies or whatever. And there's one on there called like brotherhood of justice. And it's like this 1986 TV vigilante movie with like freaking Keanu Reeves yeah. and Keith or Sutherland and all that. I'm like, what the hell is this movie? So yeah. that's the thing. Like sometimes you'll find stuff that you might not have known about that might actually turn out to be pretty decent. So, yeah. and I think oh, your man. percentage has been fairly good for this set. In that. It's been pretty good. Like, I mean, not everything. Like, this isn't a great movie. Let's, yeah. put, let's be honest. But I mean, like, if it's watchable, that's all that matters. Because it's, what, 20 cents a movie? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd upgrade this if it came out. But, I mean, I'm still, I, I'll probably watch it again one day. Right? But it's still like, 20 cents a movie, right? Isn't that what it worked out to? It was, well, I paid 50 bucks. Yeah, like a quarter a movie. Yeah. So, like, how can you go wrong? Yeah, unfortunately, the set's gone up. But even like I said, even if for a hundred bucks, I think it's worth it. Oh, it's doubled. 
I think so. I think it might be out of print. Mm-hmm. So I, as I've said many times, if you're in, if you're even thinking about this, fucking pick this up. I wonder what how that uh, how the one listener who bought the set is doing on their progress. Oh yeah, I'd love to hear it. Maybe update. they should uh, update us on our <laughs> on our Facebook group and let us yeah. know how far along they are. Um, so you know, Josh, that I I love me some buddy cop movies, right? Yeah, like you, you know, I like me, you know, Shakedown and you know, Running Scared and stuff like that. So I have this set. It's called Eight Action Comedies that Universal Pictures put out. Okay. I, I decided to watch a couple of movies from that, but I, I feel like I picked the poorest decisions on those ones. And here's the first one. It's from 1996 and it's called Bulletproof directed by Ernest Dickerson. Now, Ernest Dickerson's a guy who I generally like his stuff. I think he's a, he's a good cinematographer, which is what he did before he started directing. I think he mostly makes some solid kind of, you know, middle of the road action movies that are entertaining. There might not be the smartest movies in the world, but they're pretty good. Um, but he doesn't even like this movie. Like he's, really? he's legitimately said, I didn't like making this movie. I don't think it's a very good movie. Wow. Um, here's the reason behind that, Josh, and you'll, agree, you'll probably agree with this. This is a buddy cop action comedy with two guys that I mostly find annoying in the lead roles with Archie played by Adam Sandler right. and pal Damon Wayans. Right. So I should have known just from that alone. So basically they're playing two crooks who it opens with them stealing a car. And we learn that Wayans character is an undercover cop who's out to get a businessman baddie Colton played by James Kahn of all people. Oh, yeah. He's, He's really not taking the best roles anymore. So this is, well, this is like 1996, dude. This no, is like, but it's been for that long, right? Like yeah. he changed. <laughs> so, you know, there, so he's out to get this businessman. Archie's working for Colton in some smaller form. Like he's like a small fish in this big pond. So Wayne's character has been kind of using him to get closer to Colton. Um, while this is going on, there's a bus that goes wrong and there's some mediocre, mediocre action that follows it with like shooting out in a warehouse, a shootout in a warehouse, Josh never happens in these kind of movies. <laughs> and then, you know, Archie and the now outed undercover cop have to kind of team up midnight run style because he has to like, sh- it's like midnight run only shittier is the way I, is what I thought. Like, and they have to like, he has to transport Archie across country so that he can, you know, tell on this Colton character while they're doing that. There's a plane crash sequence. Uh, there's a car chase sequence and there's Colton, like James Conn's character, just popping up every once in a while to act like he's a badass when really he's not. Um, and it's got Sandler doing his typical yelling shtick. Yeah. Which I hate where he's like, he thinks that comedy is drawn out of, yelling yeah and i've never understood that uh there's a scene in it where he's taking a shower in and wayans is in the other room and he starts singing i will always love you in the shower and it's painful to watch um the action sequences are just sloppy the humor doesn't work sandler got on my nerves for most of this movie which is this is right after billy madison another movie of his that i cannot stand which i know that like a lot of people seem to like 
Like, I just don't like Adam Sandler comedy. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. But I was willing to give this a chance because I'm like, it's an action movie and it's directed by Ernest Dickerson. But it's like 84 minutes. It feels like it was recut because it, it literally feels like it was edited down somehow, like that a lot of the violence was chopped out of it and they leaned more on the comedy. So I can kind of see why director Dickerson doesn't like it. Um, James Caan is barely in it, which is like, you're right. James Caan. He's like, what are you doing, dude? You were such a, you're such a cool actor in the seventies. And now you're doing stuff like bulletproof in the nineties. Like, why yeah. are you in this? And like when he was in it, I didn't mind him. But I'm just like, why are you in this? And it's just like a lazy, boring, not funny buddy movie, buddy action movie with two leads who annoy me to begin with. So I should have known better. But again, it's in an eight movie set that I paid $6 for. So that's why I watched it. And I don't have much hope for the rest of the movies on this set, which we will talk about when I talk about the second movie I watched from this set later on oh wow uh the only other thing i got to say about this is this is probably dickerson's poorest movie Mm. and there was a fucking direct-to-video sequel made last year really yes with sandler no with just two no-name actors i don't know who they are it just popped it just popped up on vod and i was like no they did not make a sequel to bulletproof 24 years later but yes, weird. Was this yes. a hit? No, not really. Oh, it's so depressing. I just think it's universal being like, what properties do we have? Yeah. That we can quickly toss a sequel out there. Like, why else is there like eight Tremors movies now? Yes. Yeah. Like, seriously, why do they keep making death race, race movies and stuff? Why do they keep making Scorpion King? Yeah. Why was there a Doom Annihilation last year that was terrible? Right. Because Universal just wants to make money, I guess. And I couldn't believe that they made a sequel to this. It's a it's a poor, poor excuse for a buddy cop comedy. If you want to see quality, watch 48 hours, mm-hmm. watch Shakedown, watch Running Scared. Hell, watch another 48 hours, which is not nearly as good as 48 hours, but it's much better than Bulletproof. Right. So there, that's all I got to say. All right. Okay, so... This is not a typical Josh movie, but uh, the drama. Give it a shot. <laughs> um, okay, so there's two figures in pop culture whose deaths have really affected me. Okay, so the first was like everyone else of my generation, Kurt Cobain. Like that was shocking. Really hit me. Yeah. the The only other one that really hit me was Joe Strummer. Right. Uh, from the clash. Like that's, that's cause he was young and I just, it was just like complete shock. Right. Um, like a lot of the people like Kirk Douglas and all that, like, um, you, you know, they're, they're old and, and they've kind of, you they've know, lived done, their life. They've lived their life, but it's yeah. when people are really young and they die that you're, it's kind of shocking. And well, yeah. Like Prince, like Prince, but even yeah. like Prince or Robin Williams, like they just didn't hit me like Joe Strummer did. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Well, it's probably because Joe Strummer, for a lot of people, kind of like represented rebellion in some sorts. Yeah. And because he was, he was such an integral part of that seventies punk movement too. Yeah. That's, that's probably why that one's a lot more hits home. 
I think it was just, and it was just so sudden then. So, and he was so, yeah, he was like 50, right? Like yeah. he wasn't very old. Yeah. Okay. So I knew about this movie called London town from 2016. Okay. Um, that I knew kind of centered around Joe Strummer, but I was a little reluctant to try it because I, you know, I, but I, I do kind of like movies that kind of, um, cast real people in kind of almost like fable like roles and that's what this is okay so this is a movie directed by derek bort um who directed um that movie unhinged which you did not like no i did not with russell crowe but this was actually really good um so the plot of this is um it's a coming of age story um that takes place in london in 1979 when you know, ship was bad and like people were poor and it's about this family. Um, uh, the dad is played by Doug Ray Scott, who I've talked about before. He was in Mission Impossible 2 and Hitman and lots of stuff. But this is actually the best time I've seen him in a role. So he's playing a single dad who's uh, raising these two kids. Uh, the boy is named Shay, uh, played by an actor named Daniel Huddlestone, teen actor, who was he was in Into the Woods that... Um, uh, movie with Michelle Pfeiffer from a few years ago as a musical. Oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. Um, I think he was in the Les Miserables uh, uh, adaptation as well from a few years ago. So it's about Shay and his younger sister, um, and uh, basically they're just trying to get by. The dad owns this piano store, um, and Shay's just you know getting bullied and trying to get by. And in very early in the movie, he receives a package from his mom. And uh, in the package is a cassette tape. And I guess the mom, like, kind of, she took off and she's living in, like, a pretty much a squat in London with some, like, punkers. And she sends him this cassette tape and it's The Clash. And I guess he still kind of fantasizes, or not fantasizes about his mom, but, like, you know, thinks about his mom and, like, kind of idolizes her in a way. So he puts on this tape and he's, like, kind of life-changing moment right i remember the first time i heard punk rock vividly it was generation x it was in my friend's basement this guy named james threw on this tape and it was like boom like whoa what is this right um song was kiss me deadly by the way i was Um, gonna say it probably was kiss me deadly (laughs) yeah i mean it really was a a moment right and that's what this felt like to me like that moment the end of slc punk also displays that moment really well um so it's that moment so then shay is uh taking the he has to go on an errand for his dad his dad's giving him a little bit of money um to do an errand and to get himself something nice so he's on the train um going into london and he um there's this punk girl kind of sits down across from him on the train and she's listening to her headphones and he strikes up a conversation with her and he's kind of nerdy right and um he finds out that she's listening to the clash and uh she kind of they she kind of likes him a little bit so they kind of befriend each other and they go into london together and they go to this uh basically she's trying to find tickets for the clash concert the next night. So they end up actually buying tickets with the money that Doug Ray Scott gives them. And it's, um, so it's kind of cool. Cause it's kind of like, you're just seeing this kid kind of coming out of his shell. This is really early in the movie. Then he goes home and he's helping his dad with the piano business. And the, they're lifting this piano up some stairs. A piano falls down the stairs. Doug Ray Scott's character gets like 
like laid up. He gets to the piano falls on him. He's in the hospital and it's basically up to Shay to like take care of his sister while his dad's in the hospital. Um, but he's also kind of into this girl. So he decides to go out and uh, go see the clash concert, leaves the sister at home and um, he gets, he goes to the clash concert. And again, life's kind of changing because he's like being introduced to this new way of life. Um, so he goes back home and then it's about him basically trying to like keep the dad's business alive, keep um, everything going, um, but also kind of changing as a person because he's, his mind's kind of being opened up to this new world, this girl who's kind of different from him, this message that the clash, you know, is, is giving this kind of talking about the working class and kind of talking about his life. And he's really kind of relating to that. Um, but he's trying to also like grow up really quickly and take care of the business and things like that. Um, he ends up having to like drive a cab, at his dad's cab at night to raise, to keep money coming in. And he's real, they're really struggling. He also ends up, they, him and his sister end up going to see the mom who's living in the squat and they end up meeting the other kind of punkers that live there. And they're pretty cool, but it's like kind of weird because his mom's like kind of a, a you know, she's a musician but she's kind of a fuck up and she's doing drugs and all this stuff and um along the way and this is where the kind of fantasy element comes in um shay ends up meeting joe strummer and kind of striking up this kind of there's just a couple of interactions they have that where strummer kind of um plays this part in his life and kind of they have a couple of deep conversations and it's just kind of cool and uh, i'm not going to I'm not going to reveal how this all ends, but uh, uh, it's really good. Like, it's really good. Like, I really, really enjoyed this. I wasn't, I, I thought it was a bit gimmicky. And, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, first of all, you didn't need to have the clash. Like, this didn't need to have Stromer in it. This could, this would have been a perfectly good coming of age movie anyways. But the fact that you've kind of put Joe Strummer in the middle of this all as this kind of mythical figure I thought really worked quite well and was quite a good tribute to Strummer actually. And I really kind of liked it. It was like this, it's like a fairy tale almost, in, but a punk rock fairy tale in a weird way. Performances across the board were good. Um, um, the mob was played by Natasha McElhone, who was in, um, she was in Ronin, she was in Laurel Canyon, and she was also in Californication with uh, David Duchovny. Um, she does a cover of um, Another Girl, Another Planet by The Only Ones, uh, but a acoustic version that I thought was really good. Um, Strummer's played by Jonathan Reese Myers, and I've gone off about him before with Velvet Goldmine, where he plays Bowie, a, a Bowie-like character, another kind of mythical rock and roll fable movie. Um, and he plays Strummer in this, and I thought he was fucking awesome. Like, think what you will but i don't know if i've ever seen this guy in anything bad either <laughs> like he's always pretty good and i thought he nailed it and uh you don't really get to see like um the only time you, you see the other band members in live performance stuff like uh sorry mick jones paul simone and, and uh topper hedron but um they're they don't speak or anything they're just kind of there and it doesn't really matter um but we do see a lot a couple of live performances and was also a performance in the rehearsal space which i thought was cool um 
And yeah, I, I would totally recommend this this hundred percent. And I think you would actually really like it as well. It sounds like my jam. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and I, I just it was one of those ones where I didn't know what to what to expect. I didn't know if it was something I should go for or not, but I noticed it was coming off to me um, in the next 10 days or so. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a try and uh, just see how it goes. And I was like, so into it. And yeah, I'm actually gonna, it's not out on deep on blue that I could find. I'm going to check in England though, because it's obviously uh, set in, in England. So I'm going to check if there's an English Blu-ray, uh, but certainly not in North America. It's only available on DVD. But um, yeah, totally worth checking out. Um, totally like this a lot. And uh, it really hit all the buttons and worked. It was kind of risky, but it really worked. And, uh, um, you know, there were a few kind of schmaltzy scenes, like the scene where um, where Shay goes and like he goes and watches the clash in the rehearsal space. And it was a little cheesy, sure. But again, it kind of was this fable, right? So it was kind of maybe supposed to be a little cheesy so yeah but yeah overall i liked it i really liked vivian the punk girl um really liked their relationship i was totally rooting for both of them um really liked the little sister she didn't do a lot but what she did was pretty funny um and doug gray scott was great yeah like oh, everything was i i really liked this one yeah, yeah it's totally, it's a, totally liked it totally sounds like something that's my jam more than yeah. yours though for sure well yeah if you're into coming of age movies which, which I, I am yeah and i am as well and if you're into the clash um i mean i think some really cynical people would maybe have a problem with it but um but i think if you kind of like the clash it's if you're looking at it with the right eyes um you'll probably appreciate it so yeah it, it, yeah it sounds pretty good yeah yeah it's really good so uh highly recommended on my end uh, London town for 2016. It's pretty funny that you mentioned this because when I was on holidays, just this last couple of weeks, I picked something up at the used bookstore that I'd never heard of before. That is this here, the clash, oh, nice. the clash rude boy. Yeah. Which is, have you seen it? Long, long time ago. Because this is like a kind of like a, a narrative mixed with actual yeah. footage because it's supposed to be about this uh, this guy who lives in the UK in 1978 and works at like a sex shop and gets fired and then becomes the roadie for like the sex <laughs> for the clash and then kind of just hangs out with them and stuff in the rehearsal room and it's got apparently like two like some really awesome concert footage in it and everything and I've never seen it but uh, I came across it at the this bookstore I go to uh, so it's pretty funny that. Joe Strummer and the Clash came up this episode because I literally just bought that like last week. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I think I really liked about this movie is that it's the era of the Clash that I really love. Like, I'm not, I'm not one of those like Lennon colleagues the best album ever guys. Like, I really like the first two Clash albums are what I love, and that's what this is basically around their first album. Yeah, and uh, that's my definitely by far my favorite clash album so it was that era of the clash that i really loved as well and so it taking place at that time was really i thought was really great well, so. i could listen to i i could listen to i'm so bored with the usa all day mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. i mean is the second album is that give it give them some rope is that the second album i yeah okay so yeah, yeah i like london calling but i agree with you those first two are also pretty rad and get overshadowed yeah. by london calling but yeah i like the clash and I don't understand why people are cynical about liking them nowadays. It seems weird to me. Are people cynical about liking some people? Some, pe- some people are, yeah. It just seems weird that way. 
But oh, anyway, yeah. anyway, I will I will check that out. But unfortunately, yeah, I'm gonna definitely. have to gonna have to get on Tubi soon. <laughs> yeah, like it's like literally like ten days or something. So you should okay. get on it really soon. All right. All right. Well, let's transition from that. I'm gonna double up on this one. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna double up on the two teen mo- TV movies I watched. Because, <laughs> okay. because you know, I can't uh, resist oh, teen TV movies. <laughs> so let's start with the the better of the two, but the one that I had lower expectations for. Let's do it that way. Um, let's talk about Unwed Father from 1997, <laughs> starring Brian Austin Green from <laughs> Beverly Hills 921, but also Josh Fatal Impact. Is that what it was called? The volleyball movie. Oh, the volleyball movie. Impact point. <laughs> Impact point. <laughs> Where my review for that on Letterboxd is so many butt close-ups. It's my <laughs> That's entire true. review. So in this one, B-A-G is a D-A-D. See what I did there? See what I did there? So Brian Austin Green's character, it opens with him playing in a really bad alternative band in a nightclub. He's the singer, guitar player for a really bad alternative band. This is 1997. So this makes sense, right? So while he's playing, he meets this teenage girl called Melanie, played by Nicole Tom, and he ends up having a one-night stand with her, and they don't use protection, and she gets pregnant. Uh-oh. So from there, basically, he goes on, and she comes up, and she's trying to like say to him, hey, we did this. Um, you know, this is your baby. What should we do about it? And he's like kind of from a rich family. His dad's like a car dealer. He kind of does car dealing, like car sales on the side when he's trying not trying to make his band successful. And he's like, you know, he basically says she's a slut for having sex with him and that she should get an abortion. And I'm like, wow, this guy is a fucking class act. (laughs) So, and then like, she also, when she first goes to tell him, he goes, she goes to the back to the club to see him and he's playing this ballad song. And like, it's the ballad song that seduced her into having sex with him. But he's looking at this other girl while he's singing it to her. And he's, she's like, kind of thing. Right. So from there, uh, Melanie's not sure what to do. She goes and she has the baby. Her mom played by Isabella Hoffman is kind of like laying on this bitchy guilt trip. Like, you know, you should have been responsible. Like, what are you doing bringing a baby in here? You do not even have a job. You're still like in high school. Like, we can't do this or whatever. So she kind of like freaks out and is like, oh, I can't handle this. I can't be a mom. So what she does is one night she goes over to his house with the baby, says, take your baby. I'm out. And she pieces out and leaves Brian Austin Green with this baby. So the rest of the movie is basically Brian Austin Green trying to having to figure out how to become a dad and okay. become, and like give up on his dreams basically to be a dad, a single dad because his parents kick him out of the house. Cause he's cause he has a kid. Now he goes and lives in a fucking houseboat by himself. His band isn't working it out. He gets fired. His dad doesn't want to work for him. So he's working construction jobs and trying to make ends meet. And he has to deal with a crying baby, which is there's a scene in this, dude where the baby's crying and he literally is like be quiet be quiet and he picks the baby up and he's holding the baby and he's yelling in the baby's face what do you want what do you want 
And I'm just like killing myself laughing at this scene. Meanwhile, Melanie's fucked off. She left the baby at the step. She drove from this is set in Washington state. She drove all the way to California to like follow her dreams. And she becomes a waitress in a diner and everything. But while she's in California, she's like, Oh, I miss my baby that I didn't care about that much. I need to go home and get my baby back. Sorry, she's following her dreams to become a waitress. Well, she wants diner? to become an actress, but she oh. becomes a waitress. <laughs> you know, the typical, I want to be an actress, so now I'm a waitress in a diner. Kind yeah. of deal. <laughs> so she goes home to try and get her baby back from Brian Austin Green's character. But oh. by that time, he's become a responsible dad and all her mom and her best friend is vouching for him. Like, he's a good guy. He's a good guy now. Don't worry about it. And it becomes this drama about you know her wanting the baby back and brian austin green doesn't want to give the baby back right she even says to him like she's like she's she's like there's a scene where she's like talking to her friend she's like i carried that baby under my heart for for nine months i'm like what the fuck are you talking about you've been unlikable this entire movie you fucking peaced out and left this baby with this guy and you fucked off to california to become an actress like what the fuck are you talking about you want your baby back like don't be such a fucking oh my god you're so irritating (laughs) so i was getting like so mad at her right but I, I gotta tell you, man, like the, this, the last 20 minutes is her coming back and there's not enough of a showdown between her and the dad to try and like, you know, who's going to have the baby, who's going to have the baby, because here's a spoiler. It basically ends with this message of babies belong with their mother because she gets the baby back, even though she doesn't deserve the baby. And Brian Aston Green has to go visit the baby with the mom who didn't deserve the baby because she gave it up. I hate that message. Dude, I got to admit, this is a pretty competently made TV movie. Um, It's got the expected beats that are going to happen in it. It's got like some, a little bit of cheesy drama, but not so much that it's like so unrealistic and goofy. And I actually thought Brian Austin Green was pretty good in this. Like, I thought he did a pretty good job being like the put upon single suddenly single dad right like i've got a baby and i don't know what to do so it's just like one of those 90s tv movies that's aimed at like teenagers and early 20 something saying don't have sex this is what's going to happen if you don't use a condom but for what it is it's actually pretty good i actually didn't mind this i i was like surprised because i was like this is going to be garbage because it's brian austin green being a single dad it's going to be garbage but i actually liked it fine uh, i liked him fine i hated the melanie character because i'm like what the fuck are you doing bitch why are you coming back and t- taking this kid back you don't deserve it and there's actual real songs on the soundtrack to this movie like real legitimate songs because amanda marshall's on the soundtrack to this movie oh, fuck <laughs> and edwin collins that never met a girl like you before is on the soundtrack in this movie but the fact that Amanda Marshall was in this, I'm like, this was filmed in Canada. This was mm-hmm. in BC. And sure enough, it was filmed here in British Columbia. So as enough- soon as you just said Isabella Hoffman, I knew. Yeah. But <laughs> she was actually pretty good as the mom. So I, she's a regular in like TV shows and stuff. She, yeah. is, she is she a Vancouver actress or I believe I'm not sure. I remember she was in Bakers and Choosers, which was uh, one of the first shows I ever worked on. Oh, really? Good Does show, she- actually. Yeah, and she was about about the TV industry. Oh, really? What's it called? Beggars and Choosers. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. She's actually pretty good here as the mom because, like, she's super bitchy and lays on the guilt on her daughter because she was a teen mom herself. So she kind of doesn't want to be it. But then she, like, kind of warms up to Brian Austin Green's character and she's actually pretty good. 
as in this movie. Like her performance is pretty good. So it's a competently made with some decent performances and it works for what it is. So I was like pleasantly surprised that Unwed Father turned out to be pretty good. Now, on the flip side of that, we're going to talk about a movie that I was expecting to be fucking epic and turned out not to be. And that's a movie called Out on the Edge from 1989 starring Ricky Schroeder as a delinquent teenager. Was he still Ricky or was he Rick at this point? No, he wanted to be called Rick at this point. Okay. So this is two years after Silver Spoons ended. Okay. And I can just imagine him going to his like agent and he's like, (laughs) it's like, it's not Ricky. God damn it. It's Rick. And I'm a badass now. I don't want to be associated as some fucking rich kid who rides a train through the middle of his living room in a fucking sitcom. I need to be in a movie where I'm a badass. I want to do stuff like smoke cigarettes and wear leather jackets and wear, ride dirt bikes and be a badass. And so you better find me that movie. God damn it. And that's the movie that this is the result. Of oh, that. it sounds like him in Costco recently. Did you see that online? No. What happened? Oh, he was yelling at someone at Costco for the mask man. He didn't say he's an anti-masker. Rick Schroeder? Ricky oh, yeah. Schroeder? oh, yeah. You can find it online. Oh, I got to look at <laughs> this it now. It sounded just like what you were doing. <laughs> I, I, I just can't imagine him yelling at anybody. Yeah. And, and can you imagine anyone? Oh, he was fucking laying it to this poor woman. But can you also can you also imagine anybody like actually taking him seriously to be asked to be called Rick in the entertainment okay. industry? I will say... He was really good on NYPD Blue. Was he? He took over for Caruso, I th- or was it, or was it Smith? I can't. There's been so many, but he was really good on that show. No, I'm not saying. I he- think it was Smiths. It was Smiths. He was good. He was really good. Yeah, I'm not discounting if he has any actual performance ability, but I'm like, I'm just fact, know him yeah. as Ricky. I just know yeah, him exactly. as Ricky. Because I grew up with silver spoons and stuff. Yeah. So I know him as Ricky. So anyway, in this movie, he plays Danny. And he's like, he's like this. And, and the opening scenes is him riding his dirt bike through the, through the hills of California. And this guitar riff going on in the background. And automatically, I'm like, this is going to be rad. This is totally going to be rad. This is fucking Ricky Schroeder on a dirt bike. And like, going on on the soundtrack. I'm like, yes. Um, so it turns out Ricky, our Danny's parents are divorced and he doesn't like this and his mom's got a new boyfriend and she hates the new boyfriend because you know you're impeding on my happy family and she like calls him a mort she danny calls him a morton you're such a morton and i'm like what the fuck is a morton have you ever heard of that term no like morton downey jr (laughs) i don't know she's like he's like he's such a morton i'm like what's a morton like, how is this an insult? Like, I don't know who this is. So, like, instantly he's like, I hate my mom's new boyfriend. I'm yelling at my mom all the time. And I'm telling her, you can't tell me what to do. And I'm smoking cigarettes. And I'm riding this dirt bike. And I'm just being rebellious. And there, I'm like, I'm playing fucking air guitar in my bedroom in front of the, a Bullet Boys poster with metal cranked. And mom comes in and is <laughs> mad at me. And I'm like, and I'm like, and I'm like, he's just so fucking mad about everything like he's mad like he's mad to a point where it's unrealistic like he's just mad right and then like i'm like and then i'm like okay so so danny's pissed off that his mom played by mary Kay place from the big chill among other things has a new boyfriend and that her his dad played by richard jenkins oh my god is like 
you know, has a new girlfriend too, and they're divorced and he's in the big city and he's in the middle of fuck nowhere, riding his dirt bike and smoking cigarettes. And he's just mad. So eventually his sister comes back from college to visit played by Kim Myers, who was in nightmare on Elm street too, among other things. And, you know, and, and he's, she's like, you know, Dan is not such a bad guy. He's just really upset about things or whatever. But then it just gets to a point where he's just so angry that they just, that the parents decide to send him to a psychiatric hospital. Of course. So they said, that's what you did back then. You did. So, so he's, so he's like, they're like, we're going to send him to this, this psychiatric hospital. And, you know, they're like, we've, we've got to think about doing something. So, they're like, we're, we'll consider this. We'll consider this. But then one night, Danny goes out and he busts into the house liquor cabinet and he gets fucking sloshed and he starts vandalizing and he shows up at his, at his, at his dad's like house and he's trying to get on the intercom. He's like, let me in, dad. Let me in. He starts beating the shit out of the intercom with a fucking like a road sign. And I'm like, this movie is fucking rad. Like up to this point, I'm like Ricky Schroeder fucking being this delinquent and it's so over the top. This is rad. But then he gets put into the psychiatric hospital and it becomes a fucking slog. Yeah. It becomes a slog. Like it's got this typical heavy handed message to scare parents into like making sure their delinquent kids aren't up to no good. And don't get, you know, watch out when you get divorced, talk to your children, make them understand how this happened. Right. And then like, there's this another line in this movie where I'm like, has anyone ever said that? Like Danny gets mad at someone and he's like, and they're like, come down, come down. And he's like, come down on this, you old barf queen. And I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck does that mean? Like, what's a barf queen? That's a rad insult. Come down on this, you old barf queen. And like, and, and then like, once he gets into the psychiatric hospital, it's just all these overwrought dramatics with this overwrought performance by Ricky Schroeder. And it's like, they've got all these like intense pretend therapy sessions where he's like, I'm going to pretend you're, I'm your dad. Now you're going to confront me and tell me how you're feeling. It gets, becomes all about these feelings moments when they're in the hospital. And like, of course, one of the kids tries to like commit suicide and, and Danny's like, maybe I don't, my life isn't quite as bad as I thought it was. Maybe I should give my parents another chance. Right. But then eventually he gets like, caught up with one of the girls there who's like also from a broken home and he decides to go on the run with her so they escape the hospital and they go on the run and then it's a non-finish of the parents coming to stop him and like this really ridiculous scene with richard jenkins and a dirt bike that i'm not going to talk about so it's just like it could be so rad because of that first 20 minutes but it's not Oh, that was only the first 20 minutes. No, like that 20 minutes up to when 20 minutes or 25 minutes up to when he's like at his dad's place, drunk, smashing the stuff. That's the first 20 to 25 minutes of this thing. Then we okay. have an, then we have an hour of him in the hospital. And it's just right. not, it's just not as good. No, it's just not as good. And then it's also cutting to the parents, like Mary Kay place, just sitting there looking like she's just looking like totally like sleepwalking through the whole movie. Like she just is staring at the camera and showing no real emotion and sleepwalking through the the movie. And Jenkins is like, we have to like Danny, you know, and I'm like, Richard Jenkins, what are you doing in this? Like, I'm so used to him being in real movies. Right. Yeah. 
and then I'm looking at him. And I'm like, he looks so fucking old because he's like he he's already got the receding hairline. He's got that face, you know how his face is kind of pockmarked. Yeah, I'm like he looks so old. And then we looked it up, and when he made this, he was 42. Wow. And I'm like, this fucker looks older than me, and I'm 46. Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and you know, and like he's okay, but he's barely in it. And like, I just. I just wish it could have kept that first 20 minutes of radness going through the whole thing. Like the minute that I saw Ricky Schroeder air guitaring in front of a fucking bullet boys poster (laughs) on his bed. (laughs) I was like, I was like, yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) Is it like the apple with the bullet? Yes. It's the album cover. (laughs) It's the bullet going through the apple. So I'm like, Oh, and he's like air guitaring like crazy. And I'm like, this is going to be great. But alas, it's not. Um, so, yeah, it's too bad because this could have been epic, but it's merely yeah. epic for one third of its running time. Uh, only other thing to note is uh, it's directed by a guy called John Pasquin. He directed the Santa Claus, among oh, other yeah. Tim Allen movies. He basically worked with Tim Allen on almost everything. So I guess he was buddies with him. But then he made this like teen drama kind of thing, too. Um Two of the orderlies in the psychiatric hospital are played by Grand L. Bush, who's who's a character actor who we will know from like Streets of Fire and Lethal Weapon, among other things. And Andrew Divoff is also one of the orderlies. (laughs) He's the orderly who's the meanest to Danny's character. He's like getting in Danny's face, being like, you don't do that. That See those lines on the ground there? Those blue lines, that's where the furniture is. You don't move the furniture out of that spot. He's the guy who, when Danny and the girl are escaping, gets like pushed by Danny and smacks his head on the edge of a car roof. That's Andrew Divoff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie that had super potential and just didn't deliver. And if you're really curious, I know the Blu-ray is out of print, but it is on Prime. So oh, wow. <laughs> watch those first 20 minutes. Watch it up till that when he's getting admitted to that hospital, then turn it off because after that, it's kind of a drag and it's unfortunate because out on the edge could have been like so fucking rad, like to the level of like desperate lives or like, uh, what's that one? Uh, she's too young, he's too young, or even Angel Dusted. It could have yeah. been on that level, but it's not because it just decides to become this boring morality tale of listen to your children. They have a lot of mental issues and, you know, watch them and all the hospital stuff. Just there, it would have been cool if there was goofy scenes in the psychiatric hospital that matched it. But Danny realized that, you know, he has to be a good person. And I much preferred Danny. I hate everything. I'm going to destroy everything and yell at everyone and call them barf Queens and stuff. (laughs) I much preferred that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see because it's Ricky Schroeder trying to be a badass and failing at it but it has its moments so that's out on the edge everybody and where do you find unwed father unwed father i believe is probably also on prime (laughs) i've got tons of these things i watched the dvd because i came across the dvd for cheap yeah but i'm pretty sure it's on prime because they seem like all these movies like both of these movies were put out on dvd by Fremantle enterprises and it seems like all those Fremantle tv movies from this era are on prime yeah there's a ton of shit on prime like this i know and i keep stumbling across them thinking oh man i gotta watch them there's another one with ricky schroeder in it that sounds rad where it's him and brad pitt playing brothers 
who like to do like they like to do I know, yeah i know that one yeah, they like yeah. they like to do like cross-country ru- competitive running but one of them becomes an alcoholic <laughs> that sounds rad too so maybe on my next vacation i'll watch it because that seems to be the only time i watch these things and subject our audience to it <laughs> so that's uh that's uh out on the edge people Okay, let's get out of out of this fucking hole. Um, <laughs> Please do, but we're going back into it with my next one. Just warning you. <laughs> okay. okay, we're gonna go talk about an Italian crime thriller. Okay, um, okay, this will get us out of this hole. Okay, I was super stoked about this one. It's called Stunt Squad from 1977. I have heard of this one. You have okay, directed by Domenico Palello. Pal- 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 Sorry, um, only thing I've he did a couple of nun exploitation movies that I recognize, including a story of a cloistered nun. Um, but uh, yeah, I just uh, not not a lot of of titles I recognize. But I okay, the cover of this has like motorbikes. It's called fucking Stunt Squad, man. Like I was, I had high high hopes. Wasn't this put out by Raro Video on Blu-ray or something? Raro Video, yeah. yeah okay. So um, okay, so it opens with a pretty groovy. Um, uh, scene um, uh, with a with a pretty awesome Stelvio uh, uh, Cipriani score. Um, I know you've mentioned him Nightmare City. Yeah, he's fuck. I'm I'm really starting to rec- recognize this guy's um, style. Like, and it's you know I I really don't understand why he's not more known. Okay, I'm gonna I'm not gonna get really too deep into this, but the okay so. There's a villain in this named Valley, played by Vittorio Mezzogiorno. And this guy is pretty brutal, but he what he does is he's a he's a bad guy and he's um shaking down businesses and making them pay protection money. And if they don't pay protection money, what he does is he gets his henchmen to go to the business, um, set up a bomb in the payphone in that business. And then leave, and then he calls the payphone, and the fucking business explodes. And that's the that's what happens if you don't pay your protection money. So, that seems counterproductive. He's like, <laughs> I guess yeah, I never thought of that, but yeah, but he's just, he's this mad bomber, and that's he goes around just bombing all these businesses that aren't paying protection money with this cell phone. Or this he's gonna phone. run out of he's gonna run out of clients to get, to <laughs> get protection true. from if he keeps fucking blowing them all. I up. think he's got a pretty big territory. Okay. Okay. So hot on his um, hot on his trail is a, a, a police inspector named Griffey, played by Marcel Bozuffi. And um, I'm a huge fan of French Connection. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Marcel Bozuffi is the guy who Gene Hackman chases that ends up getting shot on the subway stairs. So that's the iconic image from French mm-hmm. connection. That's Marcel Boussoufi. He also was the main guy in one of my favorite Polizio Tesci movies, uh, contraband, the Fulci one. Mm. He played the, uh, the, um, the Don, the bad Don or whatever in that movie. Uh, so he's great. He's great. And he's awesome as a police inspector in this. Um, he recruits a guy named Brogi, played by Ricardo, Ricardo Salvino, who, um, again, recognized from uh, Emmanuel in America. He's also in another movie called Cult 38 Special Squad that uh, sounds very similar to this one that I actually want to seek out now. Um, so basically, this this bad bomber's on the rampage. Uh, Griffey wants to get him. 
so he's like, we can't get this guy by traditional means. So I want to form a special unit of the police that are fucking experts, like basically stunt riders <laughs> who like don't have to like live by the confines of the law. So basically they can just go out, fucking go rogue and, uh, and start like, and just like take people down. Uh, without having to really worry too much about it, so kind of like the cop from the brink is like the uh, <laughs> the the lead guy of the stun squad. So um, then there's a pretty great montage of them doing training and like their shit, like where they're like riding their motorbikes and like shooting a target like sideways off their motorbike as they're driving by and doing. You're speaking my language right now, it's Josh. It's pretty rad. It's a pretty rad um, montage. And so then I'm looking into, I'm looking at that the stunt squad's going to fucking take down this bomber. And, you know, um, okay, it, it follows with, um, you know, there's, a, there's some pretty good sequences in there. Since there's a good sequence in a hospital where someone's under police custody, but uh, our bomber is like trying to get at him. And there's a cop kind of outside the door and there's this like nurse with the cops kind of eyeing that's like, you know, doing nurse stuff. And it's a pretty tense scene. I like that quite a bit. Um, there's some good car chases in this uh, one that it also includes a car that like catches fire and um, ends up, I think, going sideways. It's pretty cool um, with motorbikes, of course. Um, but I, I got to say, I, I, it didn't quite live up to <laughs> what I what I kind of hoped for from that cover and from the title and from the training montage. Like I was like, oh my God, this is gonna be like the best thing I've ever seen. And then it just never quite got there. It was still pretty good. It's really good. But I just think a movie like Stunt Squad, I it's one of these ones I've been kind of putting this one off because I was so excited to watch it. And then when I watched it, I'm like, okay, that was good, but it's it wasn't wasn't what I kind of expected. I was expecting gone in 60 seconds or something <laughs> like uh hp Halecki movie or or um you know but it didn't quite have as many stunts as i had kind of hoped although there was there was some good motorcycle action and and as i mentioned that that fire car car chase was pretty cool um there's a you know the usual you know sexy nightclub sequence where girls just for no reason start dancing topless in the nightclub that happens um and it's got an ending um that's pretty over the top as far as like i, I i'm not gonna ruin it but I've, I've never seen a a crime movie end the way this one does and it's it, it's pretty 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 surprising but pretty good and it does involve like a bus and another chase sequence so it does this movie does have its moments and i thought all the cast were pretty good i thought the, the villain was really good i thought bazoofy was really good um, so overall, it's a decent little little crime thriller, uh, but it's not one. It's not one of the best. It's 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 good, but not one of the best. And I I, I guess I just went in with this with super high expectations, and I kind of wish I didn't. I just wish it wasn't called Stunt Squad. I like, know it's just such an awesome title. <laughs> like, you can't not have high expectations, you know. And especially the the Raro cover, like you mentioned, it's it's like one of those like kind of drawn covers with like bikes and motorbikes leaping and, everything. Yeah, <laughs> it looks so rad, and it's not quite that, but it's still a pretty pretty tight little crime thriller and uh I, i'd recommend checking it out if you can find it i well i've it's pretty easy to find because i've another one i've apparently found twice so 
but yeah, if if you're into these kind of movies, I'd I'd recommend checking. I don't think it's but a print though. I think it's still available. I it's yeah, I got it from Kino in their last sale actually. Mm, okay, so uh, it's available from Kino for sure. Um, I don't know if you'll get it for the you know nine ninety nine price I got it for, but uh, but it is available from Kino. So yeah, it's definitely still still around. Or you can buy the DVD. I'm going to be posting on eBay shortly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's Stunt Squad, a lesser known um, movie from the genre, but uh, and still pretty enjoyable despite the the uh, huge promise of the title. I know, and the montage. The montage is, is pretty cool. And Bazoofy is pretty great. I'll, I'll, you know, the thing is, I'll watch any movie with a montage. Yeah. I really will. So I'll watch Stunt Squad eventually. <laughs> I know I will. I don't know if I have it, though. I'll have to yeah. look. I probably do somewhere in this vast. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to the opposite of a, of, the, of a decent cop movie and talk about a garbage cop movie. But another one from that action comedy set that I watched Bulletproof from. And this is one I had seen before, but I decided to rewatch because I'm like, it cannot be as bad as I, as I think it is. I don't remember anything about it, but it can't be as bad as I think it is. It was. And it's a little movie, Josh, called Stop or My Mom Will Shoot from 1992, starring Mr. Sylvester Stallone. Now, the thing I find hilarious about this is that their only reason Sylvester Stone apparently was is in this movie is because around that time he was competing with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold Schwarzenegger decided to start a rumor that he was interested in being in this movie. And then Stallone went and got cast in it and Arnold and Schwarzenegger had absolutely no intention of doing the movie because he thought because no he thought the script was terrible. He admitted still still uh, Arnold admitted this in a 2017 interview that he did that. <laughs> on purpose so that he could get stolen cast in a terrible movie and that's fucking hilarious mm-hmm. like because you know how competitive those two guys were back then because yeah. they were both like the big action stars of the time back in the like late 80s early 90s so i think that's hilarious for starters um so this is a a really really poor action comedy with a terrible title produced yeah. produced by ivan reitman director of Ghostbusters, among other things, with a really, really lame premise. And I really don't understand how Stallone did read. He, I don't know if he read the script before he signed on to this. I really don't, because if he would have read the script, he probably would have pieced out of this bad boy. Yeah. Anyway, in this movie, he plays a, like, a California cop who's like, trying to like bust a criminal all the time. Like he's trying to bust this criminal ring. He's just like that standard tough guy cop. And then his mom comes to visit and his mom is played by Estelle Getty who from the gold. Oh, girls. God. Uh, and, and she shows up and she's kind of clueless about everything. And she ends up getting caught up in this silly gun smuggling case because she decides one day to she's cleaning her her son's house and she finds his gun she's like "Ooh, his gun is so dirty i'm gonna have to give it a clean and she throws it in a sink with bleach and soap bubbles and scrubs it with brillo pads and wrecks his gun so she feels bad and goes to a gun shop to try and buy him a new gun only they won't give her it right away so she buys one from the back alleyway from some guys who are smuggling guns in the back of their van and when she does that the mob guys who they stole the guns from show up and she witnesses a murder 
of those guys. And that's how she gets caught up in the case of gun smuggling and mob murder. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so Stallone has to deal with trying to catch these criminals, his annoying mother, and the fact that his chief, played by Joe Beth Williams, is also his girlfriend, who is very upset at him for not wanting to commit to their relationship. And that's the whole premise of this movie. While they've wedged in some really bad action sequences and some jokes that are so strained to get laughs that it gets fucking embarrassing. Like there's multiple jokes in this movie of Estelle Getty's character showing baby pictures to people of Stallone and then, and then laughing about it. Like, look at him as a baby and, you know, and public humiliation. Like she's constantly humiliating him in public. And there's like a dream sequence that Stallone has where he goes to like, stop a stop a hostage situation he's going to talk the hostages out of it and his mom comes out of the building going like i'm here to change your nappy and it shows stallone as a full-grown man in a fucking diaper (sighs) going no mommy i don't need my nappy changed this is a moment in this actual movie i can't imagine stallone being in this movie yeah and just like he was also in rhinestone wasn't he he was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's just like this really, that bad scene with her cleaning his gun. A really terrible car chase with Estelle Getty's character behind the wheel and crashing through fruit stands and ends up driving into the dumpster so the bad guys get away. Like driving mm-hmm. into an actual open dumpster. <laughs> she drives into it and the bad guys get away and this homeless guy shouts at them from the side, there's nothing in there, I already looked. Like that's the kind of humor that this movie is going for. This is fucking embarrassing, dude, like embarrassing. And it's embarrassing that Stallone is in this. And it's embarrassing that like, it's not so embarrassing that Estelle Getty's in this. What's embarrassing is that her character is so dumb. Like she's so clueless about every single thing that it's a complete stretch that she would be this dumb. Like she cannot be this sheltered from life that she doesn't understand basic human stuff. And in this movie, that's how it is. And like, I just don't get it. Like you get to see like an action scene where they go to a warehouse, of course, and the bad guys show up and she has to, he has to like throw his mother over his shoulder and bust through the warehouse while she's, he's being shot out, shot at. So he's running with her on his shoulder and busting through these, these wooden, He's busting through these planks that are across these things. And it's an obvious that it's a fucking dummy over his shoulder. Cause it's swaying around like it's a dummy and he's busting it through like these wooden buildings. And I'm like, and it, this is becomes super obvious why Stallone considers this the worst movie he's ever made. It's, he said that he's in interviews. He said, this is the worst movie I have made. Yeah. This movie is a fucking disaster. And I have no idea how it got made. And I have no idea why anybody would have thought this was funny. It was, yeah. it made $70 million worldwide, dude. This wasn't a flop. Well, it's totally a recognizable title, right? Like people know the title. Well, and that line does get uttered in this movie. Because <laughs> there's a scene where she's holding a gun and the bad guy's getting away. And he's like, stop. Or my mom will shoot. Like, <laughs> That line is uttered once in this movie. This is a fucking embarrassment, man. Like if it wasn't for the fact that I found out that, so that Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of like tricked 
Stallone into being this and how fucking hilarious I found that I would be like questioning Stallone's judgment right now. I still question it because he had to have read the script at some point or another, but this is painfully embarrassing and everything is so paper thin and lacking in all departments. The actions watered down, the comedies watered down. And I'm just like, and the fact that this was directed by an actual legitimately decent director, this yeah. was directed by Roger Spottiswood. Oh yeah. Now Roger Spottiswood made a really good action movie in the eighties called shoot to kill with Tom Berenger and Sidney Prache that nobody talks about. Like that's a legitimately good movie. He also made terror train, the slash yeah. movie with Jamie Lee Curtis and he made Turner and Hooch, which is okay for what it is. But what is he doing making this movie even? Yeah. Like this is an embarrassment. I watched the friggin i read the uh the roger ebert review of this movie after i watched it and he even said this is probably the worst movie i have seen this year when in when he wrote the review in 1992 wow like it's a fucking embarrassment an embarrassment and this is two bad movies out of eight on this set yeah so i'm worried the rest (laughs) of these movies okay one of them is another midnight run which is a made-for-TV sequel to Midnight Run with Christopher McDonald. Oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not watching it from this set because I have a Midnight Run set that has the original Midnight Run and the four sequels with Christopher McDonald oh, included. God, I'm sorry. Another one is Bandit, Bandit Goes Country or something, which is one of the yeah. Mokey and the Bandit sequels with Brian Bloom that were made in the 90s. Again, I'm not watching it off this set because it's on the Smokey and the Bandit set that I have. Yeah. The other ones are... Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson and Goldie <laughs> Hawn, which I'm, which I'm assuming is not good. The Cowboy Way with Woody Harrelson and Keith Sutherland, where they play cowboys who come to the big city and have to solve a murder. And Renegades with Keith Sutherland and Lou Diamond Phillips, which I remember being a decent buddy yeah. cop movie directed by Jack Shoulder of The Hidden. So That's this, the only one I'd be looking forward to. to this honest. set is frightening to me. Yeah, I'm so scared to watch Bird on a Wire. Yeah, because it's supposed shot to, here actually. I think parts of it were, and it's yeah. supposed to be pretty bad. And it's directed yeah. by John Badham, who is another director who has made decent movies. Where I'm like, what are you doing making this? So yeah, stop. Well, my maybe you can enjoy some Vancouver scenery from the '80s or '90s or whatever it was. I think it was the early '90s. Yeah, but yeah, no, stop. Or my mom will shoot is a fucking embarrassment. So unless you're a Stallone completist, you should avoid this one. Avoid this one. It's bad. It's funny because I've been watching the Rocky movies, obviously, and I've been thinking, I really like Stallone. I'm, I'm going to watch all of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maybe not. have fucking fun with Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, dude. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, I've been talking a little bit lately about... Um, David Lynch and um, how I've been like um, how two of his movies are in my top 10 and why haven't I seen more? So I decided to bite the bullet and watch lost highway from 1997. Can I just say before you begin, thank you for propping this episode up. Cause I know I've had all <laughs> garbage and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So I wasn't, I didn't know, you know, I've been kind of hesitating on lost highway and Mulhall and drive um, because I had heard their, they're not that they're not very linear they're not 
that yeah. easy to follow. They don't make a lot of sense, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Anyway, I was talking to my buddy and friend of the show, Vince Dovato, um, about Lynch. And he just, he said to me, he said, dude, just watch it, but don't try and figure it out. Just watch it and go with it yeah. and think about it later. And then you can watch it again. Right? That's what everybody says about yeah. Mulholland Drive, especially. And I, I, I never thought of it that way. So I'm like, okay, I'll take his advice and I'll just, I'll just watch it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and like understand what's going on. Right. And you know what? It was great. <laughs> Like I loved it. So um, now that I've kind of gone through my virgin run of lost highway, um, I mean, I, I could see this probably moving up my, you know, being up there on my list. Um, And, you know, I mean, I can see why people love Lynch and why they think he's a genius and all that stuff. And, um, you know, and I, I don't mind movies that are kind of weird and don't make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I watch enough Italian movies and, and like psychedelic movies to be okay with that. So I don't know what's been holding me back on this guy. But anyway, the, this was written by David Lynch and Barry Gifford. I've talked about Barry Gifford recently because he um, not only wrote Wild at Heart, but he also wrote Perdita Durango. Um it stars, uh, so this stars Bill Pullman as this guy named Fred, and he's got a wife named Renee, played by Patricia Arquette. And um, he's like this jazz musician, and um, he they're getting like these weird videotapes in the mail and uh, of their, ho- their home. Um, so they're kind of weirded out by that. Um, they get the cops over. The cops don't really do much. Um, but then they end up going to this party and uh, Pullman runs into this weird dude played by Robert Blake, of all people. This is before he was arrested for the murder of his wife in real life. And um, something really strange happens between them. And then um, Pullman ends up being thrown in jail. And then um, the he's in this jail cell. And then the... Um, prison guards go to like check on him one night one of the prison guards is played by henry rollins by the way Mm. and uh they open the cell and he's it's not him anymore it's now belfazor getty um so this is where it starts getting weird right and they're like what is what happened to the other guy why is this guy here and um so they release belfazor getty to the uh care of his parents uh dad's played by uh gary Busey, (laughs) and um and then it turns into the story of Balthazar Getty, who's like this, you know, this is when he was kind of young and cool. I, I really liked him in this time period. He was in Where the Day Takes You. And um, he's good. He's a good actor, but um, he's this mechanic guy and he uh, does some jo- some work for this local mobster named Mr. Eddie, played by Robert Loggia uh, from Innocent Blood and uh, um, Princey's Honor. And uh, but one day he sees this beautiful girl with in the car with Robert Loggia, uh, played by Patricia Arquette again, uh, but a different character. And he, um, it's it's Robert Loggia's girlfriend, but Balthazar Getty kind of starts this affair with her, and then things start to kind of escalate as he gets kind of drawn into this relationship. And I'm gonna kind of leave it there, but um. Um, this, you know, this isn't, it, it was not hard to follow. I mean, there's things that happen in the plot that have you going, what the fuck 
is going on, like overall. But watching like this as a movie, it like as a as a I wasn't like confused. Like I wasn't watching the movie going like the whole time going, what's going on? Like I was just kind of, as Vince said, I was just kind of going with it. And I was, I was following along fine. And, and I actually really enjoyed it. It had a lot of great mood. Uh, the score was by uh, Angelo Bellamenti, who um, does the score for most of Lynch's stuff. Um, the DP was uh, Peter Deming who, of course, did Evil Dead 2 and uh, worked on to work with both Raimi and uh, Wes Craven, among others, uh, in his career. So he's a very established DP. Uh, so many uh, people show up in this movie in, in small roles. Uh, Mink Stoll, uh, Natasha Gregson-Wagner, uh, Giovanni Rubisi, Richard Pryor, and I believe his last on-screen appearance, uh, Jack Nance for Eraserhead, Marilyn Manson, and uh, if you're a fan of 90s erotic thrillers, Lisa Boyle. Uh, oh, really? So they, all, they all pop up in here. And, Lisa and, Boyle, wow. Yeah. Um, we've got, um, you know, some kind of graph, not not super graphic, but surprising nude scenes from Arquette and, uh, and Natasha Gregson-Wagner. Um, but yeah, this is like, a, it, you know, if you like neo-noirs, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty great movie and um you know like the other lynch movies um particularly wild at heart um like i totally get something new out of wild at heart every time i watch it and i still love it and um and eraserhead's a little more um not eraserhead uh uh elephant man is a little more straightforward but i still really enjoy that but this is one of those movies maybe like a blade runner where i feel like every time i watch it i'm gonna like get something else out of it or maybe feel a little different and you know based on my mood and things like that so that's where i think there's brilliance here so i'm glad i finally saw it um looking forward to seeing it again uh it was hard to get for quite a while uh but now it's easy kino lorbers put it out um and that's the blu-ray i picked up and uh yeah glad i finally saw it and i'm not sure what i was so worried about like it's really not that bonkers like weird like it's weird but it's not it's not like un unenjoyably weird like they they talk of you know when they talk people talk about lynch they almost talk about it like you cannot make sense of the movies and i think it's not about that it's just there's some unanswered questions that's more of how i would describe it but it, it makes sense if that you know you know what i mean there's nothing wrong with keeping things vague though yeah it's vague but it doesn't it's not it's not impossible to follow the plot i just feel like so many people need everything spelt out for them though that's yeah. the problem yeah. So it's probably those people who are like, I don't get it. Yeah. And I can see that, but I'm, you know, I'm, I, for one enjoyed it first run. Um, really glad I went in with that mindset. Thanks Vince. Um, but I'm, I'm already looking forward to watching it again. So, and I'd love to, you know, now that I, you know, now that I've seen it, I'm, I'm going to have a discussion with Vince about it. And if you see it, I'd love to have a talk just what your thoughts are right it's one of those movies like i i, I want to talk about it now i want to like see what other people think and what how they interpret it so it's really cool in that way so totally recommend it great music great look of the film performances all around are awesome i loved robert loggia in this he was really really good i generally uh, like him though what was the story there was a story about him where uh, he um wanted dennis hopper's part in blue velvet 
And I guess Hopper already had the part, but Lynch, for whatever reason, made Logia wait, thinking he had a shot. <laughs> and then he went into audition and they were like, well, no, the part's gone. Dennis Hopper has it. And he fucking apparently just laid into Lynch. Yeah. You fucking asshole. <laughs> just lost his shit on, in real life. Yeah. And I guess Lynch always remembered that. And when he had this role, he called, that's why he called Robert Lodgia <laughs> and said, be based on that. He, he hired become for this movie. I think I, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could do a, a freaking David Lynch voice. Cause then I'd be like, I could do the phone call, but I can't, there's some people who could do his voice really good, but I can't do it. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've heard Mulholland drives actually a little bit more weird. Yeah. But I mean, my I've never seen it, but my girlfriend, it's one of her favorite movies. So, yeah, well, that's the thing with Lynch, right? They're weird, but people love them. Right. And I get it now. Like, I really this is the weirdest, the weirdest one I've seen of his. And uh, but I can see loving it. Like, yeah, I, I, get it. I haven't seen it either. I, I didn't yeah. know Kino put it out, so I might have to grab it. Yeah, uh, I like the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah me <laughs> so too. I had the soundtrack on CD. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, there's, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's always been one that I've been kind of curious about, but I'm, I'm much like you, where I'm like, you, people have built up this, it's weird on your, in your head for so long that you're just like, I don't know about this. But then, yeah, when you like, th- I've been like, I don't know if I want to work for it tonight, you know? And yeah. it wasn't that, it wasn't that much work. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it wasn't yeah. like I was like, oh my God, I can't, my brain's not into this. Like, it's not, it just fucking watch it if you've never seen it. But then when you're, th- but then when you think of it, you're like, I've seen movies that are equally probably as weird. Yeah. Like them. Like I know you weren't as big of a fan as me of it, but that even that I'm thinking of ending things movie, super fucking, super fucking weird, but I really liked it. Yeah. I mean, so why am I not watching a David Lynch movie? I'm sure it's more straightforward than that movie probably. Yeah. (laughs) In some ways. So yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Um, Cool. Let's go from David Lynch to the worst movie of the episode for me. How is that possible? <laughs> I told Lower you. Lower than yes. My I told you I have garbage, dude. Oh my god! This is the my attempt at watching a newer wilderness movie that failed miserably. Okay, so, so let's talk about a movie called Castle Rock from two thousand. And no, it's not based in the Stephen King universe. It it's is not? a no. It oh, is weird. It is an awful, awful awful wilderness movie from the year 2000. So I'm just going to gloss this over fast because I don't want to talk about it too long. Basically, this is about a guy from Guatemala who's on the run in America. He's an illegal immigrant and it opens with a border guard trying to taking him in and being like, come here, I've caught you. I've chased you down before. And the, the border guard's played by Wolf Larson. Now, Wolf Larson, us B-movie fans will know for appearing in Hard Ticket to Hawaii and Picasso Trigger, the two Andy Sedaris movies. Now, he's in this as the border guard who's obsessed with getting this Guatemalan kid, you know, deported, basically. So he takes him in and he takes him to like the, you know, the holding cell or whatever. And then we get narration from a girl called Andy played by Alana Austin, who's narrating about this guy. Like he really just wanted to be safe in the country and he didn't mean anyone any harm and blah, 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 blah. And she's this like teen rebel called Andy. And she's like narrating the shit. And I'm like, 
how is she narrating this? Like, what's the deal? And, and she's narrating it. And then this kid escapes. Like he's told by someone in the cell, I got one thing to say to you, stairs. And the guy's like, okay, stairs. He's like, stairs, okay, stairs. So he's like, basically busts out, runs up the stairs and starts running. And he's running through the desert. And I'm like laughing my ass off because I'm like, really? They're going to let him escape by just running out some stairs and out a door. And then we learn about Andy. And Andy is this kind of rebellious chick who her mom played by Mrs. What's her name here? I wrote it down. Pamela Bach Hasselhoff. Yes, David Hasselhoff's at the time wife. Plays the mom of the teen girl in this and was also an executive producer. Um, she has like, I've had enough of you, Andy. I'm sending you off to spend the weekend with your grandfather in Castle Rock. Grandfather is played by Ernest Borgnine. Okay. And he's fucking racist. Okay. Yeah. So he, he goes on because early on in the narration, She's talking about this Guatemala. Andy's talking about this Guatemalan guy. He's like, you know, if my grandpa saw him, he would call him like, you know, like a wetback or a spick or something like that. And I'm like, whoa, what's this doing on the narration track of this movie? Yeah. Right. So basically, she goes off with her dad, with Gramps to be at Castle Rock. He has to, he's like, every three months, I have to go check on this mine to make sure that it's secure, this abandoned mine. That's my job. They go up to the mine. She's sent off to look at, look for their dog, this German shepherd called Farley, while Gramps stays behind. Gramps has a medical issue, collapses, is taken away from the mine, stranding Andy at the mine with Farley, the dog, and the Guatemalan kid shows up. And they have to survive in the middle of the desert to get home. And that's the crux of this movie. But the problem with this movie is it is so bad in the way it's progressed i forgot to mention the the guatemalan guy actually stowed away in the back of their pickup at a convenience store and that's how he manages to be there okay okay but anyway they're out there in the middle of nowhere and so he falls down a sand dune and an hour later he has fucking gangrene like he falls that's that's what happens didn't you know that he falls down a sand dune when you fall down sand dunes you get gangrene but he doesn't hit anything like sharp that purses his skin or anything, but his pants are open and he's got this fucking festering wound. And she's like, you've got gangrene. That's gangrene. So she runs off to this dead animal corpse they found earlier and gets maggots and puts the maggots on his gangrene what? wound. And he's sleeping and she's done it while he's sleeping. And he wakes up. He's like, it's on fire. My leg is on fire. And she sees the, he sees the maggots on his leg. He's like, no. <laughs> and this is all within like a couple hours that he gets gangrene. He's going to lose his leg. He gets sick. And she puts maggots on his leg. Wow. Like, I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? Then we keep hearing all this foreshadowing about how there's rabid coyotes in the, in the area. And you keep hearing the coyotes howling, but at no point in this movie is there rabid coyotes. <laughs> so basically it's just them having discussions, trying to survive the heat and having not much food. Farley's a useless fucking dog. It's not like the fucking dog in the wilderness family who would be like fighting everything off. He's they're like, if it was the dog from the wilderness family, he'd be like, what do you mean there's rabid coyotes around here? I'm going to go fuck them up. Like, seriously, <laughs> that's what the dog in the wilderness family would have done. Farley just walks around being a little fucking shithead, not doing anything, like being a useless fucking dog. 
And uh, so eventually I'm like, where's the fucking adventure in this movie? Like nothing is going on in this. And then the dog fucks off. Like it literally just fucks off. It's like, I'm done with you. And he just fucks off. But, but he comes, but they, but they, they find him later. Like they find the dog and he's fucking, they're like, oh my God, he's been bitten by the coyotes. And now he's got rabies. And he's dead. What are we going to do? So they leave Farley behind. They continue going off on their wilderness adventure. The mom's freaking out trying to find Farley dead. Yeah. He's, he's apparently he's dead from rabies. What? The coyotes got him. They killed the dog. So he's dead. Farley's dead. The mom's frantically trying to find them with the help of this fucking border guard. Who's also wants to find this illegal immigrant, not realizing that she left a note back at the mine. Okay. So, Here's the thing. If she was at the mine and they know she's with her grandpa and her grandpa was taken to the hospital by his buddies who found him, wouldn't they automatically go back to the mine and find her? Yes. They don't. <laughs> Instead, she fucks off through the wilderness, finds this immigrant guy. He gets gangrene. They put maggots on the gangrene. The fucking rabid coyotes are all around. They kill fucking Farley. Like They bite Farley and he dies. But then, dude, Farley comes back. As a zombie? We thought he was dead, but he comes back. But he's got rabies. Nice. So they're like, they're like, he was infected with rabies, and now he's out to get us. And Farley comes charging at them, and it's the least menacing rabid dog I've seen in my fucking history. Like he Did has they shoot him? No, no. This is he's going after Andy and the and the kid, the other the immigrant kid. Like he's yeah. chasing them. They don't have a gun. How are they gonna shoot him? I don't know. I just thought it would but, be so But anyway, he comes back as a rabid dog. He comes back as a rabid dog and they're chasing. He's chasing them, but he's not foaming at the mouth. And literally the dog looks like it just wants to play. It's the That's, least menacing rabid dog I've ever seen. It's pretty fucked up though. That's a fucked up plot point. But I'm just like, really? She's like, she's like, he's like, this rabid dog is chasing them. And then when it's chasing them and he's like having like, heat stroke or whatever and she fucking sees a hallucination of Ernest Borgnine <laughs> telling her climb higher on the hill climb higher on the hill you'll get away from the rabbit dog by the way she got bit by a rattlesnake and that's also the venoms causing her to have this hallucination I Come. can picture the Borgnine voice Borgnine all fuzzy that. climb the hill Andy <laughs> higher higher so I'm, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? And then, you know, they find him happy ending, whatever. What the fuck? Guy doesn't have to go back to Guatemala. The border guard lead learns not to be such a fucking racist. Andy learns that, you know, her grandpa is not, her grandpa's fucking dead. And, you know, she knows how to survive in the wilderness. And maybe she should be nice to her mom. End of fucking movie. This is a fucking disaster, dude. This is one of the worst made movies I have seen in a long time like it's so fucking inept i want to see it like it's so inept you made it sound like something i want to see but it's terrible dude no you made it sound like it's something i want to see though it's so terrible like matter i want to see the Ernest borgnine hallucination i'm sure you dog i want to see the maggots i'm sure you could see it on youtube so The thing is, this is a vanity project for Pamela Bach Hasselhoff because she's the mom and she also was a producer. So I feel like she she was on Baywatch for like 13 or 14 episodes. And I feel like she went up to David and she's like, I want to make a movie, a wilderness movie. He's like, okay, dear, go do it. Right. 
she recruits this guy called Craig Clyde, who is a specialist in this kind of garbage. Like if you look at his, his directorial credits, it's garbage like this. It's like the Derby stallion with Zac Efron miracle dogs. You know, he makes all these fucking garbage inept wilderness movies with like fucking washed up celebrities and roles like Ernest Borgnine's in this one. In this one, I got this washed up celebrity. Oh, I got William Cat in this one. You know, like this is the kind of shit that goes on. And this is awful, dude. And the thing is, this guy also fucking wrote the scripts of China O'Brien 2 and Blood Games. Wow. You know that softball girls softball team versus hillbillies movie blood games yeah yeah Yeah. he fucking wrote those before he made shit like this so i don't understand what happened this is a disaster of epic proportions this is like when i when only 20 people have logged this on letterboxd and like both of the reviews were joke reviews like one of them was about castle rock the tv show and the other one was like made no sense i was like what have i discovered here what is this garbage? And it was the first movie on a 10 movie adventure movie pack from Echo Bridge. <laughs> awesome. I'm so scared right now. Keep going, man. Do this, it every episode. This by far is the worst thing. One of the worst things I've seen in 168 episodes of this show. Oh, I so want to see it. Castle Rock. I wish it was based in the Stephen King universe because then at least maybe like like fucking Annie Wilkes would come and fucking murder these fucking annoying people who are trapped in the wilderness with their fucking gangrene and rabies dog who looks like he just wants to play fetch with them. Like seriously. Holy shit, dude. Wow. Holy shit. All right. Well, I, um, I don't know, man. I don't know how to follow up castle rock, but, uh, that would be my, uh, that's the one I'm going to seek out. No, you're, no, uh, you're not. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> Where do did it. you see it by the way. It's oh, on that 10. Echo Bridge, yeah, yeah. 10 adventure movies set. And the only other one on there that I'm kind of curious about is there's one that is a is about a kid who, a rebellious teen who gets lost in the wilderness that like a river's rafting one starring Barry Corbin, directed by William Catt. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know they're all going to be garbage. <laughs> It's crazy the stuff you find on these sets. Eh? I, I'm trying to promise everybody that I'll have better ones next time. <laughs> You're not allowed to go on vacation anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably what all the listeners are like. And I'm like, fuck, this guy watches just complete and utter shit when he's away on vacation. And I admit it, I do. <laughs> it's an easy way to like get rid of stuff in your collection that you've been hesitating on. <laughs> I always have an agenda. We're like a wilderness movie, a TV movie. Oh, uh, some stupid, dumb horror movie. Like, stop her. My mom was shooting bulletproof for movies I watched after my girlfriend had gone to bed. And I was like, I want to watch a movie. Yeah. I should have watched something else. But hey, <laughs> anyway, what do you got? Something better. Okay. I'm pretty sure everything you've talked about is better than almost everything I've talked about. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's about balances. Okay. This is a movie that I actually didn't really enjoy. I didn't re- have good memories of. Okay. Um, but Vinegar Syndrome put it out, so I thought, well, I better buy the Blu-ray. <laughs> of um, course. But it does star one of my favorite uh, 70s uh, actresses, uh, Candy Ray Alson. And it's a movie called Pets from 1973, uh, directed by Raphael Nussbaum. And um, 
yeah. So I mean, yeah, I didn't didn't have a lot of good memories of this one. Um, but yeah, so it starts. So it opens with Candy Rialson. Um, she was in Hollywood Boulevard and Chatterbox um, and, and um, um, oh, fuck one of the nurse movies. <laughs> Candy Straight. Was she in uh, Unholy Rollers too? No, she wasn't in Unholy Rollers. Oh, okay. Uh, Candy Straight Nurses. Um, but she, I love. I've I've always really liked her. Uh, thought she was really cute. Thought she looked great. Um, but for some reason, I I don't, didn't like this movie when I first saw it. And it, now I did see. Uh, was one of those again another tape trading shitty print movies so uh now that vinegar syndrome has cleaned it up i have a whole new appreciation for this movie um so candy stars as bonnie and um the movie opens with her um she's kind of uh not really being taken hostage by her brother but her brother's like trying to like kind of like uh i don't really know what he's trying to do but he's trying to like basically she's kind of a wild child and he's trying to like kind of take care of her and she doesn't want anything to do with him. So um, they end up going to this diner and she ends up kind of like, they end up getting into this like confrontation with these, these, these black guys. And uh, in that, in the kerfuffle, she ends up taking off and um, she soon ends up, um, she's kind of walking around the streets of Beverly Hills or whatever. She runs across this uh, woman named Pat, um, played by Terry Guzman. Um, and she's this like kind of like tough 70s black chick like Pam Greer or something. And and uh she's really like a real tough one with uh, you know, and and they decide they're gonna kidnap this guy and uh bring him out to the woods and then um go in and uh um Pat's gonna go rob the home. So they go and do that, and uh <laughs> Pat ends up going going to the the guy's home and uh she has his his little very cute little like kind of maltese looking dog in the car and she like takes the car and fucking drives to his house goes through his house and tries to find this stuff and the whole way the dog's barking (laughs) this this woman's so badass at one point she's driving along the fucking highway out of the side of a cliff pulls over fucking throws the dog (laughs) off the cliff (laughs) oh my god (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty that, that's pretty good i guess uh, it was pretty harsh but i was like okay and then anyway she comes ends up getting back to where candy is with the guy and she ends up kind of taking off candy then decides she's she she's decided she's gonna rape this guy that's a kidnap victim not sure why but um i didn't mind because uh candy looks good when she's uh having sex with people so she does that then she's kind of on her own again and she ends up meeting up with this woman named Geraldine. And Geraldine is this painter. Um, and she's played by Joan Blackman. She was in um, um, Macon County Line. And uh, she's um, uh, this, this kind of reclusive painter. And uh, there's also this art gallery owner named Vincent who's around. And um, Joan basically says to Candy's character, you can live with me and um for free and i will but i you're my model and i get to paint you whenever i want so that happens and um you know candy a lot of this movie is about possession like that's kind of the what they're i think what they're trying to go for like the pat character is trying to be possessive of candace candy rialson and candy isn't 
really into that. Then this painter character is also really possessive, like doesn't want her to leave the house. Um, they kind of started like a little bit of a like lesbian affair. She doesn't want her to see men. Um, and Candy starts getting frustrated. One night they they their house gets broken into and Candy like actually takes Kai into her room just so she can have someone to have sex with. And uh, of course, um, this angers Geraldine, the painter, and some things kind of escalate from there. Uh, and then it moves on to the art dealer, um, Vincent, played by Ed Bishop. Um, he ends up um, then being the next person to possess Candy's character. And um, I'm not going to get into a lot of what happens, but let's just say he has a an array of different animals in cages in the basement of his house. And uh, mm. one of those cages might be for her. Um, so it's kind of a weird movie. It's not really, an, it's not an action movie by any stretch. It's definitely more like a kind of drama, uh, but like an exploitation drama, but I actually really enjoyed it. Now it might be because I like her so much. Um, I thought Candy really carried this movie because it's kind of like three different kind of, vignettes almost tied together um so she's like with one some characters and then she goes over to other characters and then she goes over to other characters but she's the 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 constant throughout and i i thought she was really good she's super watchable i mean that's what makes hollywood boulevard so great in my opinion is her she makes that movie so great and um you know she didn't have a long career but whenever she was in stuff, um, and Chatterbox as well, which is a kind of a shitty movie, but I still like watching her in it. And um, and in this one, I don't know what it was the first time, but watching it again, yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate her, and uh, I really, really wish she had made a lot more movies. Um, I also got to say, like the amount that she's like not wearing clothes in this movie is is. Um, above average and i um and she's also wearing this pink top in the first uh for the first third that was uh, pretty amazing but i mean if you're a fan of her and you haven't seen this one a hundred percent worth checking out if you're a fan of hollywood boulevard and you like liked her and are curious to check something else out this one's a little weirder and a little less kind of like fast paced but i still thought this was actually a pretty cool little movie that um that totally totally missed the mark the first time i watched it um there's like a bunch of different interesting cast members that pop up um uh the brother from the beginning is played by mike cartel who ended up in a movie called runaway nightmare the vinegar syndrome put out that i'm quite curious about um there's another uh, guy named barry kroger who shows up in a very brief scene but he um, he was in a one of my favorite noirs called Gun Crazy. Um, Roberto Contreras and KT Stevens also show up. Um, I mean, the last section of this movie is quite chauvinistic and um, and uh, misogynistic, but um, it it does kind of pay off if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, Rielson owns this movie and. Um, um, yeah, if you're looking for something different from the 70s, and uh, especially if you like Hollywood Boulevard, um, I'd recommend picking this up in the next Vinegar Syndrome sale. Um, it is, it's a bit off the beaten track, but I'm, you know, I mean, a lot of the Vinegar Syndrome titles kind of feel similar to me. 
And I'm kind of more interested now in delving into some of these kind of stranger kind of dramas or slow burn thrillers like this and Sudden Fury. Um, there's a, there's another one I'm um, interested in as well. I'm kind of like looking at a bit more of these kind of deeper cuts that they put out instead of just kind of the standard horror stuff that most people are gravitating towards. I'm more gravitating towards stuff like this. And I think it's pretty awesome that they took a movie like this and, and put it out on blue. Um, so yeah, but um, I don't know what it was the first time, but um, second time around, I really enjoyed pets from 1973. Ooh. Do you have this one? No, I might add it. I might, it depends what their black Friday titles are that are coming up mm. or whatever it is. I might divulge in that, but we'll see. I don't know what they're, I, I'm always so wary about their mystery titles. Well, you can still buy it on Black Friday. There's all, everything's half price, right? That's true. But I just like, I generally like to make it worth my while and do the miss, do the bundle. Mm. But, but it's like, I wasn't very happy with Alien from LA last time and stuff. So yeah, I still have to watch that one. I'm kind of a little wary for the most part, but yeah, I like her too. So, and I've never seen it and I never picked it up. So this just gives me a reason to now. So yeah, definitely, definitely pick it up in the next, in the next black Friday. So hundred percent. Okay. Well, let's go on to my last movie and uh, much like nightmare city. This is a movie that could have really been awesome and has moments but didn't quite do it for me. Um, it's a movie from 1970 called A Man Called Sledge, which is a Dino De Laurentiis production, which is him kind of trying to make a spaghetti Western with a all, mostly American cast and not really being overly successful doing it. Um, so what's interesting about this one is that it's actually directed and co-written by Vic Morrow, who is a, uh, a very big character type actor who unfortunately was part of the tragic accident on the set of twilight zone, the movie in 1983. Um, his only, his only actual theatrical thing he directed, he did direct a few other things, but he does not appear in the movie at all as an actor. So I was kind of like interested in that to begin with. I was also interested in the fact that James Gardner was the star of this and was actually the villain kind of the, the, I guess, anti-hero of this piece, because I'm used to him as like a leading man in Western type movies in stuff like, you know, like Maverick, the TV show Maverick and like support your local sheriff and support your local gunfighter. Like those kind of goofy Western comedy stuff that he did with like Burt Kennedy back in the day, like in the sixties and early seventies. I'm not used to him being like this, like anti-hero like he is in this. So that's like one of the things like, putting Vic Morrow behind the helm and him being the star. That's what got me curious about this one. So this opens with a kind of weekly shot stagecoach robbery, which turns out to be, you know, the work of this guy sledge played by James Gardner. Who's like this outlaw. Everybody knows his name. Everybody kind of fears him. You know, that kind of villain that's in these Western movies always like, Oh, sledge is coming. Better watch out kind of thing. So from there, he kind of goes to this saloon with the guy who helped him rob the stagecoach. And it leads to like him kind of going upstairs with a girl and his friend staying behind and kind of like taking advantage of guys at the poker table, like, you know, fleecing them for their money. They find out he's kind of like behind this, trying to rip them off. There's this 
quick shootout in the saloon and the friend ends up getting killed, which completely leads to Gardner just like blowing away the guys who killed his friend and getting thrown in jail mm. as this guy Sledge. So, so Sledge is in jail and he's like, he, there's this old man there played by John Marley. Now, John Marley, I know mostly from Bob Clark's death dream. Yeah. Um, um, he's there and he like kind of tells him like, there's this stash of gold that they bring to this nearby prison. It's like $300,000 worth of gold and they stash it in the prison. And I was in that prison for like years and I know I was right beside the vault and I know how to get to that vault. Maybe you want to rob this gold with me. So Sledge is like, okay, I'm always down for a heist. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Once we get out of here, we'll, we'll do this gold heist. So he gathers together his crew, which includes Claude, Claude Atkins and Dennis Weaver as part of his crew. And they go, you know, to investigate this claim of this, you know, gold stash. Um, Along the way, there's this okay showdown moment in the town where it's him and his gang fighting the law, just blowing everyone away. That's pretty good, pretty violent. And then, you know, all these, and then they eventually like look into how to get into the prison and how to get the money. So they break into the prison, they get thrown into the prison because they're like, we got to get thrown into this prison and then we'll try and break out and get the gold. So there's all these prison break moments in it that are pretty good in theory, but like staged kind of poorly. Cause it's just like sledge and Marley's character in the jail. And everyone in the jail seems to be like mental cases. Like they're very over the top and the guards are over the top. And it's just not staged that well. Like, I don't think Moro was the best at staging the action in this, but that's because he's an, he's an actor directing a Western, like, you know, Clint Eastwood can direct a Western, but the guy's directed tons of movies. Vic mm-hmm. Morrow, maybe not so much. Um, so that goes down and then it just becomes like the film just feels by this point, like a whole bunch of old hat cliches and going through the motions, but it was fine. Like the plot was fine. You know, they go to, they go to heist the gold. And then from there after the heist, it just keeps going for another like 20 to 25 minutes with different like plot points that happen leading to a, a showdown finale like all westerns always have a showdown finale so to that point i thought this was okay like i thought it doesn't do anything new it's got a few wonky directorial touches because of moro not being experienced and this plot is completely as standard as you can get like it's total formula you know it could have been a little bit more exciting or whatever but there's some pretty okay action scenes in here. Like the heist moments. Okay. There's a shootout. I mentioned that was all right. Um, in the finale, there's like a really pretty decent showdown in another kind of ghost town. That's pretty good. And, you know, and the cast is okay for the most part. I thought Gardner wasn't quite badass enough, to be honest. Like if he's an anti-hero, he should just be ruthless. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that Gardner was ruthless enough in the role. But I thought he was okay playing against type. I really liked Dennis Weaver in this because he was kind of like the main kind of sidekick to Sledge in this. And Dennis Weaver is a guy who I've always kind of liked. I mean, look at Duel. He's like Mm. awesome in Duel, right? Like he's always one of those actors who's super dependable and reliable. And he's that here. Um, And Marley also is 
okay, like reliable and fine. But that's the thing. This movie is fine. It just never rises above being fine. Like there's stuff here to like, but it just hindered by like an inexperienced director and just being formula. Like it doesn't try to do anything new, which is kind of what my problem with Westerns are in general, right? Like most of them are just formula. I'm trying really hard to get into Westerns, but most of them just follow the same exact path every single time without doing anything different. And that's kind of why I was just like, yeah, this is okay. It looks fine. It, it, it moves okay. But I'm just like, wasn't like, this isn't like, whoa, this is like, great. Like this isn't Django. This isn't, you know, tombstone or yeah. like, open range, the Kevin Costner stuff that he, like all the older, the newer Kevin Costner stuff, like open range of that, I really think are good Westerns. Like even the three ten to Yuma remake mm. with uh, Christian Bale, I thought was good. This one is just there. It's like, I watched it. I wasn't, a, I wasn't upset. I was watching it. I was having a good enough time, but when it was over, I was just like, eh, whatever I can move on from this. Now I've seen it. It didn't do a heck of a lot for me. It was a, okay western but just nothing really great if that makes sense like i would say if you want to see a western directed by vic morrow starring james garner as a villain you should check this out but if you're like familiar with westerns there's a lot better out there like even silverado is better than this and that's kind of a goofy kind of western from the 80s um found out after i watched it that this was a troubled production apparently and that de Laurentiis actually kicked Moro out of the editing room in post-production and re-edited it to his own thing, which kind of makes sense for some of the wonkiness now that I think about it. But yeah, it was a, it was a okay Western, an okay attempt at an Italian spaghetti Western that was, I didn't dis- dislike it when I was watching it, but I probably won't revisit it in the future. So yeah, that's A Man Called Sledge. Have you even heard of this one? I've heard of it, and it's weird that you watched uh, Westward with James Garner and Dennis Weaver so close to me watching one oh, really? episodes ago. Well, Duel you know, Diablo. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how that happened, but hey, yeah. I, I have Duel of Diablo on Blu-ray, actually. Now that I look at, to my right, yeah. I see it. It's a Kino title, right? Yeah. Ah, well, you know, here we go again. Another, there's sometimes we line up and unintentionally, it's weird. Yeah. yeah. So that's a man called Sledge. Josh's VHS Adventures. Okay, so this is one of the this is one of my like Grail titles that I thought I'd finally a Grail share. title. Oh yeah, yeah. This is one that I just love. It's been a while. It was kind of an interesting rewatch, but it's a movie called Mondo New York from 1988, directed by Harvey Keith. So I uh, I remember watching this year, well, fucking years, like when I was a teenager, and uh, just being like blown away, like by this movie, not because it's a great movie, but because it introduced me to this crazy world. And um, sometime in the nineties, it was put out on VHS by Sundance, and I have that that version and it, it it's just this thing where it's like a it's some if you know what motto movies are they're they're movies that just kind of show a bunch of weird shit and this has a tries to have a bit of a 
through line as, as I, some of them do, some of them don't, but this one has a through line where we've just got this girl in this tank top kind of wandering around New York and going into different places. She's played by Shanna Laumeister. Um, and she ended up marrying um, later in life, uh, Bert Stein, who was a uh, famous photographer and artist and uh, famous for, for um, uh, shooting Marilyn Monroe in her last uh, photo shoot. But he, um, he was 40 years older than her. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and gross. <laughs> and so I don't know much about this woman, but I do know that, that that's where, what she went on to do. Uh, but yeah, it's just for her walking around and going into places. Um, so it op- before that happens, it opens with Lydia Lunch. And if there's anything more New York, then there's not much more New York, actually, than Lydia Lunch in the 80s. Probably uh, not. She's like a poet, performance artist, musician, uh, punk rocker. And, uh, you know, she opens with this little monologue, not long, but the New York skyline is behind her and she just kind of does this little thing. And I remember being like super enthralled with who is this woman back when I was like 16 or whatever, whenever I first saw Amanda in New York, uh, probably 17 or 18 actually. But um, anyway, I've been pretty obsessed with the Lydia Lunch ever since, but um, okay. So the, it, then we're just following this woman going into different places. So the first place she goes is into this, club where there's this band playing this new wave band and the singer of the band is phoebe legere and if you're a trauma fan that's a newcomb high yeah and uh toxie two and three um and she's doing this song called marilyn monroe and she's like writhing around at the stage and like very little clothing and play guitar and stuff so that's that's the opening and these are scenes that have like literally stuck with me for like since I first saw this, so like 30 years later. Um, then, you know, I'm just going to kind of go through some of the sequences and some of the people that pop up in this. So she, from there, she goes to this, like, like a lot of the stuff is performance art stuff. So she goes into this next, the next, you know, club or whatever, and there's this guy on stage, and he's like just spouting out all this, like, gibberish And then he fucking bites the head off of two rats and it's really disgusting. And, uh, and it's, this guy is a guy named Joe Coleman, who's a very famous artist. He does this crazy paintings. Um, I would, if you're like weird art, I'd encourage you to look him up online, but yeah, it has Joe Coleman doing this weird thing where he's biting these heads off rats, fucking going off. And then he like has all these firecrackers on his chest lights himself on fire all these firecrackers go out it's pretty nuts so that's the joe coleman sequence and then there's a a short interview with him from there she goes into this like snm dungeon and sees stuff going on there then she goes into this place where there's this um a guy in a wheelchair who's like um uh obviously i think he's got cerebral palsy um, he's played by Frank Moore, another famous figure in the scene at the time. And he's like naked and like there's all these naked chicks dancing around him, one of whom is Annie Sprinkle, um, the, the porn star. And so there's this weird scene with him in this fucking wheelchair and Annie Sprinkle and like it's people are body painted. It's super strange. And then she walks, then she leaves that place, goes along, goes, gets to this like weird kind of 
outdoor junkyard and there's this guy named uh, Joey a- a- um, Ar- Arias um, doing, uh, does a song called Fish Out of Water and this like, he's like this transvestite guy in a devil suit. So it's just like weird shit, like constantly being thrown at you. Then the next scene is like uh, one that I really remembered. It's and actually when I went to New York recently, I went to this park because I remembered it from this movie, Washington Square Park. It's one of the most famous parks in New York. But we go to Washington Square Park where we get to see a couple of stand-up comics doing their doing their bits in the middle of the park to a crowd. And I, I know these guys both became famous by doing this. Um, so it's kind of cool to have it captured on film. Um, but the two guys are Charlie Barnett, who was in DC Cab, and Rick Aviles, who was in uh, uh, Cannonball Run. He played, mm. um, he did a pretty good uh, Richard Nixon impression. And um, he was also in Ghost. He's killed Patrick Swayze, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but yeah, interesting. Great to see these guys doing their bits. I mean, this is the 80s. Um, people did racial humor back then, so there is some of that going on, but I still think they're pretty funny. Um, pretty sad that within 10 years, both of them would be dead from AIDS, and they were both really young when you saw this. So, got to see them. We get cockfights, we get um, uh, the, a voodoo ceremony where someone rips out a chicken's throat with his, his teeth, we get a barbershop quartet. Um, we get a performance art piece from uh, Karen Finley, who was a very famous performance artist at the time, doing poetry while um, in the middle of her her kind of po- poetry set, she cracks open a bunch of eggs, strips down to her underwear, covers herself in egg yolk and glitter, and then proceeds to do the rest of her set. <laughs> um, oh, boy. And um, we also have like a... a new wave kind of like dance sequence called hustle with the muscle uh performed by john sex and uh, again if you've seen like weird avant-garde um movies from the time this room this seemed like it was right out of a movie called cafe flesh which is a a triple x movie that's pretty notorious but uh um has a real distinct look to it and that's what that this just seemed like something right out of that movie. There's this big, like, kind of like fake cock on the stage, and they're dancing around. And then it ends with this uh, band called Dean and the Weenies, and it's this guy named um, this bald transvestite guy doing this song called "Fuck You," and it's just awesome. And that's how the movie ends. And I gotta say, man, I like fucking loved this movie. I still love it, but it it totally turned me on to like this world that I super wanted to know more about and uh, people that I wanted to know more about. And it made me realize that not everyone is like, there's a lot of weird shit out there and this is all real people. And there is a lot of weird shit out there. Um, And, but being at such a young age, kind of realizing that I think it really colored my, I think this really helped color my personality actually. And just the kind of things I've done in my life and stuff was wanting to seek out shit like, that I saw in Monday, New York. So I'm so happy I have this VHS. It's so hard to find now, although it is on fucking YouTube. Um, so you can watch it on YouTube, but you cannot find a physical copy anywhere. It's just, mm. it's one of those rarities I have. 
And I'm really glad I have it. And I was super teased. There was a company up here called Unobstructed View. And they claimed they had a DVD copy. And I fucking ordered it right away. And then, of course, it was I never got it. But uh, um, I was super excited to find out that it was out on DVD. But I really, really wish someone would put this out. Because it's just, it's so weird. And it's it's got so much stuff. And just all these names I listed. Like, a lot of these people are, like, Lydia Lunch and Joe Coleman. like and And... Karen Finley, um, they're all, um, Anne Magnuson also shows up, but these are all like major artists from the underground at the time. And they're all kind of in this one movie and it's pretty awesome. But I, I like super love it. And, uh, you know, if you're into window watching something weird, watch it on YouTube, I guess. I mean, I hate saying that, but it's really hard to find now. But uh, that's Mondo, New York, yeah. one of my, uh, one of the movies that really colored me as a person, I think, in a weird way. Anne Magnuson was the lead in that Making Mr. Right. That's, that's right. The Seidelman movie that yeah. I talked about. Wow. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. She's got a, it's, her scene's kind of out of place. It's like her in a field. It looks like Central Park or something. It's really strange. And then she's, she just starts like, she's doing uh, poetry, of course, but she's, there's a, like a fake dead horse there and she starts beating it uh-huh. and I, I didn't really her part i didn't really sometimes yeah, you feel like you're beating a dead horse <laughs> that's why i didn't bring her up but um yeah i, I mean yeah I, I i'd recommend checking this out if you're at all interested in kind of the weirdness of 80s new york and just weirdness in general i just want to see dean in the weenies yeah, dude, Dean and the Wheaties is so great. That's what I want to see. I'm it's gonna have so to. I'm gonna great. look that up on YouTube at least. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't really want to watch fuck, the whole. It's thing. called "Fuck You." The song is called "Fuck You," and it's by Dean and the Wheaties. I'm gonna look it up because I don't really want to watch the whole thing on YouTube, but I'll definitely watch that. And as soon as he showed up, I like like that's the thing. Like this movie, like I haven't seen it a ton, but like every time one of these things happened, I remembered the scene. Like I, I'm like, oh, this happened. Oh yeah, I forgot about this part, right? So, how, how long have you had the tape? Oh God, I don't know. Like, oh okay, I don't know when Sundance put that out. So oh, it's not like it, a new discovery. It's something you've had for a long time. Oh no, no, I picked that at like some probably Suncoast in the nineties. Oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, like it would have been after I, after I graduated high school. But yeah, I mean, hopefully you ripped it too to a, a video file or something not yet not yet i i mean i'm not i'm not letting this vhs go there's no way i know but <laughs> you don't want it to rot either no that's true it's the vhs is only watched a few times like because oh, okay. i remember renting this from like the video store there was this video store in north van that had this and i remember renting it a bunch of oh. times too. Oh, okay yeah i was pretty obsessed with it so mondo new york josh's vhs adventures okay well Again, I apologize for my bad selections, but we do have to pick our pick of the episode. And mine's going to be the burning because there wasn't much that was that great of mine. So what's yours? Mm. Uh, I mean, I'd probably go with, um, I'd probably go with London town, to be honest. I mean, modern New York, like it's, it's, it's for acquired taste. Mm-hmm. Like that would be my personal favorite, but I'd say London town is probably the best, the best movie I saw. All right. Well, that's another one in the books. I'm going to have better stuff next time. 
because I'm apologizing, man. I know I feel bad though, (laughs) but but anyway, it's my own fault. Um, If you'd like to join in the movie discussion, we do have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash GBW podcast, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for GBW podcast, rate and review wherever you listen to the show, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever that is. But most importantly, if you like the show and you like what we're doing, tell a friend because that always helps to get more people in on the action anything else to add josh um yeah just uh uh rest in peace uh to john paul belmondo um it's a real shame he recently passed away and just starting to get into him uh rediscovering him after after watching the outsider recently of course uh like knew him from breathless and pierre lefou but uh i never do this action side and uh, literally just watch that movie like a couple of months ago and uh and he just passed away in a a, a fucking legend so um so i just yeah shout out to jean paul belmondo okay on that note good night everybody good night <laughs>